This is Audible. Recorded books and one-click digital present Prince of Fools, The Red Queen's War, Book One, by Mark Lawrence. Narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Chapter One I'm a liar and a cheat and a coward, but I will never, ever let a friend down. Unless, of course, not letting them down requires honesty, fair play or bravery. I've always found hitting a man from behind to be the best way to go about things. This can sometimes be accomplished by dint of a simple ruse. Classics such as, what's that over there, work surprisingly often. But for truly optimal results, it's best if the person doesn't ever know you were there. Oh, Jesus! What the hell did you do that for? Elaine de Vere turned, clamping his hand to the back of his head and bringing it away bloody. When the person you hit doesn't have the grace to fall over, it's generally best to have a backup plan. I dropped what remained of the vase, turned, and ran. In my mind, he'd folded up with a pleasing oof and left me free to leave the mansion unobserved, stepping over his prone and senseless form on the way. Instead, his senseless form was now chasing me down the hall, bellowing for blood. I crashed back through Lisa's door and slammed it behind me, bracing myself for the impact. What the hell? Lisa sat in the bed, silken sheets flowing off her nakedness like water. <clears throat> Elaine hammered into the door, jolting the air from my lungs and scraping my heels over the tiles. The trick is to never rush for the bolt. You'll be fumbling for it and get a face full of opening door. Brace for the impact. When that's done, slam the bolt home while the other party is picking himself off the floor. Elaine proved worryingly fast in getting back on his feet, and I nearly got the door handle for breakfast despite my precautions. Chow! Lisa was out of bed now, wearing nothing but the light and shade through the shutters. Stripes suited her. Sweeter than her elder sister, sharper than her younger sister. Even then, I wanted her. Even with her murderous brother held back by just an inch of oak and with my chances for escape evaporating by the moment. I ran to the largest window and tore the shutters open. Say sorry to your brother for me. I swung a leg over the casement. Mistaken identity or something. The door started to shudder as Elaine pounded the far side. Elaine? Lisa managed to look both furious with me and terrified at the same time. I didn't stop to reply, but vaulted down into the bushes, which were, thankfully, the fragrant rather than thorny variety. Dropping into a thorn bush can lead to no end of grief. Landing is always important. I do a lot of falling, and it's not how you start that matters so much as how you finish. In this instance, I finished concertinaed, heels to arse, chin to knees, half an azalea bush up my nose, and all the air driven from my lungs, but with no bones broken. I fought my way out and limped towards the garden wall, gasping for breath and hoping the staff were too busy with pre-dawn chores to be poised and ready to hunt me down. I took off, across the formal lawns, through the herb garden, cutting a straight path through all the little diamonds of sage and triangles of thyme and what not. Somewhere back at the house a hound bayed, and that put the fear in me. 
I'm a good runner any day of the week. Scared shitless, I'm world class. Two years ago, in the border incident with Scorin, I ran from a patrol of Teutons, five of them on big old Destriers. The men I had charge of stayed put, lacking any orders. I find the important thing in running away is not how fast you run, but simply that you run faster than the next man. Unfortunately, my lads did a piss-poor job of slowing the Scorins down, and that left poor Jal running for his life with hardly twenty years under his belt and a great long list of things still to do, with the De Vere sisters near the top, and dying on a Scorin lance, not even making the first page. In any event, the borderlands aren't the place to stretch a warhorse's legs, and I kept a gap between us by running through a boulder field at breakneck speed. Without warning, I found myself charging into the back of a pitched battle between a much larger force of Scorin irregulars and the band of Red March skirmishers I'd been scouting on behalf of in the first place. I rocketed into the midst of it all, flailed around with my sword in blind terror, trying to escape, and when the dust settled and the blood stopped squirting, I discovered myself the hero of the day, breaking the enemy with a courageous attack that showed complete disregard for my own safety. So, here's the thing. Bravery may be observed when a person tramples one fear whilst in secret flight from a greater terror. And those whose greatest terror is being thought a coward are always brave. I, on the other hand, am a coward. But with a little luck, a dashing smile, and the ability to lie from the hip, I've done a surprisingly good job of seeming a hero, and of fooling most of the people most of the time. The De Vere's War was a high and forbidding one, but it and I were old friends. I knew its curves and foibles as well as any contour Lisa, Cheryl or Misha might possess. Escape routes have always been an obsession of mine. Most barriers are there to keep the unwashed out, not the washed in. I vaulted a rain barrel onto the roof of a gardener's outbuilding and jumped for the wall. Teeth snapped at my heels as I hauled myself over. I clung by my fingers and dropped. A shiver of relief ran through me as the hound found its voice and scrabbled against the far side of the wall in frustration. The beast had run silent and almost caught me. The silent ones are apt to kill you. The more sound and fury there is, the less murderous the animal. True of men, too. I'm nine parts bluster and one part greed, and so far, not an ounce of murder. I landed in the street, less heavily this time, free and clear, and if not smelling of roses, then at least of azalea and mixed herbs. Elaine would be a problem for another day. He could take his place in the queue. It was a long one, and at its head stood Mary's Alos clutching a dozen promissory notes, IOUs, and intents to pay drunkenly scrawled on whore's silken lingerie. I stood, stretched, and listened to the hound complain behind the wall. I'd need a taller wall than that to keep Mary's bullies at bay. King's Way stretched before me, strewn with shadows. 
On King's Way, the townhouses of noble families vie with the ostentation of merchant princes' mansions. New money, trying to gleam brighter than the old. The city of Vermilion has few streets as fine. Take him to the gate. He's got the scent. Voices back in the garden. Here, Pluto. Here. That didn't sound good. I set off sprinting in the direction of the palace, sending rats fleeing and scattering dungmen on their rounds, the dawn chasing after me, throwing red spears at my back. Chapter 2 The palace at Vermilion is a sprawling affair of walled compounds, exquisite gardens, satellite mansions for extended family, and finally the inner palace, the great stone confection that has for generations housed the kings of Red March. The whole thing is garnished with marble statuary, teased into startlingly lifelike forms by the artistry of Milano masons, and a dedicated man could probably scrape enough gold leaf off the walls to make himself slightly richer than Croesus. My grandmother hates it with a passion. She'd be happier behind granite barricades a hundred feet thick and spiked with the heads of her enemies. Even the most decadent of palaces can't be entered without some protocol, though. I slipped in via the surgeon's gate, flipping a silver crown to the guard. Got you out early again, Melkar. I make a point of knowing the guards' names. They still think of me as the hero of the Aral Pass, and it's helpful to have the gatekeepers on side when your life dangles from as large a web of lies as mine does. Aye, Prince Chow. Them's as works best works hardest, they do say. So true. I had no idea what he'd said, but my fake laugh is even better than my real one, and nine-tenths of being popular is the ability to jolly the menials along. I'd get one of those lazy bastards to take a turn. I nodded towards the lantern glow bleeding past the crack of the guardhouse door and strolled on through the gates as Melkar drew them open. Once inside, I made a straight line for the Roma Hall. As the Queen's third son... Father got invested in the Roma Hall, a palatial Vatican edifice constructed by the Pope's own craftsman for Cardinal Parachek, way back whenever. Grandmother has little enough time for Jesu and his cross, though she'll say the words at celebrations and look to mean them. She has far less time for Roma, and none at all for the Pope that sits there now. The holy cow, she calls her. As father's third son, I get bugger all. A chamber in Roma Hall, an unwanted commission in the Army of the North, one that didn't even swing me a cavalry rank since the northern borders are too damn hilly for horse. Scorin deploy cavalry on the borders, but grandmother declared their pig-headedness of failing the Red March should exploit, rather than a foolishness we should continue to follow. Women and war... Don't mix. I've said it before. I should have been breaking hearts on a white charger, armoured for tourney. But no, that old witch had me crawling around the peaks trying not to get murdered by scorned peasants. I entered the hall. Really a collection of halls, state rooms, a ballroom, kitchens, stables, and a second floor with endless bedchambers. 
by the west port, a service door meant for scullions and such. Fat Ned sat at guard, his halbert against the wall. Ned! Marshal Jarl! He woke with a start and came perilously close to tipping the chair over backwards. As you were. I gave him a wink and went by. Fat Ned kept a tight lip and my excursions were safe with him. He'd known me since I was a little monster bullying the smaller princes and princesses and toadying to the ones big enough to clout me. He'd been fat back in those days. The flesh hung off him now as the reaper closed in for the final swing, but the name stuck. There's power in a name. Prince has served me very well. Something to hide behind when trouble comes, and Jalan carries echoes of King Jalan of the Red March, Fist of the Emperor, back when we had one. A title and a name like Jalan carry an aura with them, enough to give me the benefit of the doubt, and there was never a doubt I needed that. I nearly made it back to my room. Jalan Kendath! I stopped two steps from the balcony that led to my chambers, toe poised for the next step, boots in my hand. I said nothing. Sometimes the bishop would just bellow my name when he discovered random mischief. In fairness, I was normally the root cause. This time, however, he was looking directly at me. I see you right there, Jalan Kendath. Footsteps black with sin as you creep back to your lair. Get down here. I turned with an apologetic grin. Churchmen like you to be sorry, and often it doesn't matter what you're sorry about. In this case, I was sorry for being caught. And the best of mornings to you, Your Excellency. I put the boots behind my back and swaggered down towards him as if it had been my plan all along. His eminence directs me to present your brothers and yourself at the throne room by second bell. Bishop James scowled at me, cheeks grey with stubble, as if he too had been turfed out of bed at an unreasonable hour, though perhaps not by Lisa de Vere's shapely foot. Father directed that. He'd said nothing at table the previous night and the cardinal was not one to rise before noon, whatever the good book had to say about sloth. They call it a deadly sin, but in my experience, lust will get you into more trouble, and sloth's only a sin when you're being chased. The message came from the queen. The bishop's scowl deepened. He liked to attribute all commands to father as the church's highest, albeit least enthusiastic, representative in Red March, Grandmother once said she'd been tempted to set the cardinal's hat on the nearest donkey, but father had been closer and promised to be more easily led. Martus and Darren have already left. I shrugged. They arrived before me, too. I'd yet to forgive my elder brothers that slight. I stopped, out of arm's reach, as the bishop loved nothing better than to slap the sin out of a wayward prince, and turned to go upstairs. I'll get dressed. You'll go now. It's almost second bell, and your preening never takes less than an hour. As much as I would have liked to dispute the old fool, he happened to be right, 
and I knew better than to be late for the Red Queen. I suppressed a sneer and hurried past him. I had on what I'd worn for my midnight escapades, and whilst it was stylish enough, the slashed velvets hadn't fared too well during my escape. Still, it would have to serve. Grandmother would rather see her spawn battle-armoured and dripping blood in any event, so a touch of mud here and there might earn me some approval. Chapter 3 I came late to the throne room, with the second bell's echoes dying before I reached the bronze doors, huge, out-of-place things stolen from some still grander palace by one of my distant and bloody-handed relatives. The guards eyed me as if I might be bird-crap that had sailed uninvited through a high window to splat before them. Prince Jalen, I rolled my hands to chivy them along. You may have heard of me. I am invited. Without commentary, the largest of them, a giant in fire-bronze mail and crimson-plumed helm, hauled the left door wide enough to admit me. My campaign to befriend every guard in the palace had never penetrated as far as grandmother's picked men. They thought too much of themselves for that. Also, they were too well paid to be impressed by my largesse, and perhaps forewarned against me, in any case. I crept in, unannounced, and hurried across the echoing expanse of marble. I've never liked the throne room. Not for the arching grandness of it, or the history set in grim-faced stone and staring at us from every wall, but because the place has no escape routes. Guards, guards, and more guards, along with the scrutiny of that awful old woman who claims to be my grandmother. I made my way towards my nine siblings and cousins, it seemed this was to be an audience exclusively for the royal grandchildren, the nine junior princes and singular princess of Red March. By rights, I should have been tenth in line to the throne after my two uncles, their sons, and my father and elder brothers. But the old witch who'd kept that particular seat warm these past forty years had different ideas about succession. Cousin Sarah, still a month shy of her eighteenth birthday, and containing not an ounce of whatever it is that makes a princess, was the apple of the Red Queen's eye. I won't lie, Sarah had more than several ounces of whatever it is that lets a woman steal the sense from a man, and accordingly I would gladly have ignored the common views on what cousins should and shouldn't get up to. Indeed, I tried to ignore them several times, but Sarah had a vicious right hook and a knack for kicking the tenderest of spots that a man owns. She'd come today wearing some kind of riding suit in fawn and suede that looked better suited to the hunt than to court. But damn, she looked good. I brushed past her and elbowed my way in between my brothers near the front of the group. I'm a decent-sized fellow, tall enough to give men pause, but I don't normally care to stand by Martus and Darren. They make me look small and with nothing to set us apart, all with the same dark gold hair and hazel eyes, I get referred to as the little one. That I don't like. On this occasion, though, I was prepared to be overlooked. It wasn't just being in the throne room that made me nervous, 
nor even because of grandmother's pointed disapproval. It was the blind-eye woman. She scares the hell out of me. I first saw her when they brought me before the throne on my fifth birthday, my name day, flanked by Martus and Darren in their church finest, father in his cardinal's hat, sober despite the sun having passed its zenith, my mother in silks and pearls, a clutch of churchmen and court ladies forming the periphery. The Red Queen sat forwards in her great chair, booming out something about her grandfather's grandfather, Jalan, the fist of the emperor, but it passed me by. I'd seen her, an ancient woman, so old it turned my stomach to look at her. She crouched in the shadow of the throne, hunched up so she'd be hidden away if you looked from the other side. She had a face like paper that had been soaked and left to dry, her lips a greyish line, cheekbones sharp. Clad in rags and tatters, she had no place in that throne room, at odds with the finery. The fire-bronzed guards and the glittering retinue come to see my name set in place upon me. There was no motion in the crone. She could almost have been a trick of the light, a discarded cloak, an illusion of lines and shade. Jalan! The Red Queen stopped her litany with a question. I had answered with silence, tearing my gaze from the creature at her side. Well? Grandmother narrowed her regard to a sharp point that held me. Still, I had nothing. Martus had elbowed me hard enough to make my ribs creak. It hadn't helped. I wanted to look back at the old woman. Was she still there? Had she moved the moment my eyes left her? I imagined how she'd move. Quick, like a spider. My stomach made a tight knot of itself. Do you accept the charge I have laid upon you, child? Grandmother asked. Attempting kindness. My glance flickered back to the hag. Still there, exactly the same. Her face half turned from me, fixed on grandmother. I hadn't noticed her eye at first, but now it drew me. One of the cats at the hall had an eye like that. Milky, pearly, almost. Blind, my nurse called it. But to me, it seemed to see more than the other eye. What's wrong with the boy? Is he simple? Grandmother's displeasure had rippled through the court, silencing their murmurs. I couldn't look away. I stood there sweating, barely able to keep from wetting myself. Too scared to speak, too scared even to lie. Too scared to do anything but sweat and keep my eyes on that old woman. When she moved, I nearly screamed and ran. Instead, just a squeak escaped me. D don't don't you see her? She stole into motion. So slow at first you had to measure her against the background to be sure it wasn't imagination. Then, speeding up, smooth and sure, she turned that awful face towards me. One eye dark, the other milk and pearl. It had felt hot suddenly as if all the great hearths had roared into life with one scorching voice, sparked into fury on a fine summer's day, 
the flames leaping from iron grates as if they wanted nothing more than to be amongst us. She was tall. I saw that now. Hunched, but tall, and thin like a bone. Don't you see her? My words rising to a shriek. I pointed, and she stepped towards me, a white hand reaching. Who? Darren beside me, nine years under his belt and too old for such foolishness. I had no voice to answer him. The blind-eyed woman had laid her hand of paper and bones over mine. She smiled at me, an ugly twisting of her face like worms writhing over each other. She smiled, and I fell. I fell into a hot, blind place. They tell me I had a fit. Convulsions. A uh, lepsy, the chirurgeon said to father the next day. A chronic condition? But I've never had it again. Not in nearly twenty years. All I know is that I fell, and I don't think I've stopped falling since. Grandmother had lost patience and set my name upon me as I jerked and twitched on the floor. Bring him back when his voice breaks, she said. And that was it for eight years. I came back to the throne room aged thirteen to be presented to Grandmother before the Saturnalia feast in the hard winter of eighty-nine. On that occasion, and all others since, I followed everyone else's example and pretended not to see the blind-eye woman. Perhaps they really don't see her, because Martus and Darren are too dumb to act and poor liars at that, and yet their eyes never so much as flicker when they look her way. Maybe I'm the only one to see her when she taps her fingers on the Red Queen's shoulder. It's hard not to look when you know you shouldn't, like a woman's cleavage. Breasts squeezed together and lifted for inspection, and yet a prince is supposed not to notice, not to drop his gaze. I try harder with the blind-eye woman, and for the most part I manage it, though grandmother's given me an odd look from time to time. In any event, on this particular morning, sweating in the clothes I wore the night before, and with half the de Vere's garden to decorate them, I didn't mind in the least being wedged between my hulking brothers and being the little one, easy to overlook. Frankly, the attention of either the Red Queen or her silent sister were things I could do without. We stood for another ten minutes, unspeaking in the main, some princes yawning, others shifting weight from one foot to the other or casting sour glances my way. I do try to keep my misadventures from polluting the calm waters of the palace. It's ill-advised to shit where you eat. And besides, it's hard to hide behind one's rank when the offended party is also a prince. Even so, over the course of the years, I'd given my cousins few reasons to love me. At last, the Red Queen came in, without fanfare, but flanked by guards. The relief was momentary. The blind-eye woman followed in her wake, and although I turned away quicker than quick, she saw me looking. The queen settled herself into her royal seat, and the guardsmen arrayed themselves around the walls. A single chamberlain, 
Mantle Druze, I think, stood ill at ease between the royal progeny and our sovereign, and once more the hall returned to silence. I watched Grandmother and, with some effort, kept my gaze from sliding towards the white and shriveled hand resting behind her head on the throne's shoulder. Over the years, I'd heard many rumours about Grandmother's secret counsellor, an old and half-mad woman kept hidden away, the silent sister, they called her. It seemed, though, that I stood alone in knowing that she waited at the Red Queen's side each day. Other people's eyes seemed to avoid her just as I always wished mine would. The Red Queen cleared her throat. In taverns across Vermilion, they tell it that my grandmother was once a handsome woman, though monstrous tall with it. A heartbreaker, who attracted suit from all corners of the broken empire and even beyond. To my eye, she had a brutal face, raw-boned, her skin tight as if scorched, but still showing wrinkles as crumpled parchment will. She had to have seventy years on her, but no one would have called her more than fifty. Her hair dark and without a hint of grey, still showing deepest red where the light caught it. Handsome or not, though, her eyes would turn any man's bowels to water. Flinty chips of dispassion. And no crown for the warrior queen, oh no. She sat near swallowed by a robe of blacks and scarlets, just the thinnest circlet of gold to keep her locks in place, scraped back across her head. My children's children. Grandmother's words came so thick with disappointment that you felt it reach out and try to throttle you. She shook her head, as if we were all of us an experiment in horse-breeding gone tragically astray. And some of you whelping new princes and princesses of your own, I hear. Yes, we idle, numerous, and breeding sedition in your numbers. Grandmother rolled over Cousin Roland's announcement before he could puff himself up. His smile died in that stupid beard of his, the one he grew to allow people at least the suspicion that he might have a chin. Dark times are coming, and this nation must be a fortress. The time for being children has passed. My blood runs in each of you, thin though it's grown, and you will be soldiers in this coming war. Martus snorted at that, though quiet enough that it would be missed. Martus had been commissioned into the heavy horse, destined for Knight General, commander of Red March's elite. The Red Queen, in a fit of madness five years earlier, had all but eliminated the force. Centuries of tradition, honour and excellence ploughed under at the whim of an old woman. Now we were all to be soldiers running to battle on foot, digging ditches, endlessly practising mechanical tactics that any peasant could master and that set a prince no higher than a potboy. Greater foe, time to put aside thoughts of empty conquest and draw in. I looked up from my disgust to find Grandmother still droning on about war. It's not that I care over much about honour. All that chivalry nonsense loads a man down, and any sensible fellow will ditch it the moment he needs to run. 
but it's the look of the thing, the form of it. To be in one of the three horse corps, to earn your spurs and keep a trio of chargers at the city barracks, it had been the birthright of young nobles since time immemorial. Damn it! I wanted my commission. I wanted in at the officer's muse, wanted to swap tall tales around the smoky tables at the Conniff and ride along the King's Way flying the colours of the Red Lance or Iron Hoof with the long hair and bristling moustache of a cavalryman and a stallion between my legs. Tenth in line to a throne will get you into a not insignificant number of bedchambers, but if a man dons the scarlet cloak of the Red March riders and wraps his legs around a destria, there are few ladies of quality who won't open theirs when he flashes a smile at them. At the corner of my vision, the blind-eyed woman moved, spoiling my daydream and putting all thoughts of riding, of either kind, from my head. Burning all dead. Cremation is to be mandatory for noble and commoner alike, and damn any descent from Roma. That again. The old bird had been banging on about death rites for over a year now. As if men my age gave a fig for such things. She'd become obsessed with sailors' tales, ghost stories from the drowned isles, the ramblings of muddy drunkards from the Ken marshes. Already men went chained into the ground, good iron wasted against superstition. And now chains weren't enough. Bodies must be burned. Well, the church wouldn't like it. It would put a crimp in their plans for Judgment Day and us all rising from the grave for a big, grimy hug. But who cared? Really? I watched the early light slide across the walls high above me and tried to picture Lisa as I'd left her that morning, clad in brightness and shadow and nothing more. The crash of the Chamberlain's staff on flagstones jerked my head back up. In fairness, I'd had very little sleep the night before, and a trying morning. If I hadn't been caught a yard from my bedchamber door, I would have been safely ensconced therein until well past noon, dreaming better versions of the daydream grandmother kept interrupting. Bring in the witnesses! The Chamberlain had a voice that could make a death sentence boring. Four guardsmen entered, flanking a Nuban warrior, scar-marked and tall, manacled wrist and ankle, the chains all threaded through an iron ring belted around his waist. That perked my interest. I misspent much of my youth gambling at the pit fights in the Latin Quarter, and I intended to misspend much of what life remained to me there too. I've always enjoyed a good fight and a healthy dose of bloodshed, as long as it's not me being pummeled or my blood getting spilled. Gordo's pits, or the blood holes down by the Merkins, got you close enough to wipe the occasional splatter from the toe of your boot and offered endless opportunity for betting. Of late, I'd even entered men on my own ticket. Likely lads bought off the slave boats out of Merok. None had lasted more than two bouts yet, but even losing can pay if you know where to place your wages. In the event, the Nuban looked like a solid bet. 
Perhaps he might even be the ticket that could get Mary Zalos off my back and silence his tiresome demands for payment for brandy already consumed and for whores already fucked. A weedy half-caste with a decorative arrangement of missing teeth followed the newborn to translate his mumbo-jumbo. The chamberlain posed a question or two, and the man answered with the usual nonsense about dead men rising from the Afrik sands, elaborating the tales of this time to make it small legions of them. No doubt he hoped for freedom if his story proved sufficiently entertaining. He did a fine job of it, throwing in a gin or two for good measure, though not the normal jolly fellows in satin pantaloons offering wishes. I felt tempted to applaud at the end, but Grandmother's face suggested that might not be a wise idea. Two more reprobates followed, each similarly chained, each with a more outrageous fable than the last. The corsair, a swarthy fellow with torn ears where the gold had been ripped from him, spun a yarn about dead ships rising, crewed by drowned men, and the Slav spoke of bone men from the barrows out in the grass sea, ancient dead clad in pale gold and grave goods from before the builder's time. Neither man had much potential for the pits. The corsair looked wiry and was no doubt used to fighting in close quarters, but he'd lost fingers from both hands and age was against him. The Slav was a big fellow, but slow. Some men have a special kind of clumsiness that announces itself in every move they make. I started to dream about Lisa again. Then Lisa and Misha together. Then Lisa, Misha and Cheryl. It got quite complicated. But when more guards marched in with the fourth and last of these witnesses... Grandmother suddenly had all my attention. You only had to look at the man to tell the blood holes wouldn't know what had hit them. I'd found my new fighter. The prisoner strode into the throne room with head held high. He dwarfed the four guards around him. I've seen taller men, though not often. I've seen men more heavily muscled, but seldom. I've even, on rare occasions seen men larger in both dimensions, but this Norseman carried himself like a true warrior. I may not be much of a one for fighting, but I've a great eye for a fighter. He walked in like murder, and when they jerked him to a halt before the Chamberlain, he snarled. Snarled! I could almost count the gold coins spilling into my hands when I got this one to the pits. Snorri Versnagerson perched off the slave ship headed. The Chamberlain took a step back despite himself and kept his staff between them as he read from his notes. Sold in trade exchange off the Hardinger Fjord. He traced a finger down the scroll, frowning. Describe the events you recounted to our agent. I had no idea where the place might be, but clearly they bred men tough up in the Hardinger. The slavers had hacked off most of the man's hair, but the thick shock remaining was so black as to almost be blue. I'd thought Norseman fair. The deep burn across his neck and shoulders showed he didn't take well to the sun, though. 
innumerable lash marks intersected the sunburn. That had to sting a bit. Still, the fight pits were always in shadow, so he'd appreciate that part of my plans for him at least. Speak up, man! Grandmother addressed the giant directly. He'd made an impression, even on her. Snorri turned his gaze on the Red Queen and gave her the type of look that's apt to lose men eyeballs. He had blue eyes, pale. That, at least, was in keeping with his heritage. That, and the remnants of his furs and sealskins, and the Norse runes picked out in black ink and blue around his upper arms. Writing, too, some sort of heathen script by the look of it, but with the hammer and the axe in there as well. Grandmother opened her mouth to speak again, but the Norseman preempted her, stealing the tension for his own words. I left the north from Hardinger, but it is not my home. Hardinger is quiet waters, green slopes, goats, and cherry orchards. The people there are not the true folk of the north. He spoke with a deep voice and a shallow accent, sharpening the blunt edges of each word just enough so you knew he was raised in another tongue. He addressed the whole room, though he kept his eyes on the queen. He told his story with an orator's skill. I've heard tell that the winter in the north is a night that lasts three months. Such nights breed storytellers. My home was in Uliskind, at the far reach of the bitter ice. I tell you my story because that place and time are over, and live only in memory. I would put these things into your minds, not to give them meaning or life, but to make them real to you, to let you walk among the Undereth, the children of the Hammer, and to have you hear of their last struggle. I don't know how he did it, but when he wrapped his voice around the words, Snorri wove a kind of magic, it set the hairs pricking on the backs of my arms, and damned if I didn't want to be a Viking too, swinging my axe on a longboat, sailing up the Ulisk Fjord, with the spring ice crunching beneath its hull. Every time he paused for breath, the foolishness left me, and I counted myself very lucky to be warm and safe in Red March. But while he spoke, a Viking heart beat in every listener's chest, even mine. North of Uliskind, past the Jarlson uplands, the ice begins in earnest. The highest summer will drive it back a mile or three. But before long, you find yourself raised above the land on a blanket of ice that never melts, folded, fissured, and ancient. The Undereth venture there only to trade with Inuin, the men who live in snow and hunt for seal on the sea ice. The Inuin are not as other men, sewn into their seal skins and eating the fat of whales. They are a different kind. Inuin offer walrus tusks, oils sweated from blubber, the teeth of great sharks, pelts of the white bear and skins, also ivories carved into combs and picks and into the shapes of the true spirits of the ice. When my grandmother interjected into the story's flow, she sounded like a screeching crow trying to overwrite a melody. Still, 
credit to her for finding the will to speak. I'd forgotten even that I stood in the throne room, sore-footed and yawning from my bed. Instead, I was with Snorri, trading shaped iron and salt for seals carved from the bones of the whales. Speak of the dead, Snoggerson. Put some fear into these idle princes, grandmother told him. I saw it then, the quickest flicker of his glance towards the blind-eye woman. I'd come to understand it was common knowledge that the Red Queen consulted with the silent sister, but, as with most such common knowledge, the recipients would be hard-pressed to tell you how they came by their information, though willing to insist upon its veracity with considerable vigour. It was common knowledge, for example, that the Duke of Grast took young boys to his bed. After he slapped me for making an improper suggestion to his sister— a buxom wench with plenty of improper suggestions of her own. The vicious slander stuck, and I've taken great delight in defending his honour ever since against heated opposition who had it from a trusted source. It was common knowledge that the Duke of Grast sodomised small boys in the privacy of his castle, common knowledge that the Red Queen practised forbidden sorceries in her highest tower, common knowledge that the silent sister a parlous witch whose hand lay behind much of the Empire's ills, was either in the Red Queen's palm or vice versa. But until this brutish Norseman glanced her way, I'd never encountered any other person who truly saw the blind-eye woman at my grandmother's side. Whether convinced by the silent sister's pearl-eyed stare or the Red Queen's command, Snorri Versnuggerson, bowed his head and spoke of the dead. In the Jarlson uplands, the frozen dead wander. Corpse tribes, black with frost, stagger in columns, lost in the swirl of the frostral. They say mammoth walk with them, dead beasts freed from the ice cliffs that held them far to the north from times before Odin first gave men the curse of speech. Their numbers are unknown, but they are many. On the gates of Niflheim, open to release the winter, and the frost giant's breath rolls out across the north, the dead come with it, taking whoever they can find to join their ranks. Sometimes lone traders or fishermen washed up on strange shores. Sometimes they cross a fjord by ice bridges and take whole villages. Grandmother rose from her throne and a score of gauntleted hands moved to cover sword hilts. She cast a sour glance towards her offspring. And how do you come to stand before me in chains, Snorri Versnoggerson? We thought the threat came from the north, from the uplands and the bitter ice. He shook his head. When ships came up the Ulisk in depths of night, black-sailed and silent, we slept, our sentries watching north for the frozen dead. Raiders had crossed the quiet sea and come against the Undereth. Men of the drowned isles broke amongst us, some living... Others corpses preserved from rot, and other creatures still, half men from the Breton swamps, 
corpse-eaters, ghouls with venomed darts that steal a man's strength and leave him helpless as a newborn. Sven broke oar, guided their ships. Sven and others of the Hardassa. Without their treachery, the islanders would never have been able to navigate the Ulisk by night. Even by day they would have lost ships. Snorri's hands closed into huge fists, and muscle heaped across his shoulders, twitching for violence. The Brokor took twenty warriors in chains as part of his payment. He sold us in Hardinger Fjord. The trader, a merchant of the port kingdoms, meant to have us sold again in Afrique, after we'd rowed his cargo south. Your agent bought me in Cordoba, in the port of Albus. Grandmother must have been hunting far and wide for these tales. Red March had no tradition of slavery, and I knew she didn't approve of the trade. And the rest? Grandmother asked, stepping past him, beyond arm's reach, seemingly angled towards me. Those not taken by your countrymen? Snorri stared into the empty throne, then directly at the blind-eye woman. He spoke past gritted teeth. Many were killed. I lay poisoned and saw ghouls swarm my wife. I saw drowned men chase my children and couldn't turn my head to watch their flight. The islanders returned to their ships with red swords. Prisoners were taken. He paused, frowned, shook his head. Sven Brokor told me tales. The truth would twist the Brokor's tongue, but he said the islanders planned to take prisoners to excavate the bitter ice. Olaf Rikesson's army is out there. The Brokor told it that the islanders had been sent to free them. An army? Grandmother stood almost close enough to touch now. A monster of a woman, taller than me, and I over top six foot, and probably strong enough to break me across her knee. Who is this Rikason? The Norseman raised an eyebrow at that, as if every monarch should know the tawdry history of his frozen waist. Olaf Rikason marched north in the first summer of the reign of Emperor Orin III. The sagas have it that he planned to drive the giants from Jotunheim and bore with him the key to their gates. More sober histories say perhaps his goal was just to bring the Inuan into the empire. Whatever the truth, the records agree he took a thousand and more with him, perhaps ten thousand. Snorri shrugged, and turned from the silent sister to face Grandmother. Braver than me, though that's not saying much, I'd not turn my back on that creature. Rikason thought he marched with Odin's blessing, but the giant's breath rolled down even so, and one summer's day every warrior in his army froze where he stood, and the snows drowned them. The Brokor has it that those taken from Uliskand are excavating the dead, freeing them from the ice. Grandmother paced along the front line of our number, 
Martus, little me, Darren, cousin Roland with his stupid beard, Rotus, lean and sour, unmarried at thirty, duller than ditchwater, obsessed with reading, and histories at that. She paused by Rotus, another of her favourites, and third in line by right, though still it seemed she would give her throne to cousin Sarah before him. And why, Snuggerson? Who has sent these forces on such an errand? She met Rotus's gaze as if he, of all of us, would appreciate the answer. The giant paused. It's hard for a Norseman to pale, but I swear he did. The dead king, lady. A guard made to strike him down, though whether for the improper address or for making mock with foolish tales I couldn't say. Grandmother stayed the man with a lifted finger. The dead king. She made a slow repetition of the words, as if they somehow sealed her opinion. Perhaps she'd mentioned him before when I wasn't listening. I'd heard tales, of course. Children had started to tell them to scare each other on Hallow's Night. The dead king will come for you. Woo, woo, woo. It took a child to be scared. Anyone with a proper idea of how far away the Drowned Isles were, and of how many kingdoms lay between us, would have a hard time caring, even if the stories held a core of truth. I couldn't see any serious-minded gentleman getting overly excited about a bunch of heathen necromancers playing with old corpses on whatever wet hillocks remained to the Lords of the Isles. So what if they actually did raise a hundred dead men twitching from their coffins and dropping corpse flesh with every step? Ten heavy horse would ride down any such in half an hour without loss and damn their rotting eyes. I felt tired and out of sorts, grumpy that I'd had to stand half the morning and more listening to this parade of nonsense. If I'd been drunk, too, I might have given voice to my thoughts. It's probably a good job I wasn't, though the Red Queen could scare me sober with a look. Grandmother turned and pointed at the Norseman. Well told, Snorri Versnoggerson. Let your axe guide you. I blinked at that. Some sort of northern saying, I guessed. Take him away, she said and her guards led him off, chains clanking. My fellow princes fell to muttering, and me to yawning. I watched the huge Norseman leave, and hoped we'd be released soon. Despite the call of my bed, I had important plans for Snorri Versnuggerson, and needed to get hold of him quickly. Grandmother returned to her throne, and held her peace until the doors had closed behind the last prisoner to exit. Did you know there is a door into death? The Red Queen didn't raise her voice, and yet it cut through the prince's chatter. An actual door, one you can set your hand against, and behind it, all the lands of death. Her gaze swept across us. There's an important question you should ask me now. No one spoke. I hadn't a clue, but was tempted to answer anyway, just to hurry things along. I decided against it, and the silence stretched until Rotus cleared his throat at last and asked, Where?
Wrong! Grandmother cocked her head. The question was, why? Why is there a door into death? The answer is as important as anything you've heard today. Her stare fell upon me, and I quickly turned my attention to the state of my fingernails. There is a door into death because we live in an age of myth. Our ancestors lived in a world of immutable laws. Times have changed. There is a door because there are tales of that door, because myths and legends have grown about it over the centuries, because it is set in holy books, and because the stories of that door are told and retold. There is a door because in some way we wanted it or expected it, or both. This is why. And this is why you must believe the tales that have been told today. The world is changing, moving beneath our feet. We are in a war, children of the Red March, though you may not see it yet, may not feel it. We are in a war against everything you can imagine, and armed only with our desire to oppose it. Nonsense, of course. Red March's only recent war was against Scorin, and even that had fallen into an uneasy truce this past year. Grandmother must have sensed she was losing even the most gullible of her audience, and switched tactics. Rotus asked where, but I know where the door is, and I know that it cannot be opened. She stood from her throne again. And what does a door demand? A key. Sarah, ever eager to please. Yes, a key. A smile for her protege. Such a key would be sought by many. A dangerous thing, but better we should own it than our enemies. I will have tasks for you all soon. Quests for some, questions for others, new lessons for others still. Be sure to commit yourselves to these labours as to nothing before. In this you will serve me, you will serve yourselves, and, most importantly, you will serve the Empire. Exchanged glances, muttering. Where was Red March and all that? Martus, perhaps. Enough! Grandmother clapped her hands, releasing us. Girl, scurry back to your empty luxuries and enjoy them while you can. Or, if my blood runs hot on you, consider these words and act on them. These are the end days. All our lives draw in towards a single point and time, not too many miles or years from this room, a point in history when the Emperor will either save us or damn us. All we can do is buy him the time he needs, and the price must be paid in blood. At last! I hurried out amongst the others, "'catching up with Sarah. "'Well, that settles it. "'The old bat's cracked. "'The Emperor.' "'I laughed and flashed her my cavalry grin. "'Even Grandmother isn't old enough to have seen the last Emperor.' 
Sarah fixed me with a look of disgust. Did you listen to anything she said? And off she strode, leaving me standing there, jostled by Martus and Darren as they passed by. Chapter Four From the throne room, I sprinted down the grand corridor, turning left where all my family turned right. Armour, statuary, portraits, displays of fanned-out swords, all of them flashed past. My day boots pounded a hundred yards of staggeringly expensive woven rug, luxuriant silks patterned in the Indus style. I turned the corner at the far end, teetering on the edge of control, dodged two maids, and ran flat out along the central corridor of the guest range, where scores of rooms were laid ready against the possibility of visiting nobility. Out of the fucking way! Some old retainer doddered from a doorway into my path. One of my father's, Robin, a grey old cripple always limping about the place getting underfoot. I swerved past him, Lord knows why we keep such hangers on, and accelerated down the hallway. Twice guardsmen startled from their alcoves, one even calling a challenge before deciding I was more ass than assassin. Two doors short of the corridor's end, I stopped and made an entrance to the green room, gambling that it would be unoccupied. The room, chambered in rustic style with a four-poster bed carved like spreading oaks, lay empty and shrouded in white linens. I passed the bed, wherein I'd once spent several pleasant nights in the company of a dusky contessa from the southernmost reaches of Roma, and threw back the shutters. Through the window, onto the balcony, vault the balustrade, and drop to the peaked roof of the royal stables, an edifice that would put to shame any mansion on the king's way. Now, I know how to fall, but the drop from the stable's roof would kill a Chinese acrobat, and so the speed with which I ran along the stone gutter was a careful balance between my desire not to fall to my death and my desire not to be stabbed to my death by Mary's Alice, or one of his enforcers. The giant Norseman could bludgeon me a way out of debt altogether if I managed to secure his services and make the right wagers. Hell, if people saw what I saw in the man and wouldn't give me good odds, then I could just slip him some bonewort and bet against him. At the far end of the stables hall, two Corinthian pillars supported ancient vines, or vice versa. Either way, a good or desperate climber could make his way to ground there. I slid the last ten foot, bruised my heel, bit my tongue, and ran off towards the battle gate, spitting blood. I arrived there winded, and had to bend double, palms on thighs, heaving in great lungfuls of air before I could assess the situation. Two guards watched me with undisguised curiosity. An old soak, commonly known as Double, and a youngster I didn't recognise. Double! I straightened up and raised a hand in greeting. What dungeon are the Queen's prisoners being taken to? It would be the war cells up in the Marseille Keep. They might be slaves, but you wouldn't put the Norsemen in with common stock. I asked anyway. It's always good to open with an easy question to put your man at ease. Ain't no cells for them, lot. Double made to spit, then thought better of it and swallowed noisily. 
What? She couldn't be having them killed. It would be a criminal waste. There he's going free. That's what I heard. Double shook his head at the badness of the business, jowls wobbling. Contaf's coming up to process them. He nodded out across the plaza, and sure enough, there was Contaf, layered in his official robes and beetling towards us with the sort of self-importance that only minor functionaries can muster. From the high latticed windows above the battle gate, I could hear the distant clank of chains drawing nearer. Damn it! I glanced from door to sub-chamberlain and back again. Hold them here, Double, I told him. Don't tell them anything, not a thing. I'll see you right. Your friends, too. And with that, I hurried off to intercept Amaral Contaf of House Misa. We met in the middle of the plaza, where an ancient sundial spelled out the time with morning shadows. Already the flagstones were beginning to heat up, and the day's promise simmered above the rooftops. Amaral! I threw my hands wide as though he were an old friend. Prince Jalan. He ducked his head as if seeking to take me from his sight. I could forgive him his suspicions. As a child I used to hide scorpions in his pockets. Those slaves that put on this morning's entertainment in the throne room, what's to become of them, Amaral? I moved to intercept him while he tried to circumnavigate me, his order scroll clutched tight in one pudgy fist. I'm to set them on a caravan for Port Isthmuth with papers dissolving any indenture. He stopped trying to get past me and sighed. What is it that you want, Prince Jalan? Only the Norseman. I gave him a smile and a wink. He's too dangerous to just set free. That should have been obvious to everyone. In any event, Grandmother sent me to take charge of him. Contaf looked up at me, eyes narrow with distrust. I've had no such instructions. I have, I must confess, a very honest face. Bluff and courageous, it's been called. I'm easy to mistake for a hero, and with a little effort I can convince even the most cynical stranger of my sincerity. With people who know me, that trick becomes more difficult. Much more difficult. Walk with me. I set a hand to his shoulder and steered him towards the battle gate. It's good to steer a man in the direction he intended to go. It blurs the line between what he wants and what you want. In truth, the Red Queen gave me a scroll with the order. A hasty scrawl on a scrap of parchment, really. And to my shame, I've let it drop in my rush to get here. I took my hand from his shoulder and unfastened the gold chain from around my wrist, a thing of heavy links set with the small ruby on both clasps. It would be deeply embarrassing for me to have to return and admit the loss to my grandmother. A friend would understand such things. I took to steering him again, as if my only desire were for him to reach his destination safely. The chain I dangled before him. You are my friend, aren't you, Amaral? 
Rather than drop the chain into a pocket of his robe and risk reminding him of scorpions, I pressed it into the midst of his sweaty palm and risked him realising it was red glass and gold plated over lead, and thinly at that. Anything of true value I'd long since pawned against the interest on my debts. You'll retrace your steps and find this document? Contuff asked, pausing to stare at the chain in his hand. And bring it for filing before sunset? Assuredly. I oozed sincerity. Any more and it would be dripping from me. He is dangerous, this Norseman. Contaf nodded as if persuading himself. A heathen with false gods. I was surprised, I must admit, to see freedom set against his name. An oversight, I nodded, now corrected. Ahead of us, Double appeared to be engaged in heated conversation through the view grill set into the battle gate's sub-door. You may allow the prisoners out, I called to him. We're ready for them now. You're looking uncommonly pleased with yourself. Darren strolled into the high hall, a dining gallery named for its elevation rather than the height of its ceiling. I like to eat there for the view it offers, both out across the palace compound and, via slit windows, into the great entrance hall of my father's house. Pheasant, pickled trout, hen's eggs. I gestured at the silver plate set before me on the long trestle. What's not to be pleased about? Help yourself. Darren is self-righteous and overly curious about my doings but not the royal pain in the arse that Martus is, so by dint of not being Martus he carries the title of favourite brother. The Derma reports dishes keep going missing from the kitchens of late. Darren took an egg and sat at the far end of the table with it. Curious! That would be Jula, our sharp-eyed head cook, telling tales to the house domo, though how such whispers came to Darren's ear. I'd have a few of the scullions beaten. Soon put a stop to it. On what evidence? He salted the egg and bit deep. Evidence be damned. Bloody up a few of the menials, put the fear into the lot of them. That'll put an end to it. That's what grandmother would do. Light fingers get broken, she'd say. I went for honest outrage, using my own discomfort to colour my reactions. No more selling off the family silver for Jal, then. That line of credit had come to an end. Still, I had the Norseman safely stowed away in the Marseille keep. I could see the keep from where I sat, a slouching edifice of stone more ancient than any part of the palace, scarred and disfigured, but stubbornly resisting the plans of a dozen former kings to tear it down. A ring of tiny windows, heavily barred, ran around its girth like a belt. Snorri Versnagerson would be looking up at one of those from the floor of his cell. I told them to give him red meat, rare and bloody. Fighters thrive on blood. For the longest time I stared out the window, watching the keep and the vast landscape of the heavens behind it, a sky of white and blue, all in motion, so that the keep seemed to move, and the clouds stay still, making a ship 
of all that stone, ploughing on through white waves. What did you think of all that rubbish this morning? I asked the question without expecting an answer, sure that Darren had taken his leave. I think if Grandmother is worried, we should be too, Darren said. A door into death? Corpses? Necromancy? I sucked, and the flesh came easily off a pheasant's bone. Am I to fear this? I tapped the bone to the table, looked away from the window, and grinned at him. Is it going to pursue me for vengeance? I made it walk. You heard those men. Have you ever seen a dead man walk? Forget distant deserts and ice wastes. Here in Redmarch, has anyone ever seen such? Darren shrugged. Grandmother says at least one unborn has entered the city. That's something to be taken seriously. A what? Jesus, did you really not listen to a word she said? She is the queen, you know. You do well to pay attention from time to time. An unborn? The term rang no bells. It didn't even approach the belfry. Something born into death rather than life. Remember? Darren shook his head at my blank look. Forget it. Just listen now. Father expects you at this opera of his tonight. No showing up late or drunk or both. No pretending nobody told you. Opera? Dear God, why? That was the last thing I needed. A bunch of fat and painted idiots wailing at me from a stage for several hours. Just be there. A cardinal is expected to finance such projects from time to time, and when he does, his family had better put in an appearance or the chattering classes will want to know why. I'd opened my mouth to protest when it occurred to me that the De Vere sisters would be among those chattering classes. Vanella Matus, too, the newly arrived and allegedly stunning daughter of Ortus Matus, whose pockets ran so deep it might even be worth a marriage contract to reach into them. And, of course, if I could have Snorri make his debut in the pits before the show started, then I would likely find no end of aristocratic and mercantile purses opening in the opera intermissions to wager on this exciting new blood. If there's one good thing to be said about opera, it's that it makes a man appreciate all other forms of entertainment so much more. I closed my mouth and nodded. Darren left still munching his egg. The appetite had left me. I pushed the plate away. Idle fingers discovered my old locket beneath the folds of my cloak and I fished it out, tapping it against the table. A cheap enough thing of plate and glass, it clicked open to reveal Mother's portrait. I snapped it shut again. She last saw me when I was seven. A flux took her. They call it a flux. It's just the shits, really. You weaken, fever takes you, you die stinking. Not the way a princess is supposed to die, or a mother. I slipped the locket away, unopened. Best she remember me as seven, and not see me now.
Before leaving the palace, I picked up my escort, the two elderly guardsmen allotted to the task of preserving my royal hide by my father's generosity. With the pair in tow, I swung by the Red Hall and collected a handful of my usual cronies. Roust and Lon Greyjar, cousins of the Prince of Arrow, sent to further relations, which seemed to entail eating all our best victuals and chasing chambermaids. Also, Omar, seventh son of the Caliph of Lyba, and a fine fellow for gambling. I'd met him during my brief and inglorious spell at the Mathema, and he'd persuaded the Caliph to send him to the continent to broaden his education. With Omar and the Grey Jars, I headed up to the guest range, that wing of the inner palace where more important dignitaries were housed, and where Barris John's father, the Vian ambassador to court, kept a suite of rooms. We had a servant fetch out Barris, and he came sharp enough, with Rolus, his companion-cum-bodyguard, trailing behind. What a perfect night to get drunk on! Barris saluted me as he came down the steps. He always said it was a perfect night to get drunk. For that we'd need wine. I spread my hands. Barris stepped aside to reveal Rolus behind him, carrying a large flask. Big goings-on in court today. A meeting of the clan, I said. Barris never stopped fishing for court news. I had a hunch half of his allowance depended on feeding gossip to his father. The Lady Blue playing her games again? He flung an arm around my shoulders and steered me towards the common gate. With Barris, everything was a plot of nation against nation, or worse, a conspiracy to undermine what peace remained in the broken empire. Damned if I know. Now he mentioned it, there had been talk of the Lady Blue. Barris always insisted that my grandmother and this purported sorceress were fighting their own private war and had been for decades. If true, then to my mind it was a piss-poor excuse for one, as I'd seen precious little sign of it. Tales about the Lady Blue seemed as doubtful as those about the handful of so-called magicians who seemed to haunt the Western courts. Kellum, Corion, half a dozen others, charlatans the lot of them. Only the existence of Grandmother's silent sister lent any credence at all to the rumours. Last I heard, our friend in blue was flitting from one Teuton court to the next, probably been hung for a witch by now. Barris grunted. Let's hope so. Let's hope she's not back in Scorin, stirring up that little war again. I could agree with him there. Barris's father negotiated the peace and treated it like his second son. I'd rather a close relative came to harm than that particular peace deal. Nothing would induce me back into the mountains to fight the Scorins. We left the palace by the victory gate in fine spirits, passing our flask of Weneth red between us while I explained the virtues of wooing sisters. As we entered Hero's Plaza, the wine turned to vinegar in my mouth. I half choked and dropped the flask. There! Do you see her? Coughing, wiping tears from my eyes, I forgot my own rule and pointed at the blind-eye woman. She stood at the base of a great statue, the last steward, sombre on his petty throne. Steady on! 
Roust thumped me between the shoulders. See who? Omar asked, staring where I pointed. Dressed in tatters, she might, in another glance, be nothing more than rags hanging on a dead bush. Perhaps that was what Omar saw. Nearly lost this. Beres retrieved the flask, safe in its reed casing. Come to Papa, I'll be looking after you from now on, little one. And he cradled it like a baby. None of them saw her. She watched a moment longer, the blind eye burning across me, then turned and walked away through the crowds flowing towards Trent Market. Jostled into action by the others, I walked on too, haunted by old fears. We approached the blood holes in the early afternoon, me sweating and nervous, and not just because of the unseasonable heat or the fact that my financial future was about to ride on two very broad shoulders. The silent sister always unsettled me, and I'd seen entirely too much of her today. I kept glancing about, half expecting to spot her again along the crowded streets. Let's see this monster of yours! Lon Greyjar slapped a hand to my shoulder, shaking me out of my rememberings and alerting me to the fact that we'd arrived at the blood holes. I made a smile for him, and promised myself I'd fleece the little fucker down to his last crown. He had an annoying way about him, did Lon, too chummy, too keen to lay hands on you, and always snipping away at anything you said, as if he doubted everything, even the boots you were standing in. Fair enough. I lie a lot but that doesn't mean cousins of some minor princeling can take liberties. I paused before the approaching doors and stepped back, casting my gaze along the outer walls. The place had been a slaughterhouse once, though a grand one, as if the king back in those days had wanted even his cattle murdered in buildings that would shame the homes of his copper crown rivals. On the only other occasion I'd seen the blind-eye woman outside the throne room, She'd been on the Street of Nails, up close to one of the larger manses towards the western end. I'd come out of some ambassador's ballroom with an enticing young woman, got my face slapped for my efforts, and was cooling off, watching the street before going back in. I had been wiggling one of my teeth to check that the damned girl hadn't knocked it loose when I saw the silent sister across the broadness of the street. She stood there, bolder than brass, a bucket in one white hand and a horsehair brush in the other, painting symbols on the walls of the manse. Not the garden walls facing the street, but the walls of the building itself, seemingly unnoticed by guard or dog. I watched her, growing colder by the moment, as if a crack had run through the night, letting all the heat spill out of it. She showed no sign of hurry, painting one symbol, moving on to the next. In the moonlight, it looked like blood she was painting with, broad, dark strokes, each running with countless dribbles and coming together to make sigils that seemed to twist the night around them. She was encircling the building, throwing a painted noose about it, patient, slow, relentless. 
I ran back in then, far more scared of that old woman and her bucket of blood than of the young Countess Lauren, her overquick hand, and whatever brothers she might set upon me to defend her honour. The joy of the night was gone, though, and I left for home quick enough. A day later I heard a report of a terrible fire on the Street of Nails, a house burned to ash with not a single survivor. Even today the site lies vacant, with nobody willing to build there again. The walls of the bloodholes were blessedly free of any decoration, save perhaps the scratched names of temporary lovers here and there, where a buttress provided shelter for such work. I cursed myself for a fool, and led on through the doors. The Tariff brothers who ran the bloodholes had sent a wagon to collect Snorri from the Marseille keep earlier in the day. I'd been particular in the message I dispatched, warning them to take considerable care with the man and demanding assurances of a thousand in crown gold if they failed to ensure his attendance in the crimson pit for the first bout. Flanked by my entourage, I strode into the bloodholes, enveloped immediately in the sweat and smoke and stink and din of the place. Damn, but I loved it there. Silk-clad nobles strolled around the fight floor, each an island of colour and sophistication, close-pressed by companions. Then a ragged halo of hangers-on, hawkers, beermen, poppy men and brazens, and, at the periphery, urchins ready to scurry between one gentleman and the next, bearing messages by mouth or hand. The bed-takers, each sanctioned and approved by the tariffs, stood at their stalls around the edge of the hall, odds listed in chalk, boys ready to collect or deliver at the run. The four main pits lay at the vertices of a great diamond, red-tiled into the floor. Scarlet, umber, ochre, and crimson. All of a likeness, twenty foot deep, twenty foot across, but with crimson first amongst equals. The nobility wound their way between these and the lesser pits, peering down, discussing the fighters on display, the odds on offer. A sturdy wooden rail surrounded each pit, set into a timber apron that overlapped the stonework, reaching a yard down into the depression. I led the way to Crimson, and leaned over, the rail hard against my midriff. Snorri Versnuggerson glowered up at me. Fresh meat here! I raised my hand, still staring down at my meal ticket. Who'll take a cut? Two small olive hands slid out over the rail beside me. I believe I will. I feel you owe me a cut or two, Prince Jolin. Oh, hell. Mary's, how good to see you. To my credit, I kept the blind terror from my reply and didn't soil myself. Mary's Alice had the calm and reasonable voice that a scribe or tutor should have. The fact that he liked to watch when his collectors cut the lips off a man turned that reasonable tone from a comfort to a horror. He's a big fellow, Mary said. Yes. I glanced around wildly for my friends. All of them, even the two old veterans picked specially by my father to guard me, had slunk off towards Umber without a word, 
and let Mary's Alice slide up beside me unannounced. Only Omar had the grace to look guilty. How would he fare against Lord Gren's man, Norris, do you think? Mary's asked. Norris was a skilled pugilist, but I thought Snorri would pound the man flat. I could see Gren's fighter now, standing behind the barred gate opposite the one that Snorri had come through. Shouldn't we call the fight? Get the odds set? I shot Barris John a look and called out to him. Norris against my fresh meat? What number's there? Mary's set a soft hand to my arm. Time enough for wagering, when the man's been tested, no? But, but he might come to harm, I flustered. I plan to make good coin here, Mary's. Pay you back with interest. My finger ached. The one Mary's had broken when I came up short two months back. Indulge me, he said. That will be my interest. I'll cover any losses. A man like that, he might be worth three hundred crowns. I saw his game then. Three hundred was just half what I owed him. The bastard meant to see Snorri die and keep a royal prince on his leash. There didn't seem to be a way past it, though. You don't argue with Mary's Alice... Certainly not in his cousin's fight hall and owing him the best part of a thousand in gold. Mary's knew how far he could push me, minor princeling or not. He'd seen past my bluster to what lies beneath. You don't get to hurt an organization like Mary's without being a good judge of men. Three hundred if he's not fit to fight wagered bouts tonight. I could slip back after father's ridiculous opera and buy into the serious fights. This afternoon's exercise had only ever been intended to whet appetites and stir up interest. Mary's didn't answer, only clapped his soft hands and had the pit guards raise the opposite gate. At the sound of iron grating on stone and chains ratcheting through their housings, the crowds came to the rail, drawn by the pull of the pit. He's huge! Handsome fella! Norris will ugly him up! Now's his stuff, does Norris? The beefy Teuton came out of the archway, rolling his bald head on a thick neck. Fists only, Norseman, Mary's called down. The only way out of that pit for you is to follow the rules. Norris raised both hands and balled them into fists as if to instruct the heathen. He closed the distance between them, swift on his feet, jerking his head in sharp stutters designed to fool the eye and tempt an ill-advised swing. He looked rather like a chicken to me, bobbing his head like that, fists at his face, elbows out like little wings, a big, muscular hen. Snorri clearly had the reach, so Norris came in fast. He ducks his head, does Norris, takes punches on his skull. That's what I was going to say. I'd seen men hurt their hands on the Teuton's thick and bony head before. I didn't have time to get the words out. Norris jabbed and Snorri caught the man's fist in the flat of his palm, closing his fingers to trap it. He yanked Norris forwards, punching with his other arm, brushing aside the wild swing of the Teuton's left with his elbow. The Norseman's huge fist hammered into Norris's face, knuckles impacting from chin to nose. 
The man flew back a yard or more, hitting the floor with a boneless thump, blood spattered on his upturned face, mixed with teeth and muck from his flattened snout. A moment of silence. Then a roar went up that hurt my ears. Half delight, half outrage. Betting parchments flew, coins changed hands, all informal wagers made in the moment. An impressive specimen, Mary said without passion. He watched while two pitmen dragged Norris away through the double-chambered exit valve. Snorri let them do their work. I could see he'd calculated his chances of escape and found them to be zero. The second iron gate could be raised only from the outside, and then only when the first had been lowered. Send in Utana. Mary's never raised his voice, but was always heard amidst the din. He offered me a thin smile. No! I strangled back the outrage, remembering that I had seen lipless men, even in the palace. Mary's Alice had a long arm. Mary's, my friend, you can't be serious. Utana was a specialist, with countless knife bouts notched onto his belt. He'd sliced open half a dozen good knife men this year already. At least let my fighter train with the hook knife for a few weeks. He's from the ice. If it's not an axe, they don't understand it. I tried for humour, but Utana already waited behind the gate, a loose-limbed devil from the farthest shores of Afrique. Fight! Marius raised his hand. But... Snorri hadn't even been given his weapon. It was murder, pure and simple a public lesson to put a prince firmly in his place. The public didn't have to like it, though. Boos rang out when Utana stepped into the pit, his hooked blade held carelessly to the side. The nobles hooted, as if we were watching mummers in the square. They might hoot again tonight with equal passion if father's opera contained a suitably villainous party. Snorri glanced up at us. I swear he was grinning. No rules now. Utana began a slow advance, passing his knife from hand to hand. Snorri spread his arms, not fully, but enough to make a wide man wider still in that confined space, and with a roar that drowned out the many voices above, he charged. Utana jigged to one side, intending to slash and dodge clear, but the Norseman came too fast, swerved to compensate, and reached with arms every bit as long as the Africans. At the last, Utana could do no more than attempt the killing blow. Nothing else would save him from Snorri's grapple. The exchange was lost in the collision. Snorri pounded into his man, driving him back a yard and slamming him into the pit wall. He held there for a heartbeat, Perhaps a word passed between them, then stepped away. Utana slid to a crumpled heap at the base of the wall, white fragments of bone showing through dark skin at the back of his head. Snorri turned to us, shot an unreadable glance my way, then looked down to inspect the hook-knife driven through his hand, hilt hard against his palm, the sacrifice he'd made to keep the blade from his throat. The bear. Marys said it more quietly than ever into the noise of the erupting crowd. I'd never seen him angry. Few men had. 
but I could see it now in the thinness of his lips and the paling of his skin. Bear? Why not just shoot him with crossbows from the rail and be done? I'd seen a bloodhole's bear once before, a black beast from the western forests. They set it against a connet man with spear and net. It wasn't any bigger than him, but the spear just made it angry, and when it got in close, it was all over. It doesn't matter how much muscle a man may carry, a bear's strength is a different thing, and makes any warrior seem weak as a child. It took them a while to produce the bear. This clearly hadn't been part of the plan that involved Norris and Utana. Snorri simply stood where he was, holding his injured hand high above his head and gripping the wrist with his other hand. He left the hook knife where it was, embedded in his palm. The fury the crowd had shown at Utana's entrance flared to new heights when the bear approached the gate, but Snorri's booming laugh silenced them. Call that a bear? He lowered his arms and thumped his chest. I am of the Underleth, the children of the Hammer. The blood of Odin runs in our veins. Storm-born we. He pointed up at Mary's with his transfixed hand, dripping crimson, knowing his tormentor. I am Snorri, son of the Axe. I have fought trolls. You have a bigger bear. I saw it back in the cells. Send that one. Bigger bear! Roust Greyjar shouted out behind me, and his fool brother took up the chant. Bigger bear! Within moments they were all baying it, and the old slaughterhouse pulsed with the demand. Marys said nothing, only nodded. Bigger bear! The crowd roared it time and again, until at last the bigger bear arrived and awed them to silence. Where Marys had procured the beast I couldn't say, but it must have cost him a fortune. The creature was simply the biggest thing I'd ever seen. Dwarfing the black bears of the Teuton forests, overtopping even the grizzled bears from beyond the Slav lands, even slouched behind the gate in its off-white pelt, it stood nine foot and more, and heavy with muscle beneath fur and fat. The crowd drew breath and howled its delight and its horror, ecstatic at the prospect of death and gore, outraged at the unfairness of the killing to come. As the gate lifted, and the bear snarled and went to all fours behind it, Snorri took hold of the hook-knife and pulled it free, making that curious turn of the blade at the last moment necessary to prevent the wound from becoming larger still. He bunched the injured hand into a scarlet fist and took the blade in an overhand grip in the other. The bear, clearly some arctic breed, came in unhurriedly on all fours, swinging its head from side to side in great sweeps, drawing in the stink of men and blood. Snorri charged, stamping his great feet arms wide, roaring that deafening challenge of his. He drew up short, but it was enough to make the bear rear, returning the challenge with a snarl that nearly unloosed my waters even behind to the safety of the rail. The bear stood ten foot, four legs lifted, its black claws longer than fingers. Snorri's knife, 
crimson with his own blood, looked a sorry little thing. It would hardly penetrate the bear's fat. It would take a long sword to reach its vitals. The Norseman shouted out some curse in his heathen tongue and flung out his wounded hand, holding it wide, splattering blood across the bear's chest, a pattern of red on white. Madness! Even I knew not to let a wild thing see that you're wounded. The bear, more curious than enraged, bent down, folding up to sniff and lick at its bloody fur. And at that instant, Snorri charged. For a moment, I wondered if he could actually kill the thing, if by some miracle of war he could drive his blades just so into its spine while its head was down. All of us drew a single breath. Snorri leapt. He set his injured hand flat to the top of the bear's head and, like some court tumbler, vaulted onto its shoulders, crouching. Roaring outrage, the bear snapped erect, reaching for the annoyance, powering up to its full height as if Snorri were a child and it the father, carrying him aback. As the bear straightened, Snorri straightened too, leaping upwards with the combined thrust and reaching high with his knife hand. He drove the blade into the wooden skirts of the rail some twenty feet above the floor of the pit. He pulled, reached, swung, and in a broken second... He was amongst us. Snorri Versnuggerson surged through the high-born crowd, trampling full-grown men underfoot. Somewhere in those first few steps he found a new knife. He left a trail of flattened and bleeding citizens, using his blade only three times when members of the Tariff Pit team made more earnest efforts to stop him. Those he left gutted, one with his head nearly taken off. He was out into the street before half the crowd even knew what had happened. I leaned over the rail. The hall was in chaos. Everywhere men were finding their courage and starting to give chase now that their quarry was long gone. The bear had returned to sniffing the pit floor, licking blood from the flagstones. The red print of Snorri's hand stark across the back of its head. Mary's had vanished. He had a way of coming and going, that one. I shrugged. The Norseman was clearly too dangerous to keep. He would have been the death of me, one way or another. At least this way I'd put a three hundred crown dent in my debt to Mary's Alice. It would keep him off my back for a good three months, maybe six. And a lot can happen in six months. Six months is an eternity. Chapter 5 Opera! There's nothing like it, except wild boars rotting. The only good thing about Father's interminable opera was the venue, a fine domed building in Vermilion's eastern quarter where a preponderance of Florentine bankers and Milano merchants gave the city a very different flavour. For the first hour, I gazed up at the nymphs cavorting nude across the dome, somehow painted so that the curved surface presented them without distortion. As much as I admired the artist's eye for detail, I found the scene frequently interrupted by flashes of imagery from the blood holes. Snorri felling Norris with what must have been a fatal punch. Utana falling forwards from the pit wall, the back of his head broken open. That leap, that spectacular, impossible, insane leap, 
On stage, a soprano soared through an aria as I replayed the Norseman launching himself to freedom. In the intermission, I searched for familiar faces. I'd come late to the showing and had shuffled my way noisily to a seat blocking everyone's view. In the dim light, and separated from my more punctual companions, I had to settle for sitting amongst strangers. Now under the lanterns of the Intermiso Hall, and plucking glasses of wine from every passing tray, I found that despite my brother Darren's dire warnings, the opening night was surprisingly poorly attended. It seemed that Father himself had failed to arrive. Taken to his bed, the gossip had it. He was never a music lover, but the Vatican's coffers had financed this tripe of angels and devils wailing one against the other, fat men sweltering under wings of wax and feathers whilst belting out the chorus. The least their most senior local representative could do was attend and suffer with the rest of us. Damn it all! I couldn't even spot martyrs. Oh, fucking Darren. I jostled past a man in a white enamel mask, as though he were attending a masquerade rather than an opera. Or at least I attempted to jostle past, failed, and bounced off him as if he were cast from iron. I turned, rubbing my shoulder. Something in the eyes watching from those slits swept away in a cold wash of fear any inclination I had to complain. I let the press of people separate us. Had it even been a man? The eyes haunted me. The irises white. The whites grey. My shoulder ached as though infection ate at the bone. Unborn. Darren had said something about an unborn in the city. Prince Jalan! Amaral Contuff hailed me with irritating familiarity, puffed up in ridiculous finery, no doubt purchased for just this occasion. They must have been desperate to fill the seats if toadies of Contuff's water were invited to the premier. Prince Jalan! The flow of the crowd somehow pulled us farther apart, and I affected not to see him. The fellow was probably just pursuing me for the fictional paperwork regarding Snorri. Worse still, he might have already heard the Norseman was running amok in Vermilion streets. Or perhaps he'd scratched off the gold plate from my gift. Either way, none of the reasons he might want to talk to me seemed to be reasons I might want to talk to him. I turned sharply away and found myself face to face with Alain de Vere sporting an unbecoming bandage around his head and flanked by two large and ugly men in ill-fitting opera cloaks. Jalen! Elaine reached for me, finding only a handful of my own exquisitely tailored cape. I shrugged the garment off and let him keep it while I sprinted for the stairs, weaving a dangerous path around dowagers sporting diamonds in their hair and gruff old lords knocking back the wine with the grim determination of men wishing to dull their senses. I have quick feet, but it's probably my total disregard for other people's safety that allowed me to open a considerable lead so swiftly. There are communal privies at the rear of the opera house. For the men, a dozen open seats above water flowing in channels that pour out into the alley behind. The water runs from a large tank on the roof. 
A small band of urchins spend all day filling it with buckets, an activity I had occasion to note when using one of the cast changing rooms for an assignation with Duchess Sansira a season previously. I was banging away dutifully, as a chap does with a woman of declining years and increasing fortune, when hoping to catch a loan. But every time I seemed to be getting anywhere, a small boy would wander past the door, heavy bucket sloshing. Quite put me off my stride. And the old cow didn't loan me so much as a silver penny. That afternoon with Duchess Money Buckets wasn't a complete waste, though. After I'd let her usher me out of there with a wet kiss and a goosing of my buttocks, I chased down as many of those ratty little children as I could and kicked some arse. It's true that my foe outnumbered me, but I am the hero of Arrol Pass, after all. And sometimes, when Prince Jalan Kendeth is roused to anger, it's best to flee whatever your number. If you're eight. I'd found three of the little bastards cowering in the tiny utility room where the buckets are stored, along with assorted brooms and mops. And that was the payoff, another hiding place to add to my list. Racing along the same corridor now, with Elaine and friends a corner or two behind me, I stopped dead, hauled the closet door open, and dived in. The thing with closing doors behind you is to do it quickly, but quietly. That proved a challenge whilst trying to disentangle myself from various broom handles in the dark without the teetering bucket towers crashing down around me. Seconds later, when Elaine and his heavies clattered down the corridor, the hero of Arrol Pass was crouched amongst the mops, hands clamped to mouth to stifle a sneeze. I managed to hold the sneeze back almost long enough, but no man can be in complete control of his body, and there's no stopping such things sometimes. As I told the Duchess Sansira, when she expressed her disappointment, Bash you! The footsteps, fading at the edge of hearing, stopped. What was that? Elaine's voice, distant but not distant enough. Cowards divide into two broad groups. Those paralysed by their fear, and those galvanised by it. Fortunately, I belonged to the latter group and burst out of that closet like a, well, like a lecherous prince hoping to escape a beating. I've always made a close study of windows, and the most accessible windows in the opera house were in the aforementioned communal privies, which needed them for obvious reasons. I pounded down the corridor, swerved, banked, and crashed through into the fetid gloom of the men's privy. One old gent had settled himself there with a flagon of wine, clearly feeling that breathing in the sewer stink was preferable to a seat closer to the stage. I ran straight past, climbed onto the rear throne, and tried to jam my head between the shutters. Normally they were propped ajar to offer sufficient ventilation to prevent the place exploding if one more overfed lordling passed wind. Today, like everything else since I got up, they seemed to be against me and stood firmly closed. I shook them hard. They weren't latched, and it made no sense that they wouldn't give. Fear lent strength to my arm, and when the damn things wouldn't open, I ripped out the slats before thrusting my head through. For a half-second I just stood with that cool, slightly less fetid air on my face. 
salvation. There's something almost orgasmic about getting out from under a heap of trouble, winning free and thumbing your nose at it. Tomorrow, maybe, that same trouble will be waiting around a corner for you. But today, right now, it's beaten, left in the dust. Cowards overburdened with imagination, as we are, spend most of our attention on the future, worrying what's coming next. So when that rare opportunity to live in the moment arrives, I seize it with as many hands as I've got spare. In the next half second, I realised that we were on the third floor, and the drop to the street below seemed likely to injure me more grievously than Elaine and his friends would dare to. I should perhaps puff myself up, brazen it out, and remind Elaine whose damned father's opera this was, and whose grandmother happened to be warming the throne. No part of me wanted to bank on Elaine's common sense outweighing his anger, but an ankle-breaking drop into the alley where they flushed the shit, that didn't appeal either. And then I saw her, a tattered figure in the alley, bent over some burden. A bucket? For one ridiculous moment, I thought it was another of those little boys lugging water for the tank. A pale hand lifted a brush. Moonlight glimmered on what dripped from it. Jalan Kendeth, hiding in the privies. How appropriate. Elaine de Vere, banging open the door behind me. I didn't turn my head even a fraction. If I hadn't taken care of business at the start of the intermission, I would have rapidly filled to the privy I was standing on by way of both trouser legs. The figure in the alley looked up, and one eye caught the moonbeams, glowing pearly in the darkness. My shoulder ached with the sudden memory of the masked figure I'd barged into. Conviction seized me by the throat. That had not been a man. There had been nothing human in that stare. Outside, the blind-eyed woman painted her fatal runes, and inside, amongst the lords and ladies... Hell walked with us. I would have run headfirst into a dozen Elaine de Vere's to get away from the silent sister. Hell, I'd have flattened Mary's Alice to put some space between me and that old witch. I'd have put my foot in his groin and told him to add it to the debt. I would have charged right at Elaine and his two friends, but for the memory of a fire on the Street of Nails. The walls themselves had burned. There had been nothing left but fine ash. Nobody got out, not one person. And there had been four other fires like that across the city. Four in five years. Oh, Jalan. Elaine drew the A out, making it a sing-song taunt. Jalan. He really hadn't taken having that vase broken over his head very well. I jammed myself farther through the broken shutter, wedging both shoulders into the gap and splintering more slats. Some kind of webbing stretched across my face, because right now I needed a big spider on my head. Once more the gods of fate were crapping on me from a height. I looked to the left. Black symbols cover the wall, each like some horrifying and twisted insect caught in its death throes. To the right, more of them reaching up from where the blind-eye woman had returned to her work. They seemed to have grown along the sides of the building, like vines. 
or crawled up. There was no way she could reach so high. She planted her hideous seeds as she circled the building, painting a noose of symbols, and from each one more grew and more, rising until the noose became a net. Hey! Elaine, his gloating, turning to irritation at being ignored. We've got to get out of here! I pulled free and glanced back at the three of them in the doorway, the old man clutching his wine, looking on, bemused. There's no time! Get him down from there! Elaine shook his head in disgust. The drop to the street had been knocked off the top of the list of today's most terrifying things, where it had nestled just above Elaine and friends. The writing on the wall immediately outside swept all that other stuff right off the list and into the privies. I stuck both arms through the hole I'd made and launched myself out. I made it a couple of feet and came to a splintering halt with my chest wedged into the shutter frame. Something dark and very cold stretched across my face again, feeling for all the world like a web spun by the world's toughest spider. The strands of it closed my left eye for me and resisted any further advance. Quick! Grab him! Pounding feet as Elaine led the charge. When it comes to wriggling out of things, I'm pretty good, but my current situation offered little purchase. I seized the windowsill with both hands and tried to propel myself forwards, managing an advance of a few inches, jacket ripping. The black stuff over my face pulled even harder, pressing my head back and threatening to throw me back into the room if I lessened my grip even a little. Now, nature may have gifted me a pretty decent physique, but I do try to avoid any strenuous activity, at least whilst clothed, and I'll lay no claims to any great strength. Raw terror does, however, have a startling effect on me, and I've been known to toss extraordinarily heavy items aside if they stood between me and a swift escape. Anticipating the arrival of Elaine de Vere's hand on my flailing shin occasioned just the right level of terror. It wasn't the thought of being dragged back in and given a good kicking that worried me, although it normally would. A lot. It was the idea that whilst they were kicking me, and whilst poor old Jalen was rolling about manfully taking his lumps and screaming for mercy, the silent sister would complete her noose the fire would ignite, and we'd each and every one of us burn. Whatever had stretched across my face had stopped stretching and was instead keeping me from getting any farther forwards, all its elasticity used up. It felt more like a length of wire now, cutting across my forehead and face. With my feet finding nothing to push against, I hung, one-third out, two-thirds in, thrashing helplessly and roaring all manner of threats and promises. I rather suspect Elaine and his friends might have paused to have a laugh at my expense because it took longer than I expected before someone laid a hand on me. They should have taken the matter more seriously. Flailing legs are a dangerous proposition. Fueled by desperation, I struck out and made a solid connection, booted keel to something that crunched like a nose. Someone made a noise very similar to the one Elaine had made that morning when I broke the vase over his head. The added thrust proved sufficient. The wire-like obstruction bit deeper, 
like a cold knife carving through me. Then something gave. It felt more as though it were me that gave, rather than the obstruction, as if I cracked and it ran through me. But either way I won free and tumbled out in one piece rather than two. As victories go, it proved fairly pyrrhic, my prize being the liberty to pitch out face-first with a two-story drop between me and the flagstones. When you run out screaming during a fall, you know that you've dropped way too far. Too far, and too fast in general, for there to be any reasonable prospect of you ever getting up again. Something tugged at me, though, slowing my descent a fraction, an awful ripping sound overriding my scream as I fell. Even so, I hammered into the ground with more than enough force to kill me, but for the large mound of semi-solid dung accumulated beneath the privy outlet, I hit with a splat. I staggered up, spitting out mouthfuls of filth, roared an oath, slipped, and plunged immediately back in. Derisive laughter from on high confirmed I had an audience. My second attempt left me on my back, scraping dung from my eyes. Looking up, I saw the whole side of the opera house clothed in interlocking symbols, with one exception. The window from which I tumbled lay bare, a man's face peering from the hole I'd left. Elsewhere, the black limbs of the silent sister's calligraphy bound the shutters closed, but across the broken privy shutter, not even a trace. And leading down from it, a crack running deep into the masonry, following the path of my descent. A peculiar golden light bled from the crack, flickering with shadows all along its length, illuminating both alley and building. With more speed and less haste, I found my feet and cast around for the silent sister. She'd rounded the corner, quite possibly before I fell. How far she had to go until completing her noose I couldn't see. I backed into the middle of the alley, out of the dung heap, wiping the muck from my clothes to little avail. Something snagged at my fingers, and I found myself holding what looked like black ribbon, but felt more like the writhing leg of some nightmare insect. With a cry, I tore it from me, and found the whole of one of the witch's symbols hanging from my hand, nearly reaching to the ground and twisting in a breeze that just wasn't there, as if it were somehow trying to wrap itself back around me. I flung it down in revulsion, sensing it was more filthy than anything else that coated me. A sharp retort returned my gaze to the building. As I watched, the crack spread, darting down another five yards, almost reaching the ground. The shriek that burst from me was more girlish than I would have hoped for. Without hesitation, I turned and fled. More laughter from above. I paused at the alley's end, hoping for something clever to shout back at Elaine. But any witticism that might have materialized vanished as all along the wall beside me, the symbols started to light up. Each cracked open, glowing, as if they had become fissures into some world of fire waiting for us all just beneath the surface of the stone. I realized in that instant that the silent sister had completed her work, and that Elaine, his friends, the old man with his wine, 
and every other person inside was about to burn. I swear, in that moment, I even felt sorry for the opera singers. Jump, you idiots! I shouted it over my shoulder, already running. I rounded the corner at speed and slipped, shoes still slick with muck. Sprawling across the cobbles, I saw back along the alleyway, now lit in blinding incandescence, shot through with pulsing shadow. Each symbol blazed. At the far end, one particular shadow stayed constant. The silent sister, ragged and immobile, still little more than a stain on the eye, despite the glare from the wall beside her. I gained my feet to the sound of awful screaming. The old hall rang to notes that had never before issued from any mouth within it down the long years of its history. I ran then, feet sliding and skittering beneath me, and out of the brilliance of that alleyway something gave chase. A bright and jagged line zigzagged across my trail, as if the broken pattern sought to reclaim me, to catch me, and light me up so that I too might share the fate I'd fought so hard to escape. You would think it best to save your breath for running, but I often find screaming helps. The street I had turned into from the alley ran past the back of the opera house and was well trodden even at this hour of the night, though nowhere near as crowded as Paint Street, which runs past the grand entrance and delivers patrons to the doors. My manly bellowing served to clear my path somewhat, and where townsfolk proved too slow to move, I variously sidestepped or, if they were sufficiently small or frail, flattened them. The crack emerged into the street behind me, advancing in rapid, stuttering steps, each accompanied by a sound like something expensive shattering. Turning sideways to slot between two town laws on patrol, I managed to glance back and saw the crack jag left, veering down the street away from the opera house, and in the direction I'd taken. The people in the road hardly noticed, transfixed as they were by the glow of the building beyond, its walls now wreathed in pale violet flame. The crack itself seemed more than it first appeared, being, in truth, two cracks running close together, crossing and recrossing, one bleeding a hot golden light, and the other revealing a consuming darkness that seemed to swallow what illumination fell its way. At each point where they crossed, Golden sparks boiled in the darkness, and the flagstones shattered. I barged between the town laws, the impact spinning me round, hopping on one foot to keep my balance. The crack ran under an old fellow I'd felt in my escape. More than that, it ran through him. And where the dark crossed the light, something broke. Smaller fissures spread from each crossing point, encompassing the man for a heartbeat, before he literally exploded. Red chunks of him were thrown skyward, burning as they flew, consumed with such ferocity that few made it to the ground. Whatever anyone may say about running, the main thing is to pick your feet up as quickly as possible, as if the ground has developed a great desire to hurt you, which it kind of had. I took off at a pace that would have left my dog-fleeing self of only that morning, stopping to check whether his legs were still moving. More people exploded in my wake as the crack ran through them. I vaulted a cart, which immediately detonated behind me, pieces of burning wood peppering the wall as I dived through an open window. 
I rolled to my feet inside what looked to be, and certainly smelled like, a brothel of such low class I hadn't even been aware of its existence. Shapes writhed in the gloom to one side as I pelted across the chamber, knocking over a lamp, a wicker table, a dresser, and a small man with a toupee, before pulverizing the shutters on the rear window on my way out. The room lit behind me. I crashed across the alleyway into which I'd spilled, let the opposite wall arrest my momentum, and charged off. The window I came through cracked, sill and lintel, the whole building splitting. The twin fissures, light and dark, wove their path after me, picking up still more speed. I jumped a poppy head, slumped in the alley, and raced on. From the sound of it, the fissure cured his addiction permanently a heartbeat later. Eyes forward is the second rule of running, right after the one about picking up your feet. Sometimes, though, you can't follow all the rules. Something about the crack demanded my attention, and I shot another glance back at it. Slam! At first I'd thought I'd run into a wall. Drawing breath for more screaming and more running, I pulled away, only to discover the wall was holding me. Two huge fists, one bandaged and bloody, bunched in the jacket over my chest. I looked up, then up some more, and found myself staring into Snorri Versnuggerson's pale eyes. What? He hadn't time for more words. The crack ran through us. I saw a black fracture race through the Norseman, jagged lines across his face, bleeding darkness. In the same moment, something hot and unbearably brilliant cut through me, filling me with light and stealing the world away. My vision cleared just in time to see Snorri's forehead descending. I heard a crack of an entirely different kind, my nose breaking, and the world went away again. Chapter 6 First check where my money pouch is, and pat for my locket. It's a habit I've developed. When you wake up in the kinds of places I wake up in, and in the company I often pay to keep, well, it pays to keep your coin close. The bed was harder and more lumpy than I tend to like. As hard and bumpy as cobbles, in fact. And it smelled like shit. The glorious, safe moment between being asleep and being awake was over. I rolled onto my side, clutching my nose. Either I'd not been unconscious very long, or the stink had kept even the beggars off. That, and the excitement down the road, the trail of exploded citizens, the burning opera house, the blazing crack. The crack! I staggered to my feet at that, expecting to see the jagged path leading down the alley and pointing straight at me. Nothing. At least, nothing to see by starlight and a quarter moon. Shit! My nose hurt more than seemed reasonable. I remembered fierce eyes beneath heavy brows, and then those heavy brows smacking into my face. Snorri! The Norseman was long gone. Why small charred chunks of us both weren't decorating the walls, 
I couldn't say. I remembered the way those two fissures had run side by side, crossing and recrossing, and at every junction, a detonation. The dark fracture line had run through Snorri. I had seen it across his face. The light... I patted myself down, sudden frantic hands searching for injury. The light one had run through me. Pulling up my trouser legs revealed grubby shins with no sign of golden light shining from any cracks. But the street showed no sign of the fissure either. Nothing remained but the damage it had wrought. I shook thoughts of that blinding golden light from my mind. I'd survived. The screams from the opera house returned to me. How many had died? How many of my friends? My relatives? Had Elaine's sisters been there? Pray God Mary's Alice had been. Let it be one of those nights he pretended to be a merchant and used his money to buy him into social circles far above his station. For now, though, I needed to put more distance between me and the sight of the fire. But where to go? The silent sister's magic had pursued me. Would she be waiting at the palace to finish the job? When in doubt, run. I took off again, along dark streets, lost but knowing in time that I would hit the river and gain my bearings anew. Running blind is apt to get you a broken nose, and since I had one of those already, and wasn't keen to find out what came next, I kept my pace on the sensible side of breakneck. I normally find that showing trouble my heels and putting a few miles behind me makes things a whole lot better. As I ran, though, breathing through my mouth and catching my side where a muscle kept cramping, I felt worse. And worse. A general unease grew minute by minute and hardened into a general crippling anxiety. I wondered whether this was what conscience felt like, not that any of it had been my fault. I couldn't have saved anyone even if I'd tried. I paused and leaned against a wall, catching my breath and trying to shake off whatever it was that plagued me. My heart kept fluttering behind my ribs, as if I'd started to sprint rather than come to a halt. Each part of me seemed fragile, somehow brittle. My hands looked wrong, too white, too light. I started to run again, accelerating any fatigue left behind. Spare energy boiled off my skin, rattled through me, set my teeth buzzing in their sockets, my hair seeming to float up around my head. Something was wrong with me. Broken. I couldn't slow down if I wanted to. Ahead, the street forked, starlight offering just the lines of the building that divided the way. I veered from one side of the street to the other, unsure which path to follow. Moving to the left made me feel worse, my speed increasing, sprinting, my hands almost glowing as they pumped, head aching, ready to split, bright light fracturing across my vision. Veering right restored a touch of normality. I took the right fork. Suddenly, I knew the direction. Something had been tugging at me since I picked myself up off the cobbles. Now, as if a lamp had been lit, I knew the direction of its pull. If I turned from it, 
then whatever malady afflicted me grew worse. Head towards it, and the symptoms eased. I had a direction. What the destination might be, I couldn't say. It seemed to be my day for charging headlong down the streets of Vermilion. My path now followed the gentle gradient towards the Selene, where she eased her slow passage through the city. I started to pass the markets and cargo bays behind the great warehouses that fronted the river docks. Even at this hour, men moved back and forth, hauling crates from mule-drawn trolleys, loading wagons, labouring by the mean light of lanterns to push the stuff of commerce through Vermilion's narrow veins. My path took me across a deserted marketplace, smelling of fish, and fetched me up against a wide expanse of wall, one of the city's most ancient buildings, now co-opted into service as a docks warehouse. The thing stretched a hundred yards and more, both left and right, and had no interest in either direction. Forwards! My route lay straight ahead. That's where the pull came from. A broad planked door cracked open a few yards off, and without thought I was there, yanking it wide, slipping past the bewildered menial with his hand still trying to push. A corridor ran ahead, going my way, and I gave chase. Shouts from behind as men startled into action and tried to catch me. Builder globes burned here, shedding the cold white light of the ancients. I hadn't realised quite how old the structure was. I charged on regardless, flashing past archway after archway, each opening onto builder-lit galleries, all packed with green-laden benches and walled with shelf upon shelf of many-leaved plants. When, about halfway through the width of the warehouse, a plank-built door opened, slamming out into my path, all I had time to think before blacking out was that hitting Snorriver Snuggerson had hurt more. I came back to consciousness, lying horizontal once again, and hurting in so many places that I missed out the blissful ignorance stage and went directly into the asking of stupid questions. Where am I? Nasal and hesitant. The bright but flickering light and the faint unnatural whine helped me to remember. Somewhere with builder globes... I made to sit up and found myself tied to a table. Help! A little louder. Panicked, I tested my strength against the ropes and found no given them. Help! Best save your breath. The voice came from the shadows by the door. I squinted. A thick-set ruffian leaned against the wall, looking back at me. I'm Prince Jalen. I'll have your fucking head for this. Untie these ropes. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He leaned forwards, chewing something, the flickering light gleaming on his baldness. I'm Prince Jalen. Don't you recognise me? Like I know what princes look like. I don't even know the prince's names. As far as I'm concerned, you're some toff who got juiced up and went swimming in a sewer. Just your bad luck to end up here. Horace, though, he did seem to know you from somewhere. Told me to keep you here, and off he went. Keep an eye on that one, David, he said. Keep a good watch. You must be some kind of important, or you'd be floating down the river by now with your throat cut. 
Kill me, and my grandmother will raise this quarter to the ground. A blatant lie, but spoken with conviction. It made me feel better. I'm a rich man. Let me go, and I'll see you're fixed up for life. I'll admit, I have a gift for lying. I sound least convincing when I tell the truth. Money's nice and all, the man said. He took a step away from the wall and let the flickers illuminate the brutality of his face. But if I let you go without Horace's say-so, then I wouldn't have no fingers to count it all with. And if it turned out you really were a prince and we let you go without the boss's say-so, well, me and Horace would think having our fingers taken was the easy part. He bared his teeth at me. More gaps than teeth, truth be told, and settled back into the shadow. I lay back, moaning from time to time, and asking questions that he ignored. At least the strange compulsion that had me running headlong into this mess in the first place had now faded. I still had that sense of direction, but the need to pursue it had lessened, and I felt more my old self, which in this instance meant terrified. Even in my terror, though, I noticed that the direction that nagged at me was changing, swinging round, the urge to pursue it growing more faint by the minute. I drew a deep breath and took stock of my surroundings. A smallish room, not one of those long galleries. They'd been growing plants there. That made no sense. No plants in here, though. The broken light probably meant it wasn't suitable. Just a table, and me tied to it. Why, the door juddered open and cut through my nineteenth question. Good Lord, it stinks in here. A calm and depressingly familiar voice. Stand our guest up, why don't you, and let's see if you can't sluice some of that filth off him. Men loomed to either side. Strong hands grasped the table, and the world turned through a right angle, leaving the table standing on end, and me standing too, still bound to it. A bucket of cold water took my breath and vision before I had a chance to look around. Another followed in quick succession. I stood gasping, trying to get a breath. No mean task with your nose clogged with blood and water everywhere— whilst a fragrant brown pool began to spread around my feet. Well, bless me, there seems to be a prince hidden under all this unpleasantness. A diamond in the muck, as they say, albeit a very low carrot one. I shook the wet hair from my eyes, and there he stood, Mary's Alice, dressed in his finest, as if bound for high company, and an opera, perhaps? Ah, Marys, I was hoping to see you. Had a little something to hand over towards our arrangement. I never called it my debt. Our arrangement sounded better. A little more as if it was both our problems, not just mine. You were? Just the slightest smile mocking at the corners of his mouth. He'd worn that same smile when one of his heavies snapped my index finger. The ache of it still ran through me on cold mornings when I reached for the flagon of small beer they put by my bed. It ran through that same finger now, 
secured at my side. Yes. I didn't even stutter. Had it with me at the opera. By my reckoning, the business with Snorri had bought me in the region of six months' grace, but it never hurts to sound willing. Besides, the main thing when tied to tables by criminals is to remind them how much more valuable you are to them when not tied to a table. The gold was right in my pocket. I think I must have lost it in the panic. Tragic. Marys lifted a hand, cupped his fingers, and a man came from the shadows to stand at his shoulder. A dry rustling accompanied his advance and stopped when he did. I didn't like this one at all. He looked too pleased to see me. Another fire with no survivors. Well, I didn't want to contradict Mary's. My eyes slid to the man beside him. Mary's is a slight fellow, unremarkable, the kind of little man you might find bent over the ledgers at some merchant's office, neat brown hair, eyes that are neither kind nor cruel, in fact, remarkably similar to my father in age and appearance. Mary's companion, though, he looked like the sort of man who would drown kittens recreationally. His face reminded me of the skulls in the palace catacombs. Stretch skin over one, and press in some pale staring eyes, and you'd have this man. His smile too wide, teeth too long and white. Mary's clicked his fingers, snapping my attention back to him. This is Cutter John. I was telling him as we came in just how unfortunate it is that you've seen my operation here. Uh, uh, operation? I stuttered the question out. Victory could be measured now by a lack of soiling myself. Cutter John was a name everyone knew, but not many claimed to have seen him. Cutter John came into play when Mary's wanted to hurt people more creatively. When a broken finger, amputated toe, or good beating wouldn't suffice. When Mary's wanted to stamp his authority, set his trademark upon some poor soul, Cutter John would be the man to do the work. Some called it artistry. The poppies. I didn't see any poppies. Row upon row of green things growing, here under builder lights. My uncle Hurtard, the heir apparently not, as father liked to call him, had made countless initiatives to cut the opium supply. He'd had town law out on boats patrolling God knows how many miles of the Saline, convinced it came upriver from the port of Marseille. But Mary's grew his own, right here, under Hurtard's nose, and ready to go up everyone else's. I didn't see a thing, Mary's. I ran into a door, for God's sakes, blind drug. You sobered up remarkably well. He lifted a golden vinaigrette to his nose, as if the stink of me offended him, which it probably did. In any event, it's a risk I can't run, and if we have to part company, we may as well make it a memorable event, no? He tilted his head at Cutter John. That was enough to let my bladder go. It wasn't as if anyone would notice, soaked and reeking as I was. C come now, Marys, you're joking. 
I owe you money. Who'll pay if I... if I don't pay? He needed me. Well, Jalen, the thing is, I don't think you can pay. If a man owes me a thousand crowns, he's in trouble. If he owes me a hundred thousand, then I'm in trouble. And you, Jalen, owe me eight hundred and six crowns. Less some small amount for your amusing Norseman. All of which makes you a small fish that can neither swallow me nor feed me. But I can pay. I'm the Red Queen's grandson. I'm good for the debt. One of many, Jalen. Too much of any denomination waters down the currency. I'd call Prince an overvalued commodity in Red March these days. But I'd always known Mary's Alice for a businessman, a cruel and implacable one of a certainty, but sane. Now it seemed that madness might be spiralling behind those dark little eyes. Too much blood in the water for the shark in him to lie quiet any longer. But what good would Killybee do? He couldn't ever tell anyone. My death wouldn't serve him. You died in the fire, Prince Jalen. Everyone knows that. None of my doing. And if a hint of a rumour floated behind Vermilion's conversations, a whisper that you might have died elsewhere, in even less pleasant circumstances, over a matter of death, well then, what new heights might my clients reach in their efforts not to disappoint me in the future? Might there be ladies of ill repute who would recognise Cutter's latest bracelet and spread the word as they spread their legs? He glanced towards Cutter John, who raised his right arm. Dry bands of pale gristle encircled the limb, rustling against each other, dozens of them, starting at his wrist and reaching past his elbow. What? I didn't understand what I was seeing, or perhaps some part of my brain was sensibly stopping me from understanding. Cutter John circled his own lips with one finger. The trophies along his arm whispered together as he did so. Open wide. His voice slithered as though he were something not human. You shouldn't have come here, Jalen. Mary's spoke into the silence of my horror. It's unfortunate that you can't unsee my poppies, but the world is full of misfortunes. He stepped back to stand by David at the door, the lights flickering across his face providing the only animation. A shadow smile, there and gone, there and gone. No! For the first time ever I wanted Mary's Alice not to leave, Anything was better than being abandoned to Cutter John. No, I won't talk. I won't. Not ever. I put some anger into it. Who would believe a sobbing promise of strength? I'm saying nothing. I strained at my ropes, rocking the table back against its legs. Pull my nails. I won't talk. Hot pincers won't drag it from me. 
How about cold ones? Cutter John raised the short-handled iron pincers he'd been holding all this time in his other hand. I roared at them then, thrashing, useless in the ropes. If one of Mary's men hadn't been standing on the table legs, it would have tipped forwards and I'd have gone face first into the flagstones, which, bad as it sounds, would have been far less painful than what Cutter John had in mind for me. I was still roaring and screaming, working my way rapidly towards sobbing and pleading, when a hot, wet something splattered across my face. It was enough to make me unscrew my eyes and pause my bellowing. Although I'd stopped yelling, the din was no less deafening. Only now it wasn't me screaming. I drowned out the crash of the door bursting open, too far gone in my terror to notice it. Only David stood there now, framed in the doorway. He turned as I watched, slit from collarbone to hip, spilling coils of his guts to the floor. To the left, a large figure moved at the edge of my vision. As I turned my head, the action shifted behind the table. Another scream, and a pale arm, wrapped in bracelets made from men's lips, landed on the flagstones about a foot from where David's head hit the stone, when he tripped on his intestines. And in one moment, there was silence. Not a sound, save for men shouting far down the corridor outside, echoey in the distance. David appeared to have knocked himself out or died from sudden blood loss. If Cutter John missed his arm, he wasn't complaining. I could see one more of Mary's men lying dead. The others might be dead behind me, or taking a leaf from my book and sprinting for the hills. If I hadn't been tied to the damned table, I would have been overtaking them on the way to the aforementioned hills myself. Snorri Versnuggerson stepped into view. You, he said. The hooded robe he'd been wearing when I ran into him was half torn from his shoulders. Blood splattered his chest and arms and dripped from the scarlet sword in his fist. More of the stuff ran down his face from a shallow cut on his forehead. It wouldn't be hard to mistake him for a demon risen from hell. In fact, in the flickering light, blood-clad and with battle in his eyes, it was quite hard not to. You! The eloquence Snorria demonstrated in Grandmother's throne room had wholly abandoned him. He reached for me, and I shrank back, but not far, because that fucking table was in the way. As that big hand came close, I felt a tingle on my cheekbones, my lips, forehead, like pins and needles, a kind of pressure building. He felt it too. I saw his eyes widen. The direction that had led me, the destination that had drawn me on. It was him. The same force had led Snorri here, and set him amongst Mary's men. We both recognized it now. The Norseman slowed his hand, fingers an inch or two from my neck. The skin there buzzed, almost crackling with... something? He stopped, not wanting to find out what would happen if he touched me skin to skin. The hand withdrew, returned full of knife, and before I could squeal, he set to cutting my bonds. You're coming with me. We can sort this out somewhere else. Abandoning me among loops of sliced rope, 
Snorri returned to the doorway, pausing only to stamp on someone's neck. Not Mary's, unfortunately. He ducked his head through, pulling back immediately, a quick, bobbing motion. Something hissed past the entrance. Several somethings. Crossbows. Snorri spat on Davit's corpse. I hate bowmen. A glance back at me. Grab a sword. A sword? The man clearly thought he was still in the wilds among the overly hairy folk of the north. I cast my eye across the carnage, looking behind the table. Cutter John lay sprawled, the stump of his arm barely pulsing, an ugly wound on his forehead. No sign of Mary's. I couldn't imagine how he'd escaped. None of them had any weapon more offensive than a six-inch knife. Carrying anything larger within the city walls just wasn't worth the trouble from town laws. I took the dagger and kicked Cutter John in the head a few times. It really hurt my toes, but I felt it a price worth paying. I hobbled back around the table, holding my new weapon, and earned a withering look from the Norseman. He picked up the door. Catch. I didn't quite manage it. Whilst I hopped on my good foot, clutching my face and swearing nasally, Snorri quickly hacked the legs from the table and, bearing it like a huge shield, advanced towards the corridor. Get my back. The fear of being left behind and finding myself in Mary's Alice's clutches again spurred me into action. With some effort, I picked up the door, and together we propelled our shields into the corridor before stepping between them. Crossbow bolts thudded into both immediately, iron heads splintering partway through. Which direct... Snorri was already too far away to hear me, even if he hadn't been shouting his battle cry. He'd stormed off down the corridor behind me. I followed as best I could, trying to hold the door across my back while I stumbled after him, keeping my head down, reaching over my shoulders to hold the door in place. Shouts and screams ahead indicated that Snorri had gotten to grips with his hated bowman, but by the time I got there it was all blood and pieces. The main difficulty lay in not slipping over in the gore. Several more bolts hit the boards across my back with powerful thuds, and another skipped between my ankles, letting me know that I'd left a gap. Fortunately, I had just ten yards to reach the exit. With the door scraping the floor behind me, and just the tips of my fingers exposed, I broke out into the night air. My traditional moment of triumph at escaping yet again was curtailed by a muscular arm that reached from the darkness and yanked me to one side. "'I've got a bolt,' Snorri growled. Normally, when you say someone growled something, it's just a turn of phrase, but Snorri really put something feral into his words. What? I shook my arm free, or he let it go. A mutual thing, neither of us liking the burning, needling sensation where his fingers gripped me. I've got a bolt. Of course you do. You're a Viking. Everything seemed rather surreal, Perhaps I'd been hit in the face one too many times since Elaine made a grab for me in the opera house only an hour or two earlier. Snorri shook his head. Follow! Quick! He took off into the night. 
The sounds of men approaching down the warehouse corridor convinced me to give chase. We crossed a wide space, stacked with barrels and crates, past dozens of hanging nets, the sails of riverboats poking up above the river wall beside us. By moonlight we crossed a quay and descended stone steps to the water, where a rowing boat lay tied to one of the great iron rings set into the wall. "'You've got a boat,' I said. I was a mile downstream, free and clear. Snorri tossed his sword in, stepped in after it, and picked up an oar. Something happened to me. He paused, staring for a moment into his hand, though it held only darkness. Something. I was getting sick. He sat and took both oars. I knew I had to come back, knew the direction, and then I found you. I stood on the step. The silent sister's magic had done this. I knew it. The crack had run through us, the light through me, the dark through him. And as Snorri and I separated, some arcane force tried to rejoin those two lines, the dark and the light. We had drawn away from each other, the river carrying Snorri west, and those hidden fissures started to open again, started to tear us both apart, just so they could be free to run together once more. I remembered what happened when they joined. It wasn't pretty. Don't stand there like an idiot. Loose the rope and get in. I... The rowing boat moved as the current tried to wrest it from its mooring. It doesn't look very stable. I've always viewed boats as a thin plank between me and drowning. As a sensible fellow, I'd never entrusted my safety to one before, and close up they looked even more dangerous. The dark river slurped at the oars, as if hungry. Snorri nodded up at the steps, up towards the gap in the river wall they led to. In a moment, a man with a crossbow will stand there and convince you that waiting was a mistake. I hopped in sharp enough at that. Snorri deploying his weight to stop me turning the boat over before I managed to sit down. The rope? he asked. Shouts rang out above us, drawing closer. I pulled my knife, slashed the rope, nearly lost the knife in the river, tried again, and finally sawed at the strands until at last they gave and we were off. The current took us, and the wall vanished into the gloom, along with all sight of land. Chapter 7 Are you going to be sick again? Has the river stopped flowing? I asked. Snorri snorted. Then yes. I demonstrated, adding another streak of colour into the dark waters of the Selene. If God had intended men to go on water, he would have given them... I felt too ill for wit and hung limp over the side of the boat, scowling at the grey dawn coming up behind us. Give him them whatever it is you need for that kind of thing. A messiah who walked on water to show you all it was exactly where God intended men to go. Snorri shook that big chiselled head of his. My people have older learning than the white Christ brought. 
Aegir owns the sea, and he doesn't intend that we go on to it, but we do even so. He rumbled through a bar of a song. Andreth we, battle-born, raise hammer, raise axe, but the war shout God's tremble. He rode on, humming his tuneless tunes. My nose hurt like buggery. I felt cold, most of me ached, and when I did manage to sniff through my twice-broken snout, I could tell that I still smelled only slightly less bad than that dung heap that saved my life. Why? I fell silent. My pronunciation sounded comical. My nose would have come out by doze, and although I had every right to complain, it might rile the Norseman, and it doesn't pay to rile the kind of man who can jump on a bear to escape a fight pit, especially if it was you who put him in that pit in the first place. As my father would say, to err is human, to forgive is divine, but I'm only a cardinal, and cardinals are human, so rather than forgiving you, I'm going to err towards beating you with this stick. Snorri didn't look the forgiving kind either. I settled for another groan. What? He looked up from his rowing. I remembered the remarkable number of bodies he left in his wake coming in and out of Mary's poppy farm to get me. All with his weapon hand, badly injured. Nothing! We rode on through the garden lands of Redmarch. Well, Snorri rode on, and I lay moaning. In truth, he mostly steered us, and the Selene did the rest. Where his right hand clutched the oar, he left it blood-stained. Scenery passed, green and monotonous, and I slumped over the side, muttering complaints and vomiting sporadically. I also wondered about how I'd moved from waking beside the naked delights of Lisa de Vere to sharing a shitty rowing boat with a huge Norse maniac all in the space between two dawns. Will we have trouble? Huh? I looked up from my misery. Snorri tilted his head downstream to where several rickety wooden keys reached out into the river, a number of fishing boats tied up at them. Men moved here and there along the shore, checking fish traps, mending nets. Why should... I remember that Snorri was very far from home, in lands he had probably only glimpsed from the back of a slave wagon. No, I said. He grunted and set an oar to angle us into deeper water, where the current ran fastest. Perhaps in the fjords of the frozen north any passing stranger was game, and you became a stranger ten yards from your doorstep. Redmarch enjoyed ways a touch more civilised, due in no small part to the fact that my grandmother would have anyone who broke the bigger laws nailed to a tree. We carried on past various nameless hamlets and small towns that probably had names, but held too few distractions ever to make me care what those names were. Occasionally, a field hand would rest fingers on hoe, chin on knuckles, and watch us pass with the same vacancy that the cows used. Urchins chased us from time to time, 
following along the banks for a hundred yards, some throwing stones, others bearing their grimy arses in mock threat. Washerwomen splatting husbands' second smocks against flat stones would raise their heads and hoot appreciatively at the Norseman as he flexed his arms against the oars. And finally, on a lonely stretch of river where the Selene explored her flood plain, with the sun hot and high, Snorri deflected us beneath the broad fringe of a great willow. The tree leaned out across lazy waters at the extreme of a long meander, and encompassed us beneath its canopy. So, he said, and the prow bumped up against the willow trunk. The hilt of his sword slipped from the bench and clunked on the planks, blade dark with dried blood. Look, about the fight pits, I... Much of the morning of my maiden voyage had been spent planning the smooth denials that now refused to stutter from my tongue. In between the vomiting and the complaining, I'd been rehearsing my lies, but under the focused gaze of a man who appeared to be more than ready to slaughter his way through any situation, I ran out of the spit required for falsehoods. For a moment, I saw him staring up at Mary's from the pit floor, Bring a bigger bear? I remember the smile he had on him. A snort of laughter broke out of me, and fuck, yes, it hurt. Who even says that kind of thing? Snorri grinned. The first one was too small. And the last one was just right. I shook my head, trying not to laugh again. You beat Goldilocks to the punchline by one bear. He frowned at that. Goldilocks? Never mind, never mind. I'd cut a jod. I sucked in a huge breath and surrendered to the joy of the memory of escaping that goggle-eyed demon and his knives. The mirth bubbled out of me. I doubled up, gasping with hysterical laughter, beating the side of the boat to stop myself. Ah, oh, Jesus! You took the bastard's arm off! Snorri shrugged, holding back another grin. Must have gotten in my way. Once your Red Queen changed her mind about letting me go, she put her city at war with me. The Red Queen... I caught myself. I'd said it was the Queen's order that he be sent to the pits. He had no reason not to believe me. Remembering the anchor points of any web of lies is part of the basics when practising to deceive. Normally, I'm world-class at it. I blamed my failure on extenuating circumstances. I had, after all, escaped from Elaine de Vere's frying pan into the fire of the opera, only to plunge from that into something even worse. Yes, that was harsh of her, but my grandmother is known as somewhat of a tyrant. Your grandmother? Snorri raised his eyebrows. Um, shit. He hadn't even noticed me in the throne room, and now he knew me for a prince, a prize hostage. I'm a very distant grandson. Hardly related at all, really. <laughs> I raised a hand to my nose. All that laughing had left it pulsing with hurt. Take a breath. Snorri leaned forwards. What? 
He snaked out an arm, catching my head from behind, fingers like iron rods. For a second I thought he was just going to crush my skull, but then his other hand blocked my view and the world exploded in white agony. Pinching the bridge of my nose with finger and thumb, he pulled and twisted. Something grated, and if I'd had anything left to vomit, I'd have filled the boat with it. There. He released me. Fixed? I hollered out the pain and surprise in one burst, trailing into coherence at the end of it. Jesus, fuck me with a cross! The words came out clear, the nasal twang gone. I couldn't bring myself to say thank you, though, so I said, Ouch! Snorri leaned back, arms resting on the sides of the boat. You were in the throne room then. You must have heard the tale we prisoners were brought in to tell. Well, yes. Certainly bits of it. So, you'll know where I'm headed, then, Snorri said. South? I ventured. He looked puzzled at that. I'd be more at ease going by sea, but that may be hard to arrange. It might be I need to trek north through Rhone and Renar and Ancrath and Connacht. Well, of course. I had no idea what he was talking about. If there had been a word of truth in his story, he wouldn't want to go back. And his itinerary sounded like the trek from hell. Rhone our uncouth neighbour to the north, was always a place best avoided. I'd yet to meet a Ronish man I'd piss on if he were on fire. Renar I'd never heard of. Ancrath was a murky kingdom on the edge of a swamp and full of murderous inbreds, and Connaught lay so far away there was bound to be something wrong with it. I wish you luck on the journey, Snaggerson, wherever you're bound. I held my hand out for a manly clasping, a prelude to a parting of our ways. I'm going north, home to rescue my wife, my family. He paused for a moment, pressing his lips tight, then shook off the emotion. And it went poorly the first time I left you behind, Snorri said. He eyed my outstretched hand with a measure of suspicion and extended his own cautiously. You didn't feel that just now. He touched his own nose with his other hand. Course I bloody felt it. It was quite possibly the most painful thing I'd ever experienced, and that from someone who learned the hard way not to jump into the saddle from a bedroom window. He brought his hand closer to mine, and a pressure built against my skin, all pins and needles and fire. Closer still, and more slow, and my hand started to pale, almost to glow from within, while his darkened. With an inch between our extended palms, it seemed that a cold fire ran through my veins, my hand brighter than the day, his looking as if it had been dipped in dark waters, stained with blackest ink that collected in every crease and filled each pore. His veins ran black, while mine burned, Darkness bled from his skin like mist. A wisp of pale flame ghosted across my knuckles. Snorri met my gaze. His teeth gritted against a pane that mirrored mine. Eyes that had been blue, 
were now holes into some inner night. I gave one of those yelps that I always hope will go unnoticed and whipped my hand away. Damnation! I shook it, trying to shake the pain out, and watched as it shaded back to normality. That bloody witch! Point taken! We won't shake on it! I gestured to a gravel beach on the outer edge of the meander. You can drop me off there. I'll find my own way back. Snorri shook his head, eyes returning to blue. It was worse when we got too far apart. Didn't you notice? I was rather distracted, I said. But yes, I do recall some problems. What witch? What? You said... Bloody witch. What witch? Oh, nothing. I... I remembered the fight pits. Lying to the man on this point would probably be a mistake. I was lying out of habit in any case. Better to tell him. It might be that his heathen ways could lead to some kind of solution. You met her? Well, you saw her in the Red Queen's throne room. The old Folver? Snorri asked. The old what? That crone at the Red Queen's side. She's the witch you're talking about? Yes. The silent sister, everyone calls her. Most don't see her, though. Snorri spat into the water. The current took it away in a series of lazy swirls. I know this name. The Silent Sister. The Volvers of the North speak it, but not loudly. Well, now you've seen her. I still wondered at that. Perhaps the fact that we could both see her had something to do with her magic failing to destroy us. She set a spell that was to kill everyone at the opera I went to last night. Opera? he asked. Better not to know. In any event, I escaped the spell, but when I forced my way through, something broke. A crack ran after me. Two cracks, interwoven, one dark, one light. When you grabbed hold of me, the crack caught up and ran through both of us and somehow stopped. And when we separate? The dark fissure ran through you, the light through me. When we pull them apart, it seems the cracks try to tear free, to rejoin. And when they join? Snorri asked. I shrugged. It's bad. Worse than opera. However nonchalant my words might be, though, and despite the heat of the day, my blood ran colder than the river. Snorri set his jaw in that way I'd come to recognise as consideration. His hands quietly strangled the oars. So, your grandmother sentences me to the fight pit, and then you bring down her witch's curse on me? I didn't seek you out. The nonchalance I'd been striving for wouldn't come from a dry mouth. You stopped me dead in the street, remember? I regretted using the word dead immediately. You're a man of honour, he said to no one in particular. I looked for the smirk and found nothing but sincerity.
If he was acting, then I needed lessons from the same place he'd gotten his. I concluded that he was reminding himself of his duties, which seemed odd in a Viking, whose duties traditionally extend to remembering to pillage before raping, or the other way round. You're a man of honour. Louder this time, looking right at me. Where the hell he got that idea? I had no notion. Yes, I lied. We should settle this like men. Absolutely the last words I wanted to hear. Here's the thing, Snorri. I eyed the various escape options open to me. I could jump overboard. Unfortunately, I'd always viewed boats as a thin plank between me and drowning, and swimming as the same again, but without the plank. The tree offered the next best option, but willow fronds aren't climbing material, unless you happen to be a squirrel. I selected the last option. What's that over there? I pointed to a spot on the riverbank behind the Norseman. He didn't so much as turn his head. Shit. Ah, uh, my mistake. And that was me, out of options. As I was saying, the thing is... The thing... Well, honestly... The thing had to be something. Um... I'm afraid that when I kill you, the crack will run out of you just the same as it would if we got too far apart. And then, boom, a split second later, I'd be too far apart. So, tempting as it is to pit my princely fighting skills against those of a... What is your rank? I never found out. Halder. I own my land, ten acres from Ulisk shore to the ridgetop. So much as it tempts me to break with societal rules and pit the arm of a prince of Red March against a... a... Halder, I'm concerned that I wouldn't survive your death. And from his frown I could see that it might be a risk he was willing to take if no better alternative were on offer. So, to forestall him, I added, But as it happens, I've always had a hankering to visit the North myself and see firsthand just how reaving is done. And besides, my grandmother worries so about these dead ghostmen of yours. It would put her heart at ease to have the business sorted out, so I'd best come with you. I mean to travel fast. Snorri's frown deepened. I've left it too long already, and the distance is great. And be warned, it will be a bloody business when I get there. Slow me down, and... But you were moving pretty quickly when you crashed into me. His brows smoothed, thunderclouds clearing, and that smile lit him up, half wild, half friendly, and all dangerous. Besides, you'll know more about the terrain than me. Tell me about the men of Rhone. And just like that, we were travelling companions. I'd bound myself to his quest for rescue and vengeance in some distant land. Hopefully it wouldn't take too long. Snorri could save his family, then slaughter his enemies to the last man, necromancer and corpse monster, and that would be that. I'm good at self-deception, but I couldn't manage to make the plan sound anything like other than a suicidal nightmare. Still, 
The icy north was a long way off, plenty of opportunity to break the spell that bound us together and run away home. Snorri took up the oars again, paused, then stand a moment. Really? He nodded. I've good balance on a horse, and none at all on water. Even so, not wanting to fall out with the man within moments of our new understanding, I got to my feet, arms out to steady myself. He tipped the boat, a sharp, deliberate move, and I pitched into the river, grasping desperately at willow twigs as a man about to drown will clutch at straws. Above the splashing, I could hear Snorri having a good old laugh to himself. He was saying something, too. Clean. Together. But I could only catch the odd word since drowning is a noisy business. Eventually, when I'd given up trying to save myself by swallowing all the water and had slipped below the surface for the third and final time, he snagged my waistcoat and hauled me back in with distressing ease. I lay in the bottom, flopping about like a fish, and retching up enough of the river almost to swamp the boat. Bastard! My first coherent word before I remembered quite how big and murderous he was. I couldn't have you come to the north smelling like that. Snorri laughed, and steered back out into the current, the willow trailing its fingers over us in regret. And how can a man not know how to swim? Madness! Chapter 8 The river took us to the sea, a journey of two days. We slept by the banks, far enough back to escape the worst of the mosquitoes. Snorri laughed at my complaints. In the northern summer the biters are so thick in the air they cast a shadow. Probably why you're all so pale, I said. No tan and blood loss. I found sleep elusive. The hard ground didn't help, nor did the itchiness of anything I used to soften it. The whole business reminded me of the misery that had been the Scorin campaign two summers earlier. It's true, I wasn't there more than three weeks before returning to be fettered as the hero of Aral Pass and to nurse my bad leg, strained in combat, or at least in inadvertently sprinting away from one combat to another. In any event, I lay on the too hard and too scratchy ground looking at the stars, with the river whispering in the dark and the bushes alive with things that chirruped and rustled and creaked. I thought then of Lisa de Vere and suspected that few nights would pass between now and my return to the palace when I wouldn't find occasion to ask myself how I ended up in such straits. And in the smallest hours of the night, feeling deeply sorry for myself, I even found time to wonder again if Lisa and her sisters might have survived the opera. Perhaps Elaine had convinced his father to keep them home as punishment for the company they'd been keeping. Why don't you sleep, Red March? Snorri spoke from the darkness. We're in, Red March, Norseman. It only makes sense to call someone by their place of origin when you're a long way from it. We've been through this. And the sleeping? Women on my mind. Ah. Enough silence that I thought he'd dropped off. Then, one in particular. Mostly 
all of them, and their absence from this river bank. Better to think of one, he said. For the longest time I watched the stars. People say they spin, but I couldn't see it. Why are you awake? My hand pains me. A scratch like that? And you, a great big Viking? We're made of meat just like other men. This needs cleaning, stitching. Done right, and I'll keep the arm. We leave the boat when the river widens, then skirt the coast. I'll find someone in Rhone. He knew there would be a port at the mouth of the river, but if the Red Queen had marked him for death, then it would be madness to go there seeking treatment. The fact that Grandmother had ordered his release and that the port of Marseille was a renowned centre of medicine, with a school that had produced the region's finest doctors for close on three hundred years, I kept to myself. Telling him would unravel my lies and paint me as the architect of his fate. I didn't feel good about it, but better than I would if he decided to trim me with his sword. I returned to my imaginings of Lisa and her sisters, but in the deepest part of the night it was that fire that lit my dreams, colouring them violet, and I saw through the flames, not the agonies of the dying, but two inhuman eyes in the dark slit of a mask. Somehow I'd broken the silent sister's spell, escaped the inferno, and borne away part of the magic. But what else might have escaped, and where might it be now? Suddenly, each noise in the dark was the slow step of that monster, sniffing me out in the blind night, and, despite the heat, my sweat lay cold upon me. Morning struck with the promise of a blazing summer's day, more of a threat than a promise. When you watch from a shaded veranda, sipping iced wine as the red March summer paints lemons onto garden boughs, that's promise. When you have to toil a whole day in the dust to cover a thumb's distance on the map, that's threat. Snorri scowled at the east, breaking his fast on the last stale remains of the bread he'd stolen in the city. He said little and ate left-handed, his right swelling and red, the skin blistering like that on his shoulders, but not burned by the sun. The river held a brackish air, its banks parting company and surrendering to mud flats. We stood by our boat, the water now fifty yards off, sucked back by tidal flow. Marseille! I pointed to a haze on the horizon, a smear of darkness against the wrinkled blue where the distant sea crowded beneath the sky. Big! Snorri shook his head. He went to the rowing boat and made a slight bow, muttering. Some damn heathen prayer, no doubt, as if the thing needed thanking for not drowning us. Finished at last, he turned and gestured for me to lead the way. Rowan! and by swift roads. They'd be swifter if we had horses. Snorri snorted, as if offended by the idea, and waited. And waited some more. Oh, I said, and led off, 
though in truth my expertise ended with the knowledge that Rhone lay north and a little west. I had the least clue about local roads. In fact, past Marseille, I would struggle to name any of the region's major towns. No doubt Cousin Sarah could reel them off pat, her breasts defying gravity all the while, and Cousin Rotas could probably bore a librarian to death with the populace, produce, and politics of each settlement down to the last hamlet. My attentions, however, had always been focused closer to home and on less worthy pursuits. We left the broad strip of cultivated floodplain and climbed by a series of ridges into drier country. Snorri ran with sweat by the time the land levelled out. He seemed to be struggling. Perhaps a fever from his wound had its hooks in him. It didn't take long for the sun to become a burden. After a mile or three of trekking through stony valleys and rough scrub, and with my feet already sore, my boots already too tight, I returned to the subject of horses. You know what would be good? Horses. That's what. Norsemen sail. We don't ride. Snorri looked embarrassed, or perhaps it was the sunburn. Don't or can't? He shrugged. How hard can it be? You hold the reins and go forwards. If you find us horses, we'll ride. His expression darkened. I need to be back there. I'll sleep in the saddle if a horse will get me north before Sven broke or finishes his work in the bitter ice. It occurred to me then that the Norseman truly hoped his family might yet survive. He thought this a rescue mission rather than just some matter of revenge. That made it even worse. Revenge is a business of calculation, best served cold. Rescue holds more of sacrifice, suicidal danger, and all manner of other madness that should have me running in the opposite direction. It made breaking whatever spell bound us an even higher priority. By the look of his hand, which seemed worse from one hour to the next, with the infection spread now marked by a darkening of the veins, any spell-breaking would need to be done soon. Otherwise he might die on me, and then my dire predictions concerning the consequence for one of us if the other expired might soon be put to the test. I'd made the claim as a lie, but it had felt true when I spoke it. We trudged on through the heat of the day, forcing a path through a dry and airless conifer forest. Hours later, the trees released us, scratched and sticky with both sap and sweat. As luck would have it, we spilled from the forest's margins directly onto a broad track, punctuated with remnants of ancient paving. Good. Snorri nodded, clearing the side ditch with one stride. I'd thought you lost back there. Lost? I feigned hurt. Every prince should know his realm like the back of... of... A glimpsed memory of Lisa de Vere's back came to me, the pattern of freckles, the knobs of her spine casting shadows in lamplight as she bent to some sweet task. Of something familiar? 
The road wound up to a plateau where innumerable springs chuckled from the eastern hills along stony beds, and the land returned to cultivation. Olive groves, tobacco, cornfields. Here and there, a lone farmhouse or collection of stone huts, slate-roofed and huddled together for protection. Our first encounter was an elderly man driving a still more venerable donkey ahead of him with flicks of his switch. Two huge panniers of what looked to be sticks almost engulfed the beast. Horse? Snorri muttered the suggestion as we approached. Please. It's got four legs. That's better than two. We'll find something more sturdy. Not some plough horse either. Something fitting. And fast, said Snorri. The donkey ignored us, and the old fellow paid scarcely more attention as if he encountered giant vikings and ragged princes every day. Aye, and he was passed. Snorri pursed his blistered lips and walked on until a hundred yards farther down the road something stopped him in his tracks. That, he said, looking down, is the biggest pile of dung I've seen in my life. Oh, I don't know, I said. I've seen bigger. In fact, I'd fallen in bigger, but as this appeared to have dropped from the behind of a single beast, I had to agree that it was pretty damned impressive. You could have heaped a score of dinner plates with it, if one were so inclined. It's big, but I have seen the like before. In fact, it's quite possible that we'll soon have something in common. Yes? It's quite possible, my friend, that we'll both have had our lives saved by a big pile of shit. I turned towards the retreating old man. Hey! I hollered down the road at his back. Where's the circus? The ancient didn't pause, but simply extended a bony arm towards an olive-studded ridge to the south. Circus? Snorri asked, still transfixed by the dung pile. You're about to see an elephant, my friend. And this effluent will cure my poisoned hand? He held the offending article up for inspection, wincing as he did so. Best place to get wounds seen to outside a battle hospital. These people juggle axes and burning brands. They swing from trapezes and walk on ropes. There's not a circus in the broken empire that doesn't have half a dozen people who can stitch wounds. And with luck an herbman for other ailments. A sidetrack turned from the road a quarter of a mile on and led towards the ridge. It bore evidence of recent traffic, and large traffic at that, the hard-baked ground scarred by wheel ruts, the overhanging trees sporting fresh broken branches. On cresting the ridge, we could see an encampment ahead, three large circles of wagons, a scattering of tents. Not a circus set up to entertain, but one on the move and enjoying a rest stop. A dry stone wall enclosed the field where the travellers had camped. Such walls were common in the region, being as much a place to put the ubiquitous chunks of rock that the soil yielded as they were a means of containing livestock or marking boundaries. A sour-looking, grey-haired dwarf sat guarding the three-barred gate at the field's entrance. We already got a strong man, 
He eyed Snorri with a short-sighted squint and spat an impressive amount of phlegm into the dust. The dwarf was the kind that resemble common men in the size of their head and hands, but whose torsos have been concertinaed into too small a space, their legs left thin and bandy. He sat on the wall cleaning his fingernails with a knife, and his expression announced him more than happy to stick strangers with it. Come now, you'll offend Sally, I remonstrated. If you've already got a bearded lady, I can scarce believe she's as comely as this young wench. That got the dwarf's attention. Well, hello, Sally. Gretchen Marlinke at your service. I could feel Snorri looming behind me in the way that suggested my head might get twisted off in short order. The little fellow jumped from the wall, leering up at Snorri, and unhitched the gate. In you go. Blue tent inside the circle on the left. Ask for taproot. I led on in, thankful that Grecho was too short to pinch Snorri's backside, or we might be owing this taproot for a new midget. Sally, the Norseman rumbled behind me. Work with me, I said. No. Most of the circus folk were probably sleeping out the noon heat, but a fair number worked at assorted tasks around the wagons. Repairs to wheels and tack, tending animals, stitching canvas, a pretty girl practicing a pirouette, a heavily pregnant woman tattooing the back of a shirtless man, the inevitable juggler throwing things up and catching them. Utter waste of time. I nodded at the juggler. I love jugglers. Snorri's grin showed white teeth in the cropped blackness of his beard. God, you're probably the sort that likes clowns. The grin broadened, as if the mere mention of clowns were hilarious. I hung my head. Come on. We passed a stone-walled well beyond which, away down the slope, a scattering of headstones stood. Clearly generations had used this place to pause their travels, and some had never left. The blue tent, though faded almost to grey, proved easy to spot. Larger and cleaner and taller than the rest, it stood centrally and sported a battered painted sign outside on two posts. Dr. Taproot's famous circus, lions, tigers, which was scratched out. Bears, oh my, by appointment to the Imperial Court of Vian. Since knocking is difficult with tents, I leaned in towards the entrance flap and coughed. Couldn't just paint some stripes on the lion? Well, no, but could wash them off again before that. No, it's been a while since I last gave a line a bath, but... My second, more theatrical cough caught their attention. Come! And so I ducked. Snorri ducked lower, and we went in. It took a moment for my eyes to adjust to the blue gloom within the tent. Dr. Taproot I judged to be the skinny figure seated behind a desk, and the more substantial form leaning over at him, hands planted firmly on the papers between them, must be the fellow objecting to bathing lions. Ah, said the seated figure, Prince Jalen Kendeth and Snorri Versnogerson. Welcome to my abode. Welcome. How the hell... 
I caught myself. It was good that he knew me. I'd been wondering how to convince anyone that I was a prince. Oh, I'm Dr. Taproot. I know everything, my prince. Watch me. Snorri passed me and snagged an empty chair. Words get around, especially about princes. He seemed less impressed than I was. Watch me. Taproot nodded, bird-like, a sharp-featured head on a thin neck. Message riders on the lexicon road carry gossip along with their sealed scrolls. And what a story! Did you truly jump an arctic bear, Mr. Snuggerson? Do you think you could jump one of ours? The pay is good. Oh, but you've injured your hand. A hook knife, I hear. Watch me. Taproot's chatter came so rapid and moved so fast that without your full attention the flow of it would hypnotise you. Yes, the hand. I latched onto that. Have you a chirurgeon? We're light on funds. Snorri scowled at that. But I'm good for credit. The royal coffers underwrite my purse. Dr. Taproot offered a knowing smile. Your debts are the stuff of legend, my prince. He raised his hands as if trying to frame the enormity of them. But fear not, I'm a civilised man. We of the circus do not let a wounded traveller go unattended. I shall have our sweet Varga see to the matter presently. A drink, perhaps. He reached for the desk drawer. You may go, Waldecker. He shooed away the scar-faced man who had stood in silent disapproval through our conversation. Stripes, watch me. Good ones. Sarah has black paint. See Sarah. Returning his attention to me, he fished out a dark glass bottle, small enough for poison. I have a little rum. Ancient stuff from the wreck of the Hunter Moon, dredged up by scallop men off the Andorran coast. Try it. He magicked three tiny silver cups into being. I'm always one to sit and chat. It's my burden. Watch me. Gossip runs through my veins, and I must feed the habit. Tell me, my prince, is your grandmother well? How's her heart? Well, she's got one, I suppose. I didn't like the man's impertinence, and his rum smelled like the stuff the herbmen rub on chilblains. Now that I had a chair under my arse and a tent about me, and my name and station recognised, I began to feel a little more my old self. I sipped his rum and damned him for it. Don't know anything about its ticking, though. The idea of my grandmother suffering any frailties of the flesh seemed alien to me. She'd been carved from bedrock and would outlast us all. That was how father had it. And your elder brothers. Martus, isn't it? And Darren. Martus must be coming up to twenty-seven now. Yes, in two weeks. Um, damned if I knew their birthdays. They're well... Martus misses the cavalry, of course, but at least he's got a damn chance at it. Of course, of course. Taproot's hands were never still, plucking at the air as if snatching scraps of information from it. And your great uncle? He was never a well man. Garius. Nobody knew about the old man. I didn't even know he was a relative for the first few years after I took to visiting him in the tower where they kept him. I climbed in through the window, so nobody saw me come and go. It was great Uncle Garius who gave me mother's picture in a locket. I must have been about five or six, yes, not long after the silent sister touched me. The blind-eye woman, I called her back then gave me a lepsy, 
fits and shakes for a month. I found old Garius by accident when I was small, clambered in before I noticed the room wasn't empty. He scared me, hunched on his sickbed, twisted in ways a man shouldn't twist. Not evil, but wrong. I feared catching it. That's the honest truth. And he knew it. Good at knowing a man's mind was Garius. And a boy's. I was born this way, he had said. Not unkindly, though I had stared at him as if he were a sin. His skull bulged as if overfilled, misshapen like a potato. He lay propped up in his bed, a jug and goblet on the table close at hand, lit by dusty sunlight. No one came to him in this high tower, just a nurse to clean him, and sometimes a small boy clambering through the window. Born broken. Each sentence gasped between breaths. I had a twin, and when we were birthed, they had to break us apart. A boy and a girl, the first joined twins that weren't both boys or both girls, they say. They broke us apart, but we didn't break even, and I got this. He lifted a twisted arm, as if doing so were a labour of Hercules. He had reached out from his sheets, a grave shroud, that was what those sheets made me think. He had reached out and had given me that locket, a cheap enough thing, but with my mother's picture inside, so fine and real you'd swear she was looking right at you. Garius, Taproot agreed, breaking a silence I'd not noticed. I shook off the memory. He's well enough. None of your damn business, I wanted to say, but when you're far from home and poorer than church mice, it pays to curb your pride. Garius was the only one of them I had time for, really. He couldn't leave his room, not unless someone carried him. So I visited. Possibly it was the only duty I'd ever kept. Well enough. Good, good. Taproot wrung his hands, squeezing out his approval, a pale wrestling of two long fingers. And Holder Snoggerson, how stands the north? Cold and too far away. Snorri set down his empty cup, licking his teeth. And the Uliskin, still fair? Red goats for milk on the scrah slopes? Black wool on the Niffler ridges? Snorri narrowed his eyes at the circus master, perhaps wondering if the man was reading his mind. Have you been to the Uliskind? The Underith would remember a circus, and yet I'd never heard of an effluent before today. And that reminds me, I must see this beast. Taproot smiled, narrow, even teeth behind thin lips. He uncorked the rum again, moving to replenish our cups. My apologies, but you can see how it is with me. I pry, I question, I devour travellers' tales. I store each snippet of information. He tapped his forehead. Here, watch me. Snorri took the little cup before him in his good hand. Aye, red goats on the scra, black on the niffler. Though none to tend them, most like. 
the black ships came. Dead things from the drowned isles. Sven Brokor brought his doom upon us. Ah! Taproot nodded, steepled his fingers, pursed his lips. He of the Hargasa. Hard man. Not a good one, I fear. Pale hands shaped his opinion. Perhaps the goats, the red and the black, have new herders now, boys of the Hardassa. Snorri drank off his rum. He set his poisoned hand upon the table, the knife wound a livid and weeping slot between the tendons. Mend me, and you'll have to change that tale, circus master. Of a certainty. A quick smile lit Taproot's face. Kill or cure, that's our motto. Watch me. His hands moved around the Norsemans, never touching, but framing it, following the line of the incision. Go to Varga's wagon, the smallest, with a red circle upon the side, in the grouping close to the gate. Varga can clean a wound, pack it, stitch it. Best poultices you ever saw, watch me. Even a sour wound may yield to them. Snorri stood, and I rose to go with him. It had become a habit. You might stay, Prince Jallan. Taproot did not look up, but something in his tone kept me there. I'll find you later, I told Snorri. Save you the shame of weeping before me when this Varga sets to his work. And watch out for that effulent. They're green and like the taste of Vikings. Snorri answered with a snort and ducked out into the blinding brightness of the day. A fierce man, watch me. Taproot eyed the tent flap, swaying in Snorri's wake. Tell me, Prince, how is it that you travel together? I didn't imagine you was one for the hardships of the road. How is it that the Norseman hasn't killed you for the pits, or that you haven't fled for your home comforts? I'll have you know I learned a sight more about hardship in the Scoran Heights than... Something in the slow regret with which Taproot shook his head took the bluster from my sails. I feared if I mentioned my heroism at the Aral Pass, you might laugh at me. That's the trouble with men who know too much. A sigh escaped me. In truth, we're bound by some enchantment, a damned inconvenient one. You wouldn't happen to have a, a mind-sworn wizard, a hidden hand that might separate you? Watch me. If I had such, this circus would be a gold mine and me the richest of all rich men. I had expected him to laugh at my claims of enchantment, so to be taken seriously was a relief, though hearing how hard it might prove to be to undo the magic was less pleasing. Taproot finished his drink and put the little bottle back in the drawer. Speaking of rich men, you care to know about the one Mary's Alice? You know... Of course he knew. Taproot knew of the Red Queen's secret brother, too broken for the throne. He knew about goats chewing on the slopes of distant fjords. He would hardly not know of Vermilion's greatest crime lord. Watch me. Taproot laid a slim finger along his slim nose. Mary's has secrets that even I don't know, and he is not best pleased with you. Perhaps a journey north would be good for my health in any case, then, I said. True enough and Taproot waved me out, fluttering his hands as if I were a tumbler come to beg more sawdust for the centre ring, and not a prince of Red March. I let him do it too, 
for when a man who knows too much knows not to waste his manners on you, it's best to be moving on. Chapter 9 The pregnant woman, done for the moment with her tattooing, led me to Varga's wagon. She waddled ahead of me, looking fit to pop at each step, though she said her time lay weeks ahead. Daisy, she told me. Her name, or perhaps that was what she planned to call the whelp if it proved female. I hadn't been listening too hard. We'd passed a wagon where a woman in tight silks sat with her ankles crossed behind her head, and my attention had wandered. Daisy, a fine name for a cow. I spotted the elephant, corralled by a fence that it could swat aside, tethered to a thick post by a length of chain. A number of circus men, showing off lean and muscular bodies, lounged around a bar made of two barrels and a plank, watching the elephant and whatever else might pass. Behind them, a well-laden beer wagon provided shade. Circuses always came amply provisioned with ale for the audience. I guessed it must be easier to impress a drunken crowd. Further on, we passed a shabby tent stitched with moon and stars, symbols of the horoscope dotted amongst the faded heavens. An ancient sat outside on a three-legged stool, snaggle-toothed and liver-spotted. Cross my palm, stranger. I couldn't tell if the creature was man or woman. Don't humour her. Daisy increased the speed of her waddle. Cracked, that one is. Everything's doom and gloom. Drives the punters away. Your quarry, the old woman called after us, then coughed as if a lung had burst. Quarry! I couldn't tell which of us she aimed the words at. Save it for the peasants, I called back. But it left a chill. Always does. I expect that's why prophecy sells. She walked on until the hacking cough faded behind us. I laughed, but in truth I had felt hunted since we left the city. Though by what, I couldn't say. More than the silent sister, more than Mary's terrors even. It was the eyes behind that enamel mask that watched me from my quiet moments. Just a glimpse of the opera, just a glancing encounter, and yet it haunted me. Varga, Daisy pointed at a wagon much as Taproot described. She drew in a deep sigh and started to waddle off back the way we'd come. I offered no thanks, distracted now by the small crowd of scantily clad young women clustered around the open end of Varga's wagon. Dancers, by the litheness of them and the snatches of silk they wore. Ladies, I approached, flashing them my best smile. It seemed, however, that a tall, blonde prince of Redmarch was less interesting than a huge, dark Norseman bulging with muscle, as if his arms and legs had been crammed with boulders. The girls pointed into the gloom beneath the awning, giggling behind their hands, exchanging appreciative whispers. I leaned around and stepped up onto the buckboard. "'You didn't need to take your shirt off,' I said. It's his hand that needs removing. Snorri offered me a dark look from the sloping couch he'd been arrayed upon. He really did have an alarming topology. His stomach ridged and divided by muscle, 
his chest and arms bursting with power, veins writhing across him to feed blood into the engines of his strength, all tensed now against the pain Varga's investigations were causing him. You're blocking my light. Varga turned from the messy work in hand. She was a woman of middling years, tending to grey, with a homely face of the kind that supports compassion and disapproval in equal measures. Will he live? I asked, my interest genuine, though self-motivated. It's a nasty wound. The tendons are undamaged, but one of the small bones of the hand has been broken, others displaced. It will heal, but slowly, and only if the infection is contained. Ah, yes, then. Probably. Good news. I turned back to the girls outside. That calls for a celebration. Let me buy you fine ladies a drink, and we can afford my companion a little privacy. I stepped down amongst them. They smelled of grease paint, cheap perfume, sweat. All good. I'm Jalen, but you can call me Prince Jal. At last my old enchantment started to work. Even the sculpted magnificence of Snorri Versnogason had a hard time competing with the magic word, Prince. Cherry, pleased to meet you, your highness. Some doubt in her voice, but I could tell she wanted to believe her prince had come. I took her hand. Enchanted. And she smiled up at me, pretty enough, with a snub nose and wicked eyes, fair hair, curled, streaked with blonde. Lula, said her friend, a petite wench with short black hair, pale despite the summer, and sculpted as if to satisfy a schoolboy's dream. With Cherry on one arm, Lula on the other, and a clutch of dancers following behind, I led the way back to the beer wagon. Snorri let out a sharp gasp from under Varga's awning. And life was good. The afternoon passed in a pleasant haze, and parted me from the company of my last silver crowns. The circus men proved remarkably tolerant of my pawing their women, as did the circus women, and we sprawled on cushions before the beer wagon, drinking wine from amphorae, growing louder as the shadows lengthened. Annoyingly, the dancers kept asking me about Snorri, as if the hero of Arrol in their midst weren't quite enough to hold their attention. Is he a chieftain? Lula asked. He's so big, a red-haired beauty named Florence. What's his name? A tall Nuban girl with copper loops through her ears and a mouth made for kissing. How is he called? Snorri, I said. It means wife, Peter. No. Cherry, all round-eyed. Yes, I faked sadness. Terrible temper. If a woman upsets him, he cuts her face. I drew a line across my cheek with one finger. What's the North like? The Nuban girl wasn't so easily deflected. I tipped the amphora to my mouth, gulping wine, while I held my hand out at a steep angle. Like that. I wiped my lips. Only icy. 
all the Northmen slip to the coasts, where they congregate in miserable villages smelling of fish. It gets very crowded. Every now and then a bunch more come sliding down from the hills on their arses, and the only place for the ones closest to the shore is on a boat. But off they sail. I mimicked a ship's progression across the waves. I gave Lula my amphora. Those horns on their helms? I made myself two horns, hands to each side of my head. Cockle's horns. The new arrivals are bouncing abed with the wives left behind. Terrible place. Don't ever go there. A small girl and small boy came out to sing for us, a remarkable pair with high, clear voices, and even the elephant moved closer to listen. I had to shush Cherry to hear uninterrupted when the children sang Hi, John, but I let her giggle through their rendition of Boogie Bugle. Without warning, their voices soared into an aria that drew me back to Father's opera. They sang it sweeter and with more heart, but still the world seemed to close about me, and I heard of those screams in the fire. And beneath those screams, my memory ran a deeper sound, something heard, but at the time not understood, a different kind of howling, the roar of something angry rather than scared. Enough! I threw a cushion at them. It missed and the elephant snagged it from the ground. Scram! The little girl's lip wobbled for an instant and they both fled. Give them what they want, dears, that's all he says. With taproot it's all hips and tits. There's no art in it for him. Lula looked up at me over her clay goblet, seeking affirmation. Well, to be fair, Lula... You are mostly hips and tits, I said, a slight slur to my words now. They giggled at that. The combination of a title and freely flowing wine will have people laughing at anything you offer up as funny, and I've never once complained about it. A sharp oath rang out from the direction of Varga's wagon. I put an arm around Cherry, another around Lula, and drew them close. Enjoy the world while you can, I say. A shallow enough philosophy by which to live, but shallow is what I've got. Besides, deep is apt to drown you. The first evening stars watched me being taken for a guided tour of the dancer's wagon, supported on either side by Cherry and Lula, though who was doing the most supporting would be hard to say. We tumbled inside... And strange to say that in the dark nearly everything we wanted to do required three pairs of hands. In the dead of night a commotion interrupted proceedings within the dancer's wagon. At first we ignored it. Cherry was making her own commotion and I was doing my best to help. We ignored it until the wagon's rocking stopped dead moving Cherry to draw breath. Until that point, I'd heard little above her exclamations and the creaking axles and supports. Jalan! Snorri's voice. I stuck my head out through the flaps into the starlight, far from pleased. Snorri stood with one thick arm gripping the wagon bed, arresting its motion. Come. 
I hadn't the breath to tell him that was what I was trying to do. Instead, I slipped out, lacing up what needed to be laced. Yes, not keeping the temper from my voice. Come. He led off between the nearest wagons. I could hear weeping now, wailing. Snorri followed the field's gradient, letting it lead us a little way out from the wagons and carts encircling Taproot's tent. Here several dozen of the circus folk huddled before a bright fire. A child died. Snorri set a hand to my shoulder, as if offering comfort. Unborn. The pregnant woman? A foolish thing to say. It had to be a pregnant woman. Daisy. I remembered her name. The babe's buried. He nodded to a low mound in the dirt out past the fire, snug between two old grave markers. We should show our respects. I sighed. No more fun for Jal tonight. I felt sorry for the woman, of course, but the troubles of people I don't know never reached that far into me. My father, in one of his rare moments of coherence, declared it to be a symptom of youth. My youth, at least. He called on God to visit compassion upon me as a burden to be carried in later life. I was just impressed that he'd noticed me, or my ways, this once, and of course it's always nice for a cardinal to remember to call on God every now and then. We sat a little apart from the main group, though close enough to feel the fire's heat. How's the hand? I asked. Hurts more, feels better. He held out the appendage in question and flexed it slightly, wincing. She removed a lot of the poison. Thankfully, Snorri omitted greater detail. Some folk will seek to entertain you with the gory details of their ailments. My brother Martus would have painted each glistening drop of pus for me in one of his woe-is-me monologues, for which the only remedy is a swift exit. The night held enough warmth, combined with the fire and my recent exercise, to leave me pleasantly sleepy. I lay back on the ground, without complaint for the hardness of it, or the dust in my hair. For a moment, or three, I watched the stars, and listened to the soft weeping. I yawned once, and sleep took me. Strange dreams hunted me that night. I wandered an empty circus, haunted by the memory of the eyes behind that porcelain mask, but finding only the dancers, each sobbing in her bed and breaking into bright fragments as I reached to touch them. Cherry was there, Lula too, and they broke together, speaking a single word. Quarry. The night fractured, cracks running through tents, wheels, barrels, an elephant bellowed unseen in the darkness. My head filled with light until at last I opened my eyes to keep from being blinded. Nothing. Just Snorri's bulk, seated beside me, knees drawn up. The fire had fallen to red embers. The circus folk had gone to their beds, taking their sorrow with them. No sound but for the whir and chirp of insects. My heart's pounding slowed. My head continued to ache as if it were cracked through, but the blame for that lay with a quart of wine gulped down in the heat of the day. 
It's a thing to make the world weep, the loss of a baby. Snorri's rumble was almost too deep to make sense of. In Asgard, Odin sees it, and his unblinking eye blinks. I thought it best not to mention that technically a one-eyed god can only wink. All deaths are sad. It seemed like a good thing to say. Most of what a man is has been written by the time his beard starts to prickle. A babe is made of maybes. There are few crimes worse than the ending of something before its time. Once more I bit my tongue and made no complaint that this was exactly what he had accomplished at the dancer's wagon earlier. It wasn't tact that held me silent, so much as the desire not to get my nose broken yet again. I suppose some sorrows can only truly touch a parent. I'd heard that somewhere. I think perhaps Cousin Sarah had said it at her little brother's funeral. I recall all the grey heads nodding and exchanging words about her. She probably fished it from a book. Even at fourteen she was scheming for grandmother's approval. And her throne. When you become a father, it changes you. Snorri spoke towards the fire's glow. You see the world in new ways. Those who are not changed were not properly men to begin with. I wondered if he was drunk. That's when I tend to speak profundities to the night. Then I remembered that Snorri was a father. I couldn't picture it. Wee ones bouncing on his knee, tiny hands tugging at his battle braids. Even so... I understood his mood better, now I could guess what he might see among the embers. Not this unborn child, but his own children, fleeing horrors in the snows, the thing that drew him north against all sense. Why are you still here? I asked him. Why are you? I passed out. Mild exasperation coloured my voice. I'm not sitting vigil. In fact, now that I'm awake, I'll find a better place to sleep. Perhaps one with more interesting contours and a snub nose. I stood, aching along my side, and stamped to get some life back into my legs. Can't you feel it? He said, as I turned to go. No. But I could. Something wrong a sense of brokenness. No, I can't. Even so, I didn't step away. With one breath, the insects ceased their chorus. A deep noise reached me, rumbling up through the soles of my feet, still bare. Ah, oh, hell. My hands trembled with the customary terror of the unknown, but also with something new, as if they were full of fractured light. Hell's about right. Snorri stood, too. He had his stolen sword in hand. Had he held it all the time, or gone to fetch it while I slept? He pointed the blade towards the baby's grave. The noise had come from there. A burrowing, a scratching, the sound of roots pushing blind paths through soil. 
The headstone to the left tilted as the ground sank beneath it. The one to the right toppled forwards, coming to rest with a dull thud. All around the child's mound the soil cracked and heaved. We should run, I said, having not the least idea why I was not already doing so. The word quarry repeated over and again behind my eyes. What's happening down there? Perhaps a sick fascination kept me there, or the immobility of the rabbit beneath Hawk's claws. Something is being built, Snorri said. When the unborn return, they take what they need. Return? I sometimes ask, even when I really don't want to hear the answer. Bad habit. It's hard for the unborn to return. They're not like fallen that rise from the deaths of men. Snorri began to swing his sword left-handed, blurring it around him in fire-glow glimmers, making the air sigh. They are uncommon things. The world must be cracked open to admit them, and their strength is surpassing. The dead king must want us very badly indeed. I found my feet at that, and ran. As the ground heaved, and some dark thing rose, shedding dry clods of earth and shrugging off gravestones, I raced five full steps before tripping on an abandoned wine jug, possibly one I'd brought with me, and sprawling face first. I rolled and saw, edged by the radiance of stars and the faint light of embers, a horror still knee-deep in the earth and yet towering above the Norsemen, a thin thing of old bones, tattered cloth, encompassing arms with talons built from too many finger bones to count. And about these dry and creaking remains, something wet and glistening, some vital freshness running along a golem built of long-dead grave litter, knitting this to that, bleeding quickness into the construct. Snorri bellowed his wordless challenge, but he held his ground. No charging against this foe. It overreached him by a yard and more. The dead thing extended an arm, talons questing for Snorri, then snatched the hand back. A grey skull filled with new wetness craned down on a neck that was once the entirety of a man's spine. And it spoke. Though it had no lungs for bellows, no tongue to shape its words, it spoke. The unborn's voice squealed like tooth on tooth, grated bone on bone, and somehow carried meaning. Red Queen, it said. Snorri took a pace back, sword raised. The skull swiveled, and those awful wet pits that served for eyes found me, barefoot, weaponless, and scooting away on my backside. Red Queen. Not me. Never heard of her. The strength went from my legs and I stopped trying to escape, although it was the only thing I wanted to do. You carry her purpose, it said, and her sister's magic. It swung its head towards Snorri and I could breathe again. Or you, it said, and you. The unborn returned its gaze to me now on my feet. Under that inspection I started to die once more. Hidden? The skull tilted in query. How is it hidden? 
Snorri attacked. As the unborn's attention pinned me, he leapt forwards, sword in his offhand, and hacked at its narrow waist of bone, dry skin, old gristle. The thing lurched alarmingly, recovered itself, and slapped him away with a lazy backhand that lifted the Norseman from his feet and sent him sprawling, his sword flying past me, lost in the night. Battles are all about strategy, and strategy pivots on priorities. Since my priorities were Prince Jalen, Prince Jalen, and Prince Jalen, with looking good a distant fourth, I took the opportunity to resume running away. I find that the main thing about success is the ability to act in the moment. A hero attacks in the moment. A good coward runs in it. The rest of the world waits for the next moment and ends up as crow food. I made it ten yards before nearly slicing my foot off on Snorri's sword, which had ended its trajectory point first. Nine inches of the blade lay buried in the hard earth, the rest jutting up dangerously. Even in my terror, I recognised the value in three foot of cold steel and paused to haul it clear. The action spun me around, and I could see the unborn looming over Snorri, ghostly in the starlight. Weaponless, he refused to run and held what looked to be a gravestone above him like a shield. The stone shattered beneath the unborn's descending fist. A thin hand of many bones encircled the Viking's waist. In another moment, he would be gutted or have his head torn off. Something huge and dark and wailing like a banshee swept towards me from the camp. Rather than be flattened beneath its ground-shaking bulk, I ran, selecting the direction I happened to be pointing in. I needed all my speed to keep clear of the massive pounding feet behind me, and screaming, I charged directly at the unborn, desperately trying to find the extra legs to veer to the side. At the last moment, with pants wetting haste, I dived left, narrowly missing Snorri, rolled, rolled again, and somehow avoided skewering myself on the sword. I rose to watch in astonishment as Cherry bounced past atop an enraged elephant. The unborn went down with the sound of a hundred wet sticks snapping, ground to pieces beneath blunt feet the size of bucklers. The elephant thundered on into the night, still bearing the girl, and trumpeting loud enough to wake the dead, if any had still been asleep. Snorri landed close by with a thud that made me wince. He lay without moving for five beats of my heart, then levered himself up on thick arms. I held his sword out to him, and he took it. My thanks. Least I could do. Not every man would run off to recover a comrade's weapon, then charge an unborn single-handed. He got to his feet with a groan and stared off into the night. Elephant, eh? Yep, and a woman. He went to the fire and started kicking embers over the unborn's remains. Yep. Circus folk were streaming towards us now, dark shapes against the night. Think she'll be all right? I considered the matter, having spent some time between her thighs myself. I'm more worried for the elephant. Chapter 10 My first light 
the circus camp had been half packed away. None of them held any desire to remain, and I expected Dr. Taproot would have to find a new stopover the next time they passed this way. Cherry returned with the elephant as I waited for Snorri by the field gate. The dwarf had returned to his post, and we were both trying to cheat each other at cards. I stood and waved. Cherry must have had to wait for dawn to find her way back. She looked worn out, her face paint smeared, dark streaks around her eyes. A gentleman pretends not to notice these things, and I hastened over to catch her as she slipped from the creature's back. She felt good enough in my arms to make me regret the need to leave. My thanks, lady. I set her down and backed away from the elephant's questing trunk. The beast made me seven kinds of nervous and smelled of farms to boot. Good boy! I slapped its wrinkled flanks and dodged towards the gate again. She's a girl, Cherry said. Nellie. Ah, what else could she be called? Saved by a dancing girl and a female elephant. I wouldn't be adding that to the tale of the hero of Aral Pass. Cherry took the elephant's halter rope and led her off into the camp, shooting me one last wicked glance that made me wish for another night, at the least. Snorri arrived moments later. Hell of a thing, he shook his head. Elephants. You could take one home, I suggested. We have mammoths, even bigger, but in fur coats. I've never seen one, but I want to now. He looked back into the camp. I paid my respects to the mother. There's nothing to say at such times, but it's better to say something than nothing, even so. He slapped an overly familiar hand to my shoulder. We should go, Jal, our welcome's worn thin, unless you wanted to barter for horses. With what? I pulled out my pockets. They sucked me dry. Snorri shrugged. That locket you're always fiddling with could buy ten horses. Fine ones. I hardly ever touch it. I blinked at him, telling myself to remember his sharp eyes. I didn't recall looking at it once since we met. And it's of no value. I doubted the old man on the road would have swapped his donkey for the locket and a silver crown. The Norseman shrugged and made to leave. I nudged his arm as he passed. Taproot's come to see us off. Dr. Taproot approached. He looked uncomfortable in the open air, removed from his desk. Two men flanked him, leading their horses, a pale gelding and a dun mare. The first, the lion tamer we met in the blueness of Taproot's tent, the second a hugely built man who was obviously occupying the strongman job that Snorri had initially been taken to be an applicant for. I wondered if the good doctor was expecting trouble of some kind. Taproot? Snorri inclined his head. The stolen sword hung at his hip now, depending from an arrangement of rope and leather strips. Aha! The travellers! Taproot looked up at his strongman as if weighing him in the balance with Snorri. Heading north now, watch me. Neither of us had an answer to that. Taproot continued. Dogged by ill fortune, perhaps? The kind of misfortune that fills and empties graves, watch me? 
His hands moved as if performing each task while he described it. That would have been valuable information. At yesterday's noon, that information would have earned its keep. The sorrow on his long features seemed almost too perfect, almost caricature. It worried me that I couldn't tell if the baby's death had meant anything to him or not. In any case, the milk was spilt. He trailed off, then turned to go but caught himself and spun once more to face us. Unborn! Almost a shout now. You bring unborn to the world? How? He found his control once more and carried on, his voice conversational again. This was not well done. Not well done at all. You must go far from here. And fast. He indicated the two horses, and his companion stepped forwards, holding the reins out towards us. I took the gelding. Twenty crowns on your debt slate, my prince. Taproot inclined his head a fraction. I know you will be good for it. I looked my steed over, patted his neck, felt the meat over his ribs. A decent enough nag. Snorri stood woodenly beside his, as if worried she might bite him. My thanks, I said, and swung up into the saddle. Twenty in gold was a fair enough price. A touch steep, but fair under the circumstances. I felt better mounted. God gave us horses so we could run away faster. Best be quick on your path. You're at the centre of a storm, young prince, and no mistake. Taproot nodded as if it had been me talking and him agreeing. There are hands aplenty in this matter, many fingers in the pot, all stirring. A grey hand behind you, a black hand in your path. Scratch a little deeper, though, and you might find blue behind the black, red behind the grey, and deeper still. Does it go deeper? Who knows? Not this old circus keeper. Perhaps everything goes deeper than deep, deep without end. But I'm old. My eyes grow dim. I only see so far. Um... It seemed the only sensible reply to his outpouring of nonsense. I could see now who trained up the circus fortune-teller. Taproot nodded at my wisdom. Let us part friends, Prince Jalen. The Kendiths have been a force for good in Red March. He held out his thin hand, and I took it quick enough, for I guessed it pained him to keep it still so long. There, he said. I was sorry to hear of your mother's death, my prince. I released his hand. Too young. Too young she was for the assassin's blade. I blinked at him, nodded, and nudged my new horse on down the lane. Come on, Snorri. Over my shoulder. It's like rowing a boat. I'll walk a little first, he said, and followed on, leading his nag by the reins. I'll admit some regret in leaving the circus behind. I liked the people, the air of the place, even on the move. And, of course, the dancers. Despite that, I had a small smile on my lips. It was good to know that even Taproot's vast stock of information failed him from time to time. My mother died of a flux. I touched the lump made by the locket under my jacket. Mother's picture inside. A flux... The contact made me uneasy, all of a sudden. My smile gone.
We got to the main road and turned back along the path we'd first taken, guided by directions from the midget card shop at the gate. Neither of us spoke until we reached the pile of elephant dung that at first alerted me to the circus's proximity. So, you can't ride, then? Never tried, he said. You've never even sat on a horse? It seemed hard to credit. I've eaten plenty, he said. That doesn't help. How difficult can it be? He asked, making no move to find out. Less difficult than jumping onto bears and off again, I suspect. Luckily, I'm the finest horseman in Red March and a great teacher. I pointed at the stirrup. Put your foot in there. Not the foot you first thought of, the other one. Step up and don't fall off. Lessons continued slowly, and to his credit, Snuggerson did not fall off. I did worry that he might cave in the horse's ribs with those oh-so-muscly legs of his, but in the end, Snorri and the horse reached an uneasy truce where they both adopted a fixed grin and got on with moving forwards. By the time the sun had passed its zenith, I could tell the Norseman was suffering. How's the hand? Less painful than the thighs, he grunted. Perhaps if you loosened your grip a little and let the poor horse breathe, tell me about Roan, he said. I shrugged. We wouldn't reach the border until the next evening, and the last mile would suffice to tell him anything worthwhile about the place, but it seemed he needed distraction from his aches and pains. Not so much to tell. Awful place. The food's bad, the men surly and ignorant, the women cross-eyed. And they're thieves to a man. If you shake a ronish hand, count your fingers afterward. You've never been there, have you? He shot a narrow look back at me, then lurched to keep his place in the saddle. Did you not listen to what I said? Why would I go somewhere like that? I don't understand it. He risked another glance back. Ronish kings founded Red March, did they not? Wasn't it the Ronish who saved you from Scorin invasion? Twice? I hardly think so. Now he mentioned it, though. It did trigger a faint memory of two hot days in the grey room with Tutor Markle. I suspect a prince of Red March knows a little more about local history than some... holder off the frozen slopes of a fjord. I'll admit to sleeping through most of Markle's history lessons, but I probably would have noticed a thing like that. In any event, they're a bad sort. To change the topic of conversation, and because every time I glanced back my imagination hid monsters in the shadows, I brought up the topic of pursuit. When I ran into you, the fisher, the crack that was chasing me, it came from the silent sister's spell. You told me this. The spell she placed to kill everyone at this opera of yours. Well, it would have killed everyone, but I don't think that was the reason she cursed the place. Maybe she wasn't out to destroy us all. Maybe she had her target, and the rest of us were just in the way. Could whatever she was after have chased us to the circus? 
Snorri raised his brows, then frowned, then shook his head. That unborn was new formed, from Daisy's child. It didn't follow us there. That sounded a touch more hopeful. But it didn't just happen by chance, surely. Aren't these things supposed to be very rare? Someone made that happen. Someone trying to kill us. Your Red Queen was gathering tales of the dead. She knows Ragnarok is hard upon us. The last battle is coming. She's drawing her plans against the dead king, and likely he's drawing his plans against her. The dead king may know about us. He may know we're headed north, dragging the witch's magic with us. He may know we're bound for the bitter ice where his dead are gathering. He may want to stop us. Whilst I'd successfully steered the conversation away from Roan, Snorri had told me absolutely nothing to ease my mind. I chewed on all that he'd said for the next few miles, and very sour it tasted. We were pursued, I knew it, blood to bone. That thing from the opera stalked us, and in running before it we plunged headlong into whatever the dead king placed in our path. A day later, we met our first examples of the type of Ronishman I'd been warning Snorri against. A guard post of five Ron soldiers attached to a sizable inn that straddled the border. Redmarch's own guard post of four men adjoined the opposite end of the inn, and the two groups dined together most evenings on opposing sides of a long table through which the border ran, marked across the planks by a line of polished nailheads. I introduced myself as a down-at-heels nobleman, since none of them would recognise a Red March prince and, thinking themselves mocked, would take offence. I suppose I could have held up a gold crown with grandmother's face on it and remonstrated about family resemblance, but I didn't have one. Or a silver crown. And the coppers mostly had the Ajax Tower on them, or King Goloth, who reigned before grandmother and looked nothing like his daughter, or me. Snorri said little at the inn, his tension clear, worried that word might have been sent to secure the borders against him. We spent the remainder of my coppers on a small meal of cabbage soup and mystery meat before moving on into Rowan, which, despite my misgivings, seemed very much like Red March, except that the people tended to roll out their R's in an annoying manner. The first Ronish town we came to coincided with our first evening, a sizable place with the dull but worthy name of Milltown. We rode at gentle pace along the muddy high street, a thoroughfare crowded with traders, travellers and townsfolk. Snorri reined in towards a smithy open to the street and loud with hammers. We should get you a sword, Jarl. He'd taken to calling me Jarl, not my prince, or Prince Jalan, or even Jalan, but Jal. I didn't let him know it annoyed me, because he'd just do it exactly the same amount of times, but with a broader grin. How are you with a blade? Better than you are with a horse, I said. Snorri snorted, and his mare joined in. He'd called her Sleipnir, after some heathen nag. 
and they seemed to be getting on, despite him riding like a big log stuck on a saddle and weighing about the same as his steed. He dismounted, the effect not dissimilar to the aforementioned log falling off its perch. Show me. He pulled out his sword and offered it hilt first. I looked around. You can't just go swinging swords on the main street. Someone will lose an eye. And that's only if the town law aren't on you first. Snorri looked puzzled, as if on the ice-coated slopes of the north it would be the most natural thing in the world. It's a blacksmith's. He waved to the iron mongery laid out beside us. The smith makes swords. People must try them out here all the time. The sword hilt poked my way again. I doubt it. Hands firmly on the reins. I nodded down to the display tables. Scythe blades, baling hooks, nails and other domestic goods were all that lay before me. Town this size might have a weaponsmith somewhere. This ain't it, though. Ha! Snorri pointed to a sword hanging up back in the gloom under the awnings. Smith! The smith emerged at Snorri's booming. A short man, ugly with sweat, thick in the arms, of course, but with a surprising bookish look to him. Evening. I'll test that blade. Snorri pointed to the hanging sword. Repairing that for Garson host, the smith said. Taking out the notches, putting a fresh edge on it. Taint for sale. Don't humour him. I nodded my approval at the man. The smith bit his lip. I'd forgotten that Ronish men always look for a chance to put a red march man on his arse, and that common men like nothing better than seeing their betters knocked about. I would have been wiser to hold my tongue. Snorri might be a foreigner, but at least he hadn't committed the cardinal sin of being a foreigner from the country next door. Don't suppose Garson will mind if it's three notches I knock out of the blade or five notches. The smith went back and reached up to retrieve the sword. Resigned to my fate, I dismounted and took the hilt that Snorri poked at me again. It happens that I'm not that bad a swordsman when my life's not in danger. In the practice yard, with dull blades and sufficient padding, I could always hold my own well enough. More than well. But all those lessons went running down one leg on the only day I was ever called on to swing a sword in earnest. As we crashed in amongst those scorn soldiers up in the Aral Pass, raw terror washed away all my training in an instant. Those were great, big, angry men with sharp swords actually wanting to cut pieces off me. It's not until you've seen a red gaping wound and all the complex little bits inside a man all broken up and sliced open and known that they weren't ever getting back together again and vomited your last two meals over the rocks. It's not until then that you understand the business of swords properly and, if you're a sensible man, you vow to have nothing to do with it ever again. I remember nothing from the battle in the Aral Pass, but frozen moments shuffled together, steel flashing, crimson arcs, horrified faces, one man choking on blood as he backed away from me, and the screaming, of course. I still hear that today. Everything else about the battle is a blank. 
Snorri took his new sword in his uninjured hand and jabbed at me. I swatted it away. He grinned and came at me again. We traded thrusts and parries for a few moments, the clash of steel bringing much of the street to a halt, heads turning our way. Usually strength, while important, is not the prime factor in swordwork, even with heavier blades of the type we employed. The rapier is all about quickness, but even the longsword is more about quickness, once you have the strength to swing it, than it is about excess strength. Properly trained, a swordsman will benefit more from a small increase in skill and speed than from a large increase in strength. The sword is, after all, the lever. With Snorri, however, strength was a factor. He used basic enough moves, but blocking them made my hand hurt, and the first blow he put any real effort into nearly took the blade from my grasp. Even so, it was clear quite early on that I had more sword skills in my right hand than the Norseman had in his left. Good. Snorri lowered his weapon. You're very good. I tried not to simper under his praise. Grandmother requires that all her family be well-versed in the arts of war. Whether they want to be or not... I recalled endless training as a young prince, gripping a wooden blade until I got blisters and being beaten mercilessly by Martus and Darren, who saw it as part of their duties as elder brothers. Keep the sword, Snorri said to me. You'll make better use of it than me. I pursed my lips. As long as having the sword didn't mean I had to use it, then I was fine with the arrangement. I certainly cut a better swagger with a long sword at my hip, I tilted the blade and let the light run along it. At one point, the metal had taken on a dark stain, perhaps where it had bit into the unborn when Snorri swung at its body. I pushed the memory away. What about you? I asked, concerned with my safety rather than his. I'll buy a replacement. He turned to the smith, who made no effort to hide his disappointment at not seeing the giant Viking squash me. You can't afford another sword. He couldn't afford anything. He'd been a prisoner for months until his recent escape. Not the most lucrative of occupations. You're right. Snorri handed the smith's sword back. It's not for sale in any case. He nodded into the forge. Do you have a good axe? A war axe? not something for cutting wood. As the smith headed in to delve through his stock, Snorri pulled a pouch on a string from about his neck. I crowded over to see what he had. Silvers! At least five of them! Who'd you murder for those? I frowned, more at the thought of Snorri being richer than me than at the thought of robbery with violence. I'm not a thief. Snorri lowered his brows. All right, we'll call it pillage, I said. Snorri shrugged. Viking lands are poor, the soil sparse, winter is cruel. So some do reach out and take from the weak, it's true. We undereth, however, prefer to take from the strong. They have better stuff. For each longboat launched against distant shores, there are ten and more launched to raid close neighbours. The Viking nations 
waste their main strength on each other, and have always done so. You still haven't answered the question. I took from the strong. Snorri grinned and reached out to take the axe the smith brought him. That big man with taproot when we left. The amazing Ronaldo, circus strongman. No Norse axe this, but a serviceable footman's axe, a single triangular blade, the ash haft iron-banded and dark with age. The axe was ever a peasant's weapon, but this one at least had been made for a peasant signed to some lord's levy. Snorri twirled it, coming alarmingly near to the stock tables, me and the smith. The amazing Ronaldo made a wager with me regarding a feat of strength. He didn't win. The dwarf said they'll call him the amazed Ronaldo now. Snorri hefted the axe and held the blade close to his ear as if listening to it. I'll take it. Three. The smith held up the appropriate number of fingers as if Snorri hadn't been speaking the Empire tongue. He's robbing you. Three silvers for what's basically a farm implement. But Snorri paid over the coins. Never haggle over a weapon's price. Buy or don't buy. Save the arguments for when you own it. We'll have to get you a sword, I said, when funds allow. Snorri shook his head. An axe for me. Swords trick you into thinking you can defend. With an axe, all you can do is attack. That's what my father named me. Snorri. It means attack. He lifted the axe above his head. Men think they can defend against me, but when I knock, they open. What the hell are unborn? It took three days for me to ask the question. We'd come riding into the town of Pentecost, covering about a hundred miles from the border. Snorri still rode like a log, but fortunately he also endured like a log and hadn't murmured a word of complaint. Rain found us on the road and poured on our heads for the last ten miles, so we came dripping from the stables and now sat at the centre of our own little lakes, steaming gently before an empty hearth in the King of Rhone tavern. You don't know. Snorri raised wet eyebrows at that and plastered his hair farther up his forehead, shaking the excess water from his fingers. No. I'm often like that. I have a bad habit of blanking unpleasantness from my mind, something I've done since I was a child. Genuine surprise is a great help when faced with an unwelcome duty. Of course, when it's the paying of debts you're forgetting, that can lead to broken fingers. And worse. I guess it's a form of lying. Lying to oneself. And I'm very good at falsehoods. They often say the best liars half believe their lies, which makes me the very best, because if I repeat a lie often enough, I can end up believing it entirely. No half measures involved. No, I don't know. During our travels, mainly down dull and muddy tracks and past innumerable dreadful little farms, I'd spent a lot of time reminiscing to myself about Cherry's charms and Lula's pleasing sense of exploration. But of the incident at the graves, nothing. Just a brief memory of Cherry riding to the rescue. 
A dozen times I'd pictured the bouncing of her breasts as she'd thundered past. It took a three-hour soaking at the end of a three-day ride for the unborn to at last surface with a nagging insistence that finally made me ask. The truth could scarcely be worse than what my imagination had begun to suggest. I hoped. How can you not know? Snorri demanded. He didn't thump the table, but I knew he wanted to. Snorri proved the ideal travelling companion for a man like me, who didn't want to dwell on past mistakes and the like. As far as Snorri was concerned, all his goals, ambitions, loves and dangers lay ahead. Anything in our wake, Red March and all its peoples, Grandmother and her silent sister, the unborn, all these things of the South were to be left behind, outpaced, no longer of concern or consequence. How can you not know? he repeated. How can you not know what eleven times twelve is? A hundred and thirty-two. Damn. I'm just more interested in the finer things in life, Snorri. If you can't ride it, one way or another, and it doesn't play dice or cards or pour from a wine bottle, then I'm really not that bothered. Especially if it's foreign, or heathen, or both. But this thing said something that worried me. Quarry. Snorri nodded. It was sent after us. By? The other day you said it might be the dead king, but couldn't it be someone else? I wanted it to be someone else. Some necromancer or... The dead king is the only one who can send the unborn anywhere. They laugh at necromancers. So, this dead king, I've heard of him. Snorri spread his hands, inviting more of my wisdom on the subject. A Breton lord, some godless island hopper from the drowned lands. I sipped my wine, a ronish red, vile stuff like vinegar and pepper. Other countries wouldn't be so bad if they weren't crammed with foreigners and all their stuff. This dead king was a case in point. That's it. That's what you know about the dead king. He's from the Drowned Isles. It seemed to me that the steam was coming off Snorri rather more rapidly now. I shrugged. So why would some Breton send a monster after us? How would he even know? I bet Mary's Alice put him up to it. Six will get you ten. Mary's Alice. Pah! Snorri drained his ale, wiped the foam from his moustache, and made to order another before remembering our poverty. That, Jal, would be like a minnow ordering a whale. This Alice of yours is nothing. Get ten miles from the walls of your city, and nobody knows the man. Prince Jalen, damn it! Ten miles outside my city and no one knows I'm a prince? So why send the monster? The dead king and this silent sister, their hidden hands, they play a game across the empire, them and others, pushing kings and lords across their board. Who knows what it is they want in the end? Perhaps to remake the empire and give it an emperor with strings by which he can be made to dance, or perhaps to wipe the board clear and start the game anew. 
In any event, the unborn said we carried the Red Queen's purpose, and then it said we carried magic, which we do. He jabbed a finger at my shoulder, and that unpleasant crackling energy built immediately, remaining until he withdrew the offending digit. But that was some kind of accident. Well, not on anyone's purpose. Certainly not my grandmother's. Not unless the silent sister's blind eye saw into the future and selected an unlikely chance. An unsettling thought. She was, after all, battling the dead, and Snorri was dragging both me and the witch's magic north to where his foes worked alongside corpsmen brought in on the black ships of the drowned isles. It's just coincidence. So maybe the unborn was wrong. The dead king, too. Maybe we've got them, the silent sister, and even your weasel Alice on our trail. Let them come. We'll see how much staying power they have. It's a long way to the north. So, I said, returning to my theme, what the hell is an unborn? I had a vague memory of the name from before the nightmare journey began. I think the first time I heard it, I'd rather hope they were just risen corpses, which, given their size, would be easily dealt with. Not that I'm keen to stamp on babies, dead or otherwise, but it'd be a sight less dangerous than what happened at the circus. And how the hell is an unborn a huge grave horror that takes a charging elephant to put down? Potential. That's what the unborn are. Potential. Snorri picked up his empty tankard, checked its emptiness, and put it down again. The one we faced wasn't so dangerous, as it had only been dead a few hours. All that potential for growth and change a child has, all that goes to the Deadlands if the child dies unborn. It becomes twisted there, scoured. Time passes differently there. Nothing stays young. The unborn child's potential is infected with older purpose. There are things that have always been dead, things that dwell in the land beyond death, and it's those ancient evils that ride the unborn potential, possess and haunt it, hungry to be born into the world of life. The longer the unborn stays in the deadlands, the more strength it draws from that place, but the less it can change the harder it becomes to return. No common necromancer can summon an unborn. Even the dead king is said to have been able to bring through only a handful, and seldom in a place of his choosing. They serve as his agents, his spies, able to grow into new forms, disguise themselves, walk amongst men unseen for what they are. New ones are not so dangerous. I'd latched onto that and repeated it to myself in disbelief, whilst the rest of what he said washed over me. It would have ripped you in half, if not for a handy elephant. Let's hope we don't ever meet another one, because elephants are in short supply around here, if you hadn't noticed. Christ! Snorri shrugged. You did ask. Well, I wish I hadn't. Remind me not to in future. I took a deep draught of my wine, 
regretting that we lacked the wherewithal to buy enough to get roaring drunk and wash the whole business back into convenient amnesia. There was something there that night at the opera. I didn't want to speak about it, but things could hardly get worse. This demon of yours. I nodded. I broke the spell. Cracked it. Anyway, there was something in there with us. A demon. It looked like a man. Or its body did. I never saw the face. But there was something wrong. I know it. I saw it as clear as I see the silent sister when everyone else looks past her. An unborn, you think? Snorri frowned. And now you say it's following us. He shrugged. It's not doing a very good job of catching up. I'd worry more about what lies ahead than behind. Hmm. Stop worrying about the frying pan because the fire's hotter. I shrugged, but couldn't get those eyes out of my imagination. But what if it did catch us up? That would be a bad thing. Nori studied his empty tankard again. I looked out at the rain, and at the sky darkening with a gathering storm, and at the night's approach. Whatever Snorri said, out there something that loved us not was following our trail. Quarry, it had called us. I picked my wet cloak off the floor, still dripping. We should press on to the next town. No point dawdling. Nice as a night under a good roof would be, it was time to be off. Keep still, and your troubles find you. I might not have known much about the unborn, but I sure as hell knew about running. Chapter 11 It's not raining. I hadn't noticed at first. My body still huddled as if against the downpour, but on this evening, beside the muddy trail and close enough to our fire to make my clothes steam, there wasn't a drop of rain to hide from. Stars! Snorri stabbed a finger at the midnight blue heavens. I remember those. Not long ago, I'd been watching them on a hot night, leaning out from Lisa de Vere's balcony and lying. Those there are the lovers, I told her, pointing at some random piece of sky. Roma and Juliet. It takes an expert to spot them. And is it good luck when they shine on us? Lisa had asked, half disguising a smile that made me think she might well know more astrology than I'd given her credit for. Let's find out, I had said, and reached for her. And they did turn out lucky that night. Even so, I suspected myself a victim of grandmother's insistence on education for all. It's hard on a chap when the women he wishes to impress are better schooled than he is. I suspect my cousin Sarah could name every constellation in the sky while penning a sonnet. I wasn't captured on the Ulisk slopes, Snorri said. 
I frowned at the stars, trying to make sense of that. What? What I told your queen would lead her to believe that I had been. Had been what? I was still trying to see what this had to do with stars. I said broke ore sailed up the Ulisk. That they fell upon us there. That the undereth were broken, my children scattered. I said he took me to his ship in chains. Yes, I said, trying to remember any of it. I recalled that the throne room had been stuffy, that my legs ached with standing, that I'd lost a night's sleep and found a hangover. The details of Snorri's tale, not so much. Except that I had thought he'd been lying the horns off his Viking hat, and now he seemed to be telling me that he really had been. When the spring comes to the Ulisk, it comes in a rush, ready for war, Snorri said. And he told his story, with the fire crackling at our backs, and our eyes upon the innumerable stars. He spun the tale out into the darkness, weaving pictures with his voice, too bright, too vivid to look away from. He had woken that morning to the groaning of the ice. For days, black water had glimmered at the fjord's centre. Today, though, the thaw would come in earnest, and with the sun's first touch, reaching down across the high ridges of Uluskind, the shore ice groaned in protest. Get up! Up, you big ox! And Freya pulled the furs from the cot, letting cold air nip at his flesh. Snorri groaned as the ice had groaned. Some forces of nature cannot be resisted. Outside, the ice grumbled and surrendered to the authority of the spring thaw. Inside, a husband gave way before a mother ready to sweep away a whole winter's worth of filth and to throw the shutters wide. Neither were to be withstood. Snorri reached for his shirt and breeches, yawning wide enough to crack his jaw. Freya worked around him, twisting aside with practised ease when his hands sought her hips. You behave, Snorri Versnaggerson. She started to lift the bedskins and tug out the heather beneath. There's those pens want fixing on the Pell slope. Spring'll have the he-goats nosing around the she-goats. This he-goat wants his she-goat, Snorri snorted, but he stood and made for the door. Freya was right, as always. The fences wouldn't keep kids in or wolves out. Not as they stood. Not how the winter had left them. He took his iron-toothed saw from the wall. For Magson will have staves. I'll promise him a barrel of salted hake. You'll promise him half a barrel and check the timber first, Freya said. Snorri shrugged and kept his mouth pressed closed on a smile. He took a roll of seal hide, his steel knife, a whetstone. Where are the children? Carl's off string fishing with the Magson boy. Emmy went out to look for her peg doll, and Egil. Freya towed a lump in the bed furs up against the wall. Egil is still sleeping and needs to wake up. Her voice rose into a command, and the lump shifted, muttering some complaint, a shock of red hair now just visible at the far end of the furs. Snorri tugged on his boots, 
took his sheepskin from the hook, patted his battle-axe secured high above the lintel, and pushed open the door. The cold hit him at once, but it lacked its winter bite. This was a wet cold, and soon enough spring would wrestle it round to mild. The rocky slope ran from his doorstep past a half-dozen other stone-built huts to the Ulisk's ice-locked shore. The fishing boats slouched in their winter berths, cradled in timber above the worst of the snow. Eight keys led out over the ice, strutting on pine legs, planking warped by too many harsh seasons. The town had been named for them, Eight Keys, back in an age when eight was a number to boast of. Einhar, six miles seaward, had twenty and more, but Einhar had been nothing but ice and rock when Snorri's grandfather's grandfather had settled the shore at Eight Keys. A small figure was making its way out along the longest of those keys, as Snorri watched. Emmy! Snorri's shout had heads thrusting from doorways, window hides lifting. The little girl almost fell from the long key in shock, which had been precisely the threat that had scared the shout out of him in the first place. But she caught herself after jolting forwards and hung to an upright, little fingers clutching the icy timber, white hair falling across her face and reaching for the dark waters a couple of feet below. One slip, and the fjord would swallow her, the cold stealing both breath and strength. Snorri dropped his gear and ran out along the long quay, sure-footed, stepping where it would bear his weight and losing no time over the choices. He'd run the long quay all his life. Fool girl! You know you're not to! Fear made his voice harsh as he fell to his knees and scooped Emmy into his arms. He bit back the anger. You could have fallen, Ein Maria. A child raised to the undereth should have more sense even at five. He held her tight to his chest, still careful not to crush her, his heart hammering. Emmy had been a babe at her mother's breast when Jarl Torstef led the Undereth against Hodolf of Iron Tors. At no point in that battle, not charging the shield wall, not wet with Eric Vermagson's blood, not pinned by stockade timber with two men of Iron Tors approaching, had Snorri known fears such as that which seized him, seeing his own child hanging over dark waters? Snorri held Emmy away from him. What were you doing? Soft now, almost beseeching. Emmy bit her lip, struggling to hold back the tears filling her eyes, the same cornflower blue as her mother's. Peggy's in the water. Peggy? Snorri tried to recall a child of that name. He knew all the children by sight, of course, but... It came to him, a wash of relief erasing any exasperation. Your doll? You're out here looking for a peg doll you lost before the snows. Emmy nodded, still close to tears. You find her. You find her, Poppy. I don't... She's lost, Ein Maria. You can find her. You can. Some lost things can be found again, and some can't. He broke off his explanation, 
seeing his daughter's eyes the exact moment that a child first understands there are limits on what her parents can do, rather than just limits on what they choose to do. He knelt before her in a moment's silence, somewhat less than he had been just seconds before, and Emmy a half-step closer to the woman she would one day become. Come on. He stood, lifting her. Back to your mama. And he walked back, careful now, watching the planks, placing each foot with precision. Carrying Emmy up the slope, Snorri echoed with an old pain, the hurt of every parent separated from their child, whether by a sudden slip into deep and hungry water, or by slow steps along divergent paths bound for the future. They came that night. Snorri had often said that Freya saved his life. She took from him the rage that had forged his skill with axe and spear, setting in its place new passions. He said she had given him purpose, where all he had before was confusion that he hid, as most young men do, behind an illusion of action. Perhaps she saved his life again that night, some dream-murmured warning thinning his sleep. What woke him, Snorri couldn't say. He lay on the dark and the warmth of his covers, Freya close enough to touch but not touching. For long moments he heard only the sound of her breathing and the creak of ice reforming. He had no concern over attack. The Jarls had settled the worst of their squabbles for the now. In any case, only a fool would risk a raid with the season barely starting to turn. Snorri set a hand to the smoothness of Freya's hips. She muttered some sleepy rejection. He pinched. Bear? she asked. Sometimes a white bear would nose around, take a goat. The best thing to do was to let it. His father advised, never eat a white bear's liver. As a boy, Snorri had asked why. Were they poisonous? Yes, his father had said. But the main reason is that if you try to, the bear will be busy eating yours, and he has bigger teeth. Maybe. Not a bear. Where his surety came from, Snorri didn't know. He slid from the furs, and the cold gripped him. Clad only in skin, he took down his axe, hell. His father had given him the weapon, a single broad blade, half-moon cutting edge. This blade is the start of a journey, his father had said. It has sent many men to hell, and it will send her more souls before its time is done. With the axe in his hand, Snorri felt clothed, the cold laying no finger upon him for fear he might hack it off. Someone stumbled outside, close by the hut, yet not so close that it left no room for doubt. That you, Hagerson, taking a piss on the wrong ground? Sometimes Haggerson would drink with Magson and Anulf the ship, then stumble off in search of home, lost even though he had but forty huts to choose from. A soft but penetrating cry went up. 
almost the call of a loon, but not quite. And in any case, the birds were silent before the ice left. Snorri slipped the latch, set the ball of his foot to the timber, and kicked his door open as hard as he could. Someone howled in pain and staggered back. Snorri barreled through into a moonless night pierced by lantern light, more lanterns being unhooded by the moment. Snow lay thick on the ground. It fell in fat and heavy flakes, spring snow, not the tiny crystals of winter. Snorri's bare feet nearly slid from beneath him, but he kept his balance, swung, and sank his axe into the spine of the man still clutching his face after kissing the door. A savage tug ripped the blade free of the man's lower back as he collapsed. Raid! Snorri bellowed it. To arms! Lower down the slope, a fire struggled to keep burning on the turf roof of a hut closer to shore. Dark shapes hurried past amidst white flurries, caught in the glow for a moment, then swallowed by the night once more. Foreigners, then. Vikings might set torch to thatch when raiding in warmer climes, but none of them would waste time on that in the north. Figures converged on Snorri, three rounding the hut, half running, one tripping over the log stack. Others came up the slope, smaller, scrawny shapes that made no sense to the eye. Snorri rushed the closest trio. Darkness, flame, and shadow offered little chance to pick out the glimmer of weapons and defend himself. Snorri made no attempt at it, relying instead on the logic that says, if you kill your foe immediately, you have no need of shield or armor, no need to parry or to evade. He swung, double-handed, arms extended, body turning with the blow. Hell sheared through the first man's head, hit the second in the shoulder, and buried deep enough to leave his arms swinging on threads. Snorri reversed his turn, feeling but not seeing the hot spray of blood across his shoulders as he spun. The rotation brought him level with the third man, rising with an oath amongst the scattered logs. Snorri's chin caught the man's face, his momentum wrenched hell free, and he brought the axe down, overhead, as he had so many times before in this very spot, a different axe, splitting logs for the fire. The result was much the same. Something hissed past his ear. Cries and screams went up across eight keys now, some terrified, some the terminal sounds men make when wounded beyond repair. He could hear Freya shouting at the children inside the hut, getting them to stand behind her, by the stone hearth. Something sharp struck him between the shoulders, not hard, but sharp. He turned, sighting figures atop Hender's hut, straddling the roof, dislodging the snow to fall in miniature avalanches, some kind of sticks in their hands. A dart struck him in the shoulder, no longer than his finger. He pulled at it, running for Hender's doorway, where he could be out of sight from the roof. The dart resisted, its barbs hooked deep in his flesh. And yet there was no pain, just a numbness. Snorri ripped the thing free, careless of the damage. Hender's door hung from one leather hinge. Men in black rags huddled over something at the far end of the main chamber, hinted at by the glow of a dying fire. The place stank of rot. So bad it made Snorri's eyes sting, rotten meat 
and an acrid bog stench. Dark footprints marked the floor around a pool of blood before the hearth. A roar from behind brought Snorri twisting back to the scene outside. Before Magson's hut, Olaf Magson laid around him with the broad sword his father won from a Connaught prince. His son, Ulrich, beside him with a torch flaring in one hand and a hand axe in the other. Bragged men pressed in on all sides, weaponless, their flesh sunken, skins dark-stained, hair in black ropes. They came forwards, even without hands, even with Ulrich's hand-axe buried in the joint between neck and shoulder. A huge figure strode past the melee, wolf-skins trailing from its shoulders, double-headed battle-axe in one hand, small iron buckler in the other. Two Vikings kept at his side. Brokor. Snorri breathed the name, pressing back against the log wall. Few men overtopped Snorri, and only one was renegade and traitor enough for this night's work. Though, had anyone accused the Brokor of sailing with necromancers, Snorri would have laughed at the notion. Until now. Small darts stood from Olaf Magson's neck. Snorri saw them in the torchlight as Ulrich went down, grappled by his attackers. Magson tried to lift his sword, arms trembling, then vanished beneath his foes. Snorri reached up between his shoulders and pulled the dart there clear. He had pressed it deeper against the wall and not felt it. Even now, a weakness ran through him. Dead men moved towards the door of Snorri's hut, stepping frozen-footed through the snow. Between the Verluten's hut, a hundred yards up shore, the Brokor and a handful of his men stood with torches raised. Around them, mire ghouls found the rooftops, blowpipes ready. From the shoreline, voices barked orders, their accents strange, clipped, like those of Breton men. The Drowned Isles, then, arrayed from the Drowned Isles, guided in by Sven Brokor. It made no sense. The first dead man set his frost-black hands upon Snorri's door. When Snorri had seen Emmy that morning, walking with a five-year-old's lack of guile along the long quay, he'd known a terror like no other. His child had been, in that moment, out of reach, alone with her danger. It hadn't been the danger that unmanned him, but his inability to stand between it and her. Thor, watch me. Snorri had never had much time for calling on gods. He might raise a flagon to Odin on feast day, or swear by hell when they stitched his wounds, but in general he saw them as an ideal, a code to live by, not an ear to moan and complain into. Now, though, he prayed, and launched himself into the corpse crowd before his door. As Snorri broke cover, he heard nothing above his own battle roar, not the ghouls' sharp exhalations or the hissing flight of their darts. Even the sting as they punctured his shoulder, arm, and neck he barely noticed. He took the head from the closest of the dead men, the arm that reached for him, a hand, another head. All the time hell felt heavier in his hands, as if the axe were stone. 
Even his arms grew heavy, muscles almost unable to bear the weight of the bones they wrapped. A black fist struck him, frost-bitten knuckles hammering his temples. Hands caught hold around his knees, some fallen opponent still unable to die despite grievous wounds. Snorri started to fall, toppling to the side. With the last of his strength, he launched himself to break the grip around his legs, rolling heels overhead along the icy margins of his hut. The invaders pressed on towards the hut's door in a tight huddle, leaving only the pieces of bodies shorn by his axe and a corpse near severed at the spine, but hauling itself towards him hand over hand. A numbness ran through Snorri, deep as any that cold will put in a man. He couldn't feel his limbs, though he saw his arms before him, corpse-white, and smeared with the dark ichor that lay still in the dead men's veins. No part of him would move, even though every fibre of his will demanded it. Only the sound of door planks splintering shocked his traitor body into rising. An avalanche hammered him back to the ground. Something on the roof of his hut, ghouls shifting the snow as they scampered into position, and in one mass it fell, pressing him down with a soft but implacable hand. Snorri lay helpless, the last of his strength gone, his naked body entombed in snow, waiting for death, waiting for the strangling grip of dead hands or the teeth of ghouls, or the axe of one of Brokor's reavers. No matter what the Brokor was being paid, he would want no witnesses to this night's shame. A high shriek reached him, even through his cocoon of snow. Emmy! Then Freya's screams, her battle cry, a mother's rage, the roar from Karl, his eldest, as he attacked. Every part of his mind howled for motion, every ounce of his will trying to force his arms to reach, legs to pump. But no piece of him moved. All that anger and desperation, yet only a sigh escaped the numbness of his lips, drooling into the blind white all about him. The incessant tapping had woken him. The tap, tap, tap of rain. Rain pouring off the eaves, washing away the snow, taking the ice from his eyelids so he could open them to the day. He turned his head and the water ran from his eyes. The remains of the snow heap lay around him, a touch whiter than the marble of his flesh. Snow makes a soft bed, but no man wakes from it. That was the wisdom of the North. Snorri had seen enough drunks frozen where they slept to know the truth of it. A groan escaped him. This was death. His dead body would shamble after the corpse legions, his mind trapped within. He had never thought that good men might watch helpless from behind dead eyes, enthralled to necromancers. Still the water splattered across him, gushing from behind the fascia board, falling in a grey curtain along all the roof's edge. It beat at his ear, ran across his chest, 
almost warm, though icicles fringed the eaves, defying the thaw. He rolled clear across half-frozen ground. The motion took him by surprise, left him unsure whether he owned it or not. The raid. As if Snorri's mind were thawing too, memory began to leak behind his eyes. In a moment he found his feet, rain starting to clean the mud from his side. He stood, unsteady, a tremble running through him, the cold reaching him for the first time. Gods, no! He stumbled forwards, reaching for the wall for support, though his hands had no more sensation in them than his feet. The door lay flat, torn off its leather hinges, the interior beyond strewn with bed furs, broken pots, scattered corn. Snorri staggered in, searching through the furs with blunt fingers, seized by a shivering beyond his control, tossing the bedding aside, dreading to find nothing, dreading to find something. In the end, he discovered only a pool of blood on the hearthstone, dark and sticky and smeared by feet. Against the whiteness of his fingers, the blood regained its crimson vitality. Whose blood? How much spilled? Nothing left of his wife, of his children, but blood? At the door, a clump of red hair caught his attention, snagged by a crack in the support, made to dance in the wind. Egil! Snorri reached for his son's hair with blood-stained hands. Convulsions overtook him, and he fell back, thrashing and trembling amongst the hides of grey wolf and black bear. How many hours it took for the ghoul's poison to leave him, Snorri could not have said. The venom that had preserved him in the snow, slowing his heart and drawing back life into the tightest core, now restored all sensation as it left his system. It put an edge on each of the senses, heightening the pain of returning circulation, making a misery of the cold, despite being wrapped with many furs, even putting fresh barbs on a grief that already seemed beyond enduring. He raged and he shook, and by slow degrees both warmth and strength returned to his limbs. He dressed, tying laces with still numb fingers, in an ecstasy of fumbling, pulled his boots on, crammed the last of the winter's stores into his travel pack, dry hake and black biscuit, salt in a wrap of sealskin, fat in an earthenware jar. He took his travelling skins, seal in two layers, trapping the down of the cliff gull. Above it, he wore a wolfskin, a grey beast that, like the dark bears, travelled north with the summer and retreat before the snows. It would be enough. Spring had won her war, and like the summer wolf, Snorri would strike north and take what he needed. I will find you, he promised the empty room, promised the dent in the bed where his wife had slept, promised the roof above them, the sky above it, the gods on high. And ducking the lintel, Snorri Versnogason left his home to find his axe amidst the thaw. And did you find it?
I asked, imagining his father's axe lying there in the melting snow and Snorri lifting it with awful purpose. Not first. The Norseman's voice put so much despair into just two words, I couldn't ask him to speak more and held my peace. But a moment later, he spoke on, unprompted. I found Emmy first, discarded on a midden heap, limp and ragged, like a lost doll. No sound but for the crackle of the fire beside us. I wanted him to keep silent, to say nothing more. The ghouls had eaten most of her face. She still had eyes, though. I'm so sorry. And I was. Snorri's magic had reached into me again and made me brave. In that moment, I wanted to be the one to stand between the child and her attackers, to keep her safe, and failing that, to hunt them to the ends of the earth. Death must have been a kindness. She wasn't dead. No emotion in his voice now. None. And the night felt thick around us, the dark deepening into blindness, swallowing stars. I pulled two ghoul darts from her, and she started to scream. He lay down, and the fire dimmed as if choked by its own smoke, though it had burned clean enough when set. Death was kind. He drew a sharp breath, but no father should have to give such a kindness to his child. I lay down too, no care for the hard ground, damp cloak, empty stomach. A tear made its way along the side of my nose. Snorri's magic had left me. My only desire lay south, back in the comforts of the Red Queen's palace. An echo of his misery rang in me and confused itself with my own. That tear might have been for little Emmy. It might have been for me. It probably was for me, but I'll tell myself it was for both of us, and perhaps one day I'll believe it. Chapter 12 on the morning after Snorri's tale of horror in the north, we neither of us spoke of it. He broke his fast in a sombre mood, but by the time it came to ride on, his good humour had returned. Much of the man was a mystery to me, but this I understood well enough. We all practice self-deception to a degree. No man can handle complete honesty without being cut at each turn. There's not enough room in a man's head for sanity alongside each grief, each worry, each terror that he owns. I'm well used to burying such things in a dark cellar and moving on. Snorri's demons might have escaped into a quiet moment the night before while we sat watching the stars, but now he harried them back into some cellar of his own and barred the door once more. There's tears enough in the world to drown in but Snorri and I knew that action requires an uncluttered mind. We knew how to set such things aside and move on. Of course, he wanted to move on to daring rescue and bloody revenge in the north, whilst I wanted to move on to sweet women and soft living in the south. Another day's travel, damp, 
muddy grey skies and a stiff wind. Another roadside camp with too little food and too much rain. I woke the next morning at dawn, disappointed to find myself beneath the same dripping hedge and wet cloak I'd shivered myself to sleep under the evening before. My dreams had been full of strangeness. At first, the usual horror of the demon from the opera stalking us through the rain-dark night. Later, though, my nightmare became full of light, and it seemed a voice addressed me from a great distance at the heart of all that brilliance. I could almost make out the words. And finally, as I opened my eyes to the first grey hints of the day, it seemed I saw, through the blurry, lash-filled slit of my eyes, an angel, wing-spread, outlined in a rosy glow. And at last, one word reached me. Barakel. Three more days riding through the continuous downpour that served as a ronish summer, and I was more than ready to gallop back south towards the myriad pleasures of home, only fear bound me to our course, fear of what lay behind, and fear of what would happen if I got too far from Snorri. Would the cracks run through me from toe to head, spilling out light and heat until I crisped? Also fear of his pursuit. He would know the direction I took, and though I trusted my riding skills to keep me safely ahead in the chase, I had less faith in the city walls town guard and palace security to keep the Norsemen out once I'd stopped running. Twice over the next three days, I saw a figure, half imagined through miles of rain, on distant ridges, dark against the bright sky. Common sense said it was a herder following his flock, or some hunter about his business. Every nerve I owned told me it was the unborn, escaped from the sister's spell and dogging our heels. Both times I urged my gelding into a canter, and kept Snorri bouncing along behind me until I'd outrun the worst of the cold terror the sight put in me. With dwindling resources, we ate mean fare in small portions, cooked by peasants I wouldn't trust to feed my horse. We spent two more sleepless nights huddled beneath lean-to shelters of branches and bracken that Snorri constructed against the hedgerows. He claimed it to be all a man needed for slumber, and proceeded to snore all night. The downpour he proclaimed to be fine damp weather. North of Hardanger, the children would run naked in warm rains like these. We don't sew our bearskins on until the sea starts to freeze, he said. I nearly hit him. I slept better in the saddle than I had in his shelter, but wherever sleep found me, dreams came too. Always the same theme, some inner darkness, a place of peace and isolation, violated by light first bleeding through a hairline fracture, then brightening as the crack forks and divides, and beyond the thin and breaking walls of my sanctum, some brilliance too blinding to look upon. And a voice, 
calling my name. Jal. 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 What? I jerked awake to find myself cold and sodden in the saddle. Jal. Snorri nodded ahead. A town. The sixth night out from Pentecost saw us in through the gates of a small, walled town named Chamonix. The place sounded vaguely promising, but proved to be a big letdown. Just another wet, ronish town, as dour and worthy as all the rest. Worse still, it was one of those damnable places where the locals pretend not to speak the Empire tongue. They do, of course but they hide behind some or other ancient language, as if taking pride in being so primitive. The trick is to repeat yourself louder and louder until the message gets through. That's probably the one thing my military training was good for. I'm great at shouting. Not quite the boom that Snorri manages, but a definite blare that comes in handy for dressing down unruly servants, insubordinate junior officers, and, of course, as a last-ditch means of intimidating men who might otherwise put a sword through me. Part of the art of survival, as a coward, is not letting things get to the point where that cowardice is exposed. If you can bluster your way through dangerous situations, it's all to the good, and a fine shouting voice helps immensely. Snorri led us to a dreadful dive, a low-roofed subterranean tavern thick with the stink of wet bodies, spilled ale and wood smoke. It's a touch warmer and slightly less damp than outside, I'll grant you. I elbowed my way through the crowd at the bar. Local men, dark-haired, swarthy, variously missing teeth or sporting knife scars, packed around small tables towards the back in a haze of pipe smoke. At least the ale will be cheap. Snorri slapped what might be our only copper on the beer-puddled counter. Qu'est-ce que vous voulez boire? The barkeep asked, still wiping someone's spit from the tankard he intended to serve in. Qu'est-ce que what? I leaned in over the counter, natural caution erased by six days of rain and the foul mood that torrent had exposed. Two ales, the best you have. The man favoured me with the blankest of stares. I drew breath to repeat myself rather more loudly. Deux bières, s'il vous plaît, et que vous rendez repas? Snorri answered, sliding his coin forwards. What the hell? I blinked at him, talking over the barkeep's reply. How? I mean, I wasn't raised speaking the tongue, you know. Snorri shook his head as if I were an idiot, and took the first full tankard. When you've had to learn one new language, you develop an interest in others. I took the tankard from him, and eyed the beer with suspicion. It looked foreign. The floating suds made an island that put me in mind of some alien place where they'd never heard of Red March, and cut Prince's nose slack. That put a bad taste in my mouth, before I'd even sipped it. We of the North are great traders, you know, Snorri continued, though what sign I'd given that I might be interested I could not imagine. Far more comes in through our ports on Norse cargo ships than in the holds of longboats returning from raids. 
Many a Norseman knows three, four, even five languages. Why, I myself... I turned away and took my foul-tasting beer off towards the tables, leaving Snorri to negotiate the food in whatever mangled tongue was required. Finding a space proved problematic. The first burly peasant I approached refused to move, despite my obvious station, instead hunkering over his huge bowl of what looked to be shit soup but smelled infinitely worse, and ignoring me. He muttered something like, Murdtet, as I moved off. The rest of the ill-mannered louts kept to their seats, and in the end I had to squeeze into place beside a nearly spherical woman drinking gin from a clay cup. The soup man then proceeded to give me the evil eye whilst toying with his wicked-looking knife, an implement generally not required for the consumption of soup, until Snorri came up with his beer and two plates of steaming offal. Budge up, he ordered, and the whole row of locals edged along, my neighbour wobbling like gelatin as she undulated to the left, leaving sufficient room for the new addition. I eyed the plate before me. This is what any decent butcher removes from the, what I'll generously assume was a cow, before sending it to the kitchens. Snorri started tucking in. And what you leave will make a meal for someone who's really hungry. Eat up, Jal. Jal again. I would have to sort that out with him sometime soon. Snorri cleared his plate in about the same time it took me to decide which bit of mine looked least dangerous. He took a stale hunk of bread from his pocket and started scraping up the gravy. That fellow with the knife looks like he wants to stick it in you, Jal. What can you expect from this kind of establishment? I tried for a manly growl. You get what you pay for, and soon we won't be able to pay for even this. Snorri shrugged. Your choice. If you want luxury, sell your locket. I restrained myself from laughing at the barbarian's ignorance. All the more puzzling as you would think a man accustomed to the business of loot and pillage would have a better eye when it came to appraising which valuables to carry off. What is it with you and my locket? You're a brave man, Jarl, Snorri said, apropos of nothing. He poked the last bit of the bread between his lips and started chewing, cheeks bulging. I frowned, trying to figure out why he'd said that. Was it some kind of threat? I also tried to figure out what the thing dangling from the end of my knife was. I put it in my mouth. Best not to know. Finally, Snorri managed to swallow down his huge mouthful and explained. You let Mary's Alus break your finger rather than pay your debts. And yet you could have paid the man off at any time with that trinket of yours. You chose not to. You chose to keep and honour the memory of your mother over your own safety. That's loyalty to family. That's honour. That's nonsense. Anger got the better of me. It had been a rotten day. A rotten week. The worst ever. I whipped the locket from its hiding place in a small pocket under my arm. Better judgment warned me against it. Worse judgment warned me too. But Snorri had worn both away. Snorri and the rain.
This, I said, is a simple piece of silver, and I've never been brave in my... Snorri tapped it out of my hand and sent it sailing in a bright and glittering arc that set it splashing down in the soup man's dish, splattering him with a generous helping of brown muck. If it's not worth anything, and you're not brave, then you won't be going over there to get it back. To my astonishment, I found myself most of the way across the intervening space before Snorri had got past his third word— Soup Man rose, bawling out some threat in his gibberish. Murdette featured again. His knife looked even more unpleasant up close, and in a desperate attempt to stop him sticking it into me, I caught hold of his wrist while punching him in the throat as hard as I could. Sadly, his chin got in the way, but I knocked him back, and as a bonus, the wall smacked him round the back of the head. We stood there, me frozen in fear, him spitting out blood and soup through the gaps left by missing teeth. I clung onto his wrist for dear life before realising that he wasn't making any effort to stab me. At that point, I noticed that my dinner knife was still clenched in the fist I had wedged under his chin, a fact that he had already registered. I stared expectantly at his knife hand, and he obliged by opening it to let his blade fall. I released his wrist and snagged the chain of my locket from the edge of his bowl, bringing the trinket dripping from the soup. If you have a problem, peasant, bring it up with the man who threw it. My voice and hand shook with what I hoped would be considered suppressed manly rage, but was in fact cold terror. I nodded towards Snorri. Having kicked the man's knife under the table, I withdrew my own from beneath his chin and returned to sit by the Norseman, making sure my back was to the wall. You bastard, I said. Snorri tilted his head. Seems that a man who would come back with my sword against an unborn wasn't going to be scared of a mill worker with an eating knife. Even so, if it were worthless, you might have paused for thought before going to reclaim it. I wiped at the casing with what had left the city of Vermilion as a handkerchief and was now little more than a grey rag. It's my mother's picture, you ignorant! The soup smeared away to reveal the jewel-set platinum beneath. Oh. I'll admit that, seen through a coating of muck and the misting in my eyes, it was hard to judge the thing's value but Snorri had not been far off. I remembered now the day that great-uncle Garius set the locket in my hand. It had glittered then, catching the light within cut diamonds and returning it in sparkles. The platinum had glowed with that silver fire that makes men treasure it above gold. I remembered it now as I hadn't for many years. I'm a good liar, a great one. And to be a great liar, you have to live your lies, to believe them, to the point that when you tell them to yourself enough times, even what's right before your eyes will bend itself to the falsehood. Every day, year on year, I took that locket and turned it in my hand and saw only cheap silver and paste. 
Each time my debts grew, I told myself the locket was worth a little less. I told myself it wasn't worth selling, and I offered myself that lie because I had promised old Garius, up there on his bed in that lonely tower, crippled and twisted as he was, that I would keep it safe. And because it held my mother's picture, and I didn't want a reason to sell it. Day by day, by imperceptible degrees, the lie became real, the truth so forgotten, so walled away, that I sat there and denied Mary's Alice. The lie became so real that not even when the bastard had his man break my finger did any whisper of the truth reach me and allow me to betray that trust to save my hide. Ignorant what? asked Snorri, without rancor. Huh? I looked up from cleaning the locket. One of the diamonds had come loose, perhaps from hitting the bowl. It came free in my fingers, and I held it up. Let's get some real food. Mother wouldn't begrudge me. And so it began. Already the gleam of the thing was attracting attention. A man watched intently from the bar. A man with short, iron-gray hair, save for a peculiar broad strip, darker than a raven's wing across the top, as though the years had missed that part. I hid the locket away sharpish, and he smiled, but kept on looking, as if I'd been the object of his interest all along. For a moment, I felt a shudder of recognition, though I'd swear I never met the man. The déjà vu passed as my fingers left the locket, and I busied myself with my ale. Snorri spent the last of his money on a bigger bowl of slop, more ale, and a few square yards of space on the floor of the tavern's communal sleeping hall. The hall seemed to serve as a method to prevent loss of drunks, who might otherwise wander off in search of a spot to sleep and awake closer to some competing tavern. By the time we were ready to retire, the remaining locals were busy roaring out songs in old Ronish. Alliwetter, jaunties, alliwetter, boomed Snorri, rising from his seat. A fine singing voice you have, to be sure. This from a man close by, nursing a pewter cup that brimmed with dark liquor. I looked up to find it was the fellow with the blue-black strip amidst his greying hair. Hedristine, I am. Traveller myself. Will you be heading north in the morning? He stepped from the bar and leaned in to be heard above the song. South, Snorri said, the humour gone from him. South? Do you say so? Edris nodded and sipped his drink. He had a hard look about him under the smile, a smile that not only reached his eyes but filled them with good humour, which is a difficult trick to pull if you don't mean it. Even so, something in the thin seamed scars along his arms, pale through the dirt, made me nervous. That and the quick but solid build of the body wrapped by the worn leather jerkin and the knives at each hip, not the kind for eating, more the kind for opening a bear from gut to growl. He had a thick ridge of scar on his cheek too, an old one, running along the bone. 
that one drew my eye and made me hate him. I couldn't say why. Edra smacked his lips and called across to two men he'd been with at the bar. Surf, he says. Both men joined us. My associates, Darab Voir and Megan. Darab looked to have a touch of the Afrique in his mix, swarthy and a bruiser, overtopping me by an inch or so, with the blackest eyes and ritual scar patterns on his neck vanishing down into his tunic. Megan scared me the most, though. Smallest of the three, but with long, ropey arms and pale eyes that put me in mind of Cutter John. Beneath a pretense of casual interest, all of them studied me with an intensity that set my teeth on edge. They marked Snorri, too, and I found myself wishing he hadn't stowed his axe with the horses. Stay, have another ale. This lot are only getting warmed up. Edris waved at the tables, where the singing had reached a whole new level. No. Snorri didn't smile. Snorri had smiled at the bear. Now he looked grim. We'll sleep well enough, song or no. And with that, turned his broad back on the trio and walked off. I managed an apologetic grin, sped my hands and backed away after him, instinct not allowing me to present the space between my shoulder blades to them. In the gloom of the next hall, it was easy enough to find Snorri. He made the largest lump. What was that about? I hissed at him. Trouble, he said. Mercenaries. They've been watching us half the night. Is this about the locket? I asked. I hope so. He was right. Any alternatives I could imagine were worse than robbery. Why would they tip their hand? Why be so obvious? It made no sense to me. Because they don't mean to act now. They might hope to spook us into unprepared action. But failing that, it's just to give us a night or two without sleep to wear at our nerves. I settled down close by, kicking aside the outstretched arm of a rather pungent human-shaped lump and the legs of another. Tomorrow I'd sell that diamond and put an end to this nightly misery of choosing between stench and lice or cold and rain. I made a pillow of my cloak and set my head on it. Well, I said, if they meant to spook us, it's working. I kept my eyes on the arch into the barroom and the shapes in silhouette that passed back and forth. Damned if I'm sleeping. I will... A familiar rumbling snore cut through me. Snorri? Snorri? Chapter 13 Never having been troubled by a conscience before, I was far from sure what to expect of one, and so when, for a minute or two each day at dawn, a voice began to whisper to me to be a better man— I decided the shock of recent events had finally woken mine. My conscience had a name. Barakel. I didn't like him much. 
From the moment I'd jerked into the waking world that morning, suddenly terrified that I'd fallen asleep with Edris and his murderers waiting close by, to the moment we left town under a brightening sky, I'd been looking over my shoulder. "'You won't miss them,' Snorri said. "'No?' There was no part of Rhone I would miss, though perhaps now, with my purse fat and jingling once more, the nation might open her arms to me and deign to show a visiting prince a good time. "'There'll be too many to hide.' Snorri's voice wobbled with the gait of his steed, jolting up and down when the mare picked up the pace. "'How do you know that?' Annoyance coloured my question. I didn't like the open reminder of our troubles. With Snorri, troubles were always put front and centre and dealt with. My style was more to shove them under the rug until the floor got too uneven to navigate, and then to move house. He was too confident, that Edris. There'll be a dozen of them at least. Shit! A dozen. I squeezed my nag along that little bit faster. I'd named the gelding Ron, after the amazing Ronaldo, whose ill-advised bet with Snorri had financed the early part of our trip. We rattled along up the valley at a decent pace, fast enough to startle the sheep in successive fields into waves of woolly panic. It had to be said that, as uninspiring as Chamonix was, the surroundings viewed with the morning, coming up red and rosy behind them, were quite stunning. Rhone gets hilly as you work your way north. Hills become mountains, mountains become peaks, and from Chamonix you can see the white heights of the Opes, mountains so tall and so legion that they divide the empire more surely than a blade. In many senses, the empire had always been broken, and the Opes were the sword that divided it. An hour later, gaining height and with our path back to Chamonix laid out behind us, I spotted the pursuit. Hell, that looks like a lot more than a dozen. And a dozen was a lot more than we could handle. In fact, if it had been only Edris, Darab and Megan, that would have been too many. My stomach folded around itself in a cold knot. I remembered the Aral Pass. There's no way any sensible person could view the prospect of someone else attempting to open them up with a sharp edge as anything but terrifying. I found myself eyeing up the larger rocks in the hope I might hide beneath one of them. Twenty. Near enough. Snorri looked back up the track and nudged Sleipnir on. He told me the original bearer of the name in his heathen tales had sported eight legs, it's possible that on such an over-endowed beast even Snorri stood a chance of outpacing the band on our trail. On any regular mount, though, it was never going to happen. Maybe if we just left the locket here. It took about three seconds for my resolve to fail. I could abandon Snorri and set Edris's band a stiffer test. By rights I could win clear, but Ron was far from the best of horses, and in such mountainous terrain it's easy to lame an animal if you push too hard. That would leave me meeting the band alone, if, of course, I managed to survive Snorri's death, given the magics binding us. Abandoning the locker to them seemed the easiest of paths. 
Snorri just laughed, as if I'd made a joke. We should keep one of them alive, he said. I want to know who set them on us. Oh, right. A madman. I was riding with a madman. I'll try to keep the small one for later. Snorri, it seemed, was as capable of deluding himself about upcoming battles as I was about the value of my locket. Perhaps that was all bravery was, a form of delusion. It certainly made it much easier to understand, if that were the case. We need a good place to make a stand. Snorri cast about as if this might be such a place. I could have told him with some confidence that no such place existed. Anywhere. Instead, I tried a different tactic. We need to get higher up. I pointed to the barren slopes above us, where the mean grass lost its footing and bare rock cut a path towards the heavens. We'll have to abandon our horses, but so will they, and then the fact that you can't ride for shit won't matter any more. And if I had my way, we'd lose Edris's party amongst the confusion of ridge and gorge, then win free to buy better horses somewhere else. Snorri rubbed his short beard pursed his lips, looked back at the distant band, and nodded. Better if everyone is on two feet. I led the way, urging Ron off the track and up towards the ridges impossibly far above us. Beyond those ridges, peaks rose, white with snow and brilliant in the sunshine. A fresh breeze followed us up the side of the valley, offering a helpful push, and for a while... I felt hope sinking its cruel hooks into me. Tough mountain grass gave way to boulder fields and scree. Sleipnir's hooves skittered out from under her, and she fell, legs flailing, looking for a moment as if she might actually have eight of them. Snorri grunted as he hit the ground, pulling clear while Sleipnir struggled to right herself. That hurt. He brushed his thigh where the horse's weight had pressed, and then used his fingers to pry loose the small stones embedded into his flesh. I'll walk from here. I stayed in the saddle for another five or ten minutes, while Snorri hobbled along without complaint. At last, though, even with my expert guidance, the going became too steep for Ron. Rather than wait for the inevitable tumble, which would probably see us both rolling down the slopes to where Snorri had had his own fall, I dismounted. Off you go, Ronaldo. The climb ahead of us would test a mountain goat. I gave his flank a sound slap and moved on, burdened once more beneath my few possessions. The sword that Snorri had given me was the heaviest of my loads, and kept trying to trip me. I held on to it mainly to please the Norseman, though my ultimate plan was to throw it away and beg for mercy if cornered. The wind became less friendly as we gained height, colder and capricious, seeming to press us to the rocks one moment, then, in the next, try to yank us clear so that we might tumble back the way we'd come. I paused frequently to check the progress of our pursuit, they had ridden harder than us and abandoned their horses later. A bad sign. These were driven men. 
Ahead of me, Snorri crested the ridge we'd been aiming for during the long climb. He still hobbled, but his injury seemed no worse than it had been at the start. Crap! The Aral Pass ran between two huge mountains in the Augur Range on the Scoran borderlands. I had always felt that mountains could come no larger. The rocks at the bottom would surely be unable to support the weight. I had been wrong. The opes above Chamonix deceived the eye. It's not until you get amongst them that you understand just how ridiculously big they are. A whole city would be little more than a stain on the flanks of the tallest. Beyond the ridge we now clung to, defying a murderous wind, rose a second ridge, and a third, and a fourth, each separated by deep-cut gorges, the slopes between variously lethal with scree are unclimbably steep, and all the ways open to us lay divided by smaller gorges and littered with boulders the size of buildings, each poised to fall. Snorri set off, grunting once as his foot tried to slip out from under him. I knew if he started to slow me down, I would leave him behind. I wouldn't want to, and I would dislike myself for doing so but nothing would compel me to stand against twenty mercenaries. It sounded better like that. More reasonable. Twenty mercenaries. The truth was that nothing would compel me to stand against one mercenary, but twenty sounded like a better excuse to leave a friend in the lurch. A friend? I pondered that one on the way down. An acquaintance sounded better. By the time we needed to start heading up again, there were few parts of me that didn't hurt. I've developed a good degree of resilience when it comes to riding. Walking, not so much. Climbing, none at all. W wait a minute, I panted, trying to snatch a breath from the wind. Less fierce in the valley, but still insistent. The air seemed thinner, unwilling to replenish my lungs. Snorri didn't appear to notice, his breathing scarcely harder now than when we started the climb. Come, he said it with a grin, though he had grown more sombre as we went on. It's good to take a stand in a high place. Good for the battle, good for the soul. We'll make an end of this. He looked back at the ridge we descended from. I had dark dreams last night. Of late, all my dreaming has been dark. But there's nothing of darkness in warriors met for battle on a mountainside beneath a wide sky. That, my friend, is stuff of legend. Valhalla awaits. He thumped my shoulder and turned to climb. My children will forgive their father if he dies fighting to be with them. Rubbing at my shoulder and at the stitch in my side, I followed. His... Warriors met beneath a wide sky nonsense was full of darkness as far as I was concerned, but as long as we were still doing our best not to meet the mercenaries anywhere at all, then we were in accord. We had to scramble in places, leaning so far forwards we practically kissed the mountain, reaching for crevices in the folded bedrock to haul ourselves up. My breath came ragged, the cold air filling my lungs like knives. I watched Snorri pathfinding, sure, measured, no fatigue, 
but favouring his uninjured leg. He had spoken of his dreams, but he didn't have to. I'd slept alongside him, heard his muttering, as if he argued the night away with some visitor, and when he woke that morning on the tavern floor, his eyes, usually a Nordic blue, sky pale, were black as coals. By the time he rose to breakfast, no trace of the change remained, and I could pretend it a trick of shadows in a hall lit only by borrowed light. But I had not imagined it. I sighted the first of the pursuit cresting the ridge behind us while we closed the last hundred yards to the ridge above us. Losing sight of them as we descended the next gorge gave me some comfort. Troubles are troublesome enough without having to look at them all the time. I hoped they'd find the going as tough as I had, and that at least a few of the bastards would take the last tumble of their lives. The shadows started to reach, straightening the slopes. My body told me we'd been climbing for a month at the least, but my mind was surprised to discover the day almost over. Night would at least offer a chance to stop, to snatch some rest. Nobody could navigate slopes like these in the dark. Mountains are pretty, at a distance, but my advice is to never let them get to be more than scenery. If you have to crane your neck to look at something, you're too close. By the time we were approaching the top of the third ridge, I was practically crawling. Any disloyal thoughts about abandoning Snorri with his injured leg were cast aside far below us. I had promoted him to best friend and to man most likely to carry me. In places, it wasn't the steepness that had me crawling, but sheer exhaustion, my raw lungs unable to draw sufficient breath to work my limbs. We threaded our way along a series of broad ledges littered with boulders from man-size to ones that dwarfed elephants, hunting along each ledge for climbable access to the next. Come, it's easy. Snorri looked down at me from the level above, holding at a hand. I'd come to a halt about two-thirds of the way up, caught on a steep field of loose, frost-shattered stone resting on solid rock beneath. I took a step towards him, reaching for the offered hand. I started to say, fuck, but as my boot continued to slide, the word drew out into a wail that turned into a scream and ended with an oof and me and my arse. Try again, Snorri, ever helpful. I can't. I said it through gritted teeth. My ankle had filled with a hot, liquid pain. I'd felt the joint flex past any angle any ankle should make. There might have been a snapping under my scream, or perhaps just a tearing, but either way, the idea of putting weight on it was not one I could entertain. Get up! Snorri roared it at me as if I were a common soldier on parade. He would have made a good drill sergeant because I was on my feet before better judgment could stop me. I toppled forwards and collapsed screaming, hiking my breath in to vent in successively louder outbursts. When I fell silent, I could hear a slithering of stones, and a second later Snorri loomed above me, blocking out the day. I don't abandon comrades, he said. Come on. I'll help you. 
Now, I'm not a man who takes his pleasure in other men, but in that moment, Snorri's over-muscled and sweaty embrace was a thousand times more welcome than any I might get from Cherry or Lisa. He hefted me over one shoulder and started walking. The proximity caused that strange, crackling energy to begin building between us, but I was prepared to risk it being less fatal than Edrus and his murderers. Thank you, I burbled, half delirious with the pain. I knew you wouldn't leave me. I knew... Snorri stopped and set me with my back to a boulder, propped up on one foot. What? It's fine. Snorri cast about, studying the layout of the boulders, the width of the ledge. This will do. Here. I'm not leaving. I want you to leave. I hissed the words past gritted teeth. Keep going, you big lummox. Just take me with you. I kept that last part behind my teeth, not because Snorri might think badly of me, but just because I didn't think it would change his mind. Of course, if he actually made to leave, I would be immediately addressing the issue of being hauled along too. Further now, me play-acting the bluff hero would at least keep him happy, and more likely to put some effort into defending me in my incapacitated state. Snorri unlimbered his axe, he would have been more content with the broad crescent of a Norse axe, suited to the shearing off of limbs. The weapon he carried sported a heavy wedge of a blade, designed to punch a hole in armour. If the mercenaries had any significant armour, and yet had managed to climb up to where we were, then we might as well give up, since they'd have to be supermen. A short way back, the ledge narrowed, and a huge rock sealed off all but two or three feet of it, leaving a harrowing stretch where we had to edge along the boulder beside a drop of ten yards to the ledge below. Snorri crouched down where he would be out of sight of the men as they came along that open and narrow path. That's the plan. You surprise the first one, and then it's just the other nineteen to deal with? Yes. He shrugged. I was only running because I knew you'd stay with me, and I didn't want your death on my hands, Jarl. Now we're in it together as the gods must have wanted from the start. The smile he offered made me really want to punch him. We're out of sight. We could hide. They go past, spread out, lose us, give up. They can't track us on rock. I didn't mention he'd have to carry me. Snorri shook his head. They could wait us out. If we tried to leave the ledges, they'd see us on the more exposed slopes. Better this way. But... There's fucking twenty of them, you moron! They're strung out, Jal. A proper leader would have kept them together, but they're too confident, eager for the kill. The four or five at the front are nearly a quarter of a mile ahead of the last man. He spat as if to show his disgust for their poor tactics. I would have spat too but my mouth was too dry. Steady on. Let's think this one through. Snorri cut me off with a hiss and a raised hand. A clatter of rock on rock from the ledge below. An oath. I hadn't realised how much I'd been slowing the Norseman down. Our pursuers were only minutes behind. I lay back against the cold rock. My final resting place. 
I would likely die within a yard of it. At our elevation, the mountain held nothing in common with the world I knew. Just bare, fractured stone. Too exposed and too high for lichen or moss. Not a twig or scrap of grass or any hint of green to rest the eye upon. As lonely a spot as I'd ever seen. Nearer to God, perhaps. But God forsaken. In the west, the sun dropped towards high and snow-capped peaks, the sky crimson all about them. Snorri grinned across at me, eyes clear and blue once more, the wind playing raven hair around his neck, across his shoulders. He saw death as a release. I could see that now. Too much had been taken from him. He wouldn't ever surrender, but he relished the impossibility of the odds. I grinned back. It seemed the only thing to do. That or start crawling away. The wind brought faint sounds of men climbing now. Stones slipping beneath boots, weapons clattering, curses offered to each other and to the world in general. I tested my ankle and nearly bit my tongue off, but only nearly, so sprained rather than broken. I took the quickest of steps on it and found myself back against the rock, having blacked out for a moment. Perhaps I could hop and stumble on a bit farther, buoyed up with terror. But I'd be caught soon enough, and without Snorri for protection. The moment he fell, though, I'd be off, hope or no hope. Find a happy place, Jarlan. I hopped around my boulder, trying to remember my last moments with Lisa de Vere. Footsteps sounded along the narrow path between the drop and the boulder. The fall was the least of their worries, though they didn't know it. Crouching and biting back on the pain, I peered around the edge of my rock to see them arrive. I would have wet myself, but the mountain air is very dehydrating. The first man to come into view was Darabois just as I recalled him from the tavern, a bald-headed bruiser, scar-patterned in the traditions of some Afrique tribes, sweat glistening on his dusky skin. He never saw Snorri. The Norseman's axe descended in an arc, paralleling the side of the rock as Darab emerged. I've always considered a head to be a solid object, but as Snorri's axe passed through the mercenaries, I had to reconsider. The wedge of his blade entered Darab's skull at the back, near the top, and emerged beneath his chin. The man's face literally bulged. The sides of his head seemed to flow outward, and as he toppled away, over the drop, without cry or protest, the rocks were drenched with him. Snorri roared then. The ferocity in it would have given Taproot's elephant paws, but that wasn't where the terror lay. The horror was in the simple, unabashed joy of it. He didn't wait for anyone else to emerge. Instead, he rounded the corner, swinging his axe to cave in the side of the next man's head and smash him against the rock wall. He ran then, literally ran through them, striking quick, short blows as if his axe were a rapier, light as a willow switch. Two, three, four men variously pitched into empty space or slammed against the rock, all of them with a hole in them big enough to put your fist into. 
Somewhere out of sight, Snorri found a pause and started to declaim, not some Norse battle dirge, but ancient verse from the lays of Rome. Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate, to every man upon this earth death cometh soon or late. Another grunt of exertion, a clatter of metal on rock, the thump of bodies falling. And how can man die better than by facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? Damn the barbarian. He was enjoying this madness. He thought himself Horatius on the narrow bridge before the gates of Rome, holding back the might of the Etruscan army. I started to crawl away. It's shame that gets us killed. Shame is the anchor, the heaviest burden to carry from the battlefield. Fortunately, shame was an affliction I'd never suffered from. I did wonder, though, hearing Snorri move on to the next verse of his epic, whether he might not be able to hold out there indefinitely, providing they didn't have bows with them. Of course, if that Edris were any kind of leader, he'd have sent men to flank his enemy. No single man can stand against many when they come at him from two sides. I would have flanked. Hello, what have we here? I looked up into the pale, staring eyes of Megan, Idris's second companion from the night before. The setting sun framed him with a bloody light. He'd struck me back at the tavern as one of the last men on earth I'd want to meet in a dark alley. Like Cutter John, he had the look of a man who kept a distance from the world, as if viewing us all from behind the confessional screen. Such men make good torturers. At Megan's shoulder stood a hard-bitten warrior tending to Grey, with a long sword ready in his hand. More men sent to flank us probably approached along the ledge as Megan and I blinked at each other, me on all fours, him leaning forwards as if in enquiry. Whatever you do in dangerous situations, the main thing is to do it quickly. I've always maintained, just because it's given to you to be a coward, doesn't mean it's something you can't strive to do well. My father used to admonish me to excel in all things. Excellence and cowardice means being quick off the mark. If you want to run away fast, then the first thing to do is take off in whatever direction you happen to be facing. Oof! was the only remark Megan had an opportunity to make as I ran through him, and that utterance was chosen for him by the fact a lot of air needed to vacate his lungs in a hurry. I launched forwards off my good ankle and put my shoulder into the little bastard. Being a big bastard helps in these exchanges. The man behind him staggered back, tripping. One good thing about falling over on a mountain, good at least when it's other people, is that you're pretty much guaranteed to hit your head on a rock. Megan showed no signs of wanting to get up again. The other man managed to land on his arse, though, and sprang back up sharpish with a curse. We both found ourselves looking at the gleaming length of my sword between us, held at one end by my hand on a hilt, and at the other by the ribs he had wrapped around the blade. I had no memory of drawing it, let alone pointing it at him. Sorry. Don't ask me why I apologised. In the heat of the moment, my uncle's complaints were ignored. 
and I hurried on past the mercenary, yanking my steel clear of his flesh, with a sick-making, wet, tearing sound, and the grate of cutting edge against bone. I saw more figures negotiating the boulder-strewn ledge ahead of me, and executed a swift turn on my good ankle before hobbling at speed back towards the ambush point where I'd last seen Snorri. I met him coming in the opposite direction, or, more accurately, I threw myself to the ground when he came charging around a corner drenched in blood, axe held blade to ear, haft to chest. The silent purpose in him was terrifying. And then he roared his battle cry, and all of a sudden the silence of his purpose would have been fine. A moment later, I worked out that he had been shouting, Behind you! Four men had been practically within stabbing range of my heels. Snorri burst amongst them with reckless disregard for everyone's safety, including mine and his. His axe head buried itself in one man's solar plexus on a rising arc that split his sternum. He shoulder-charged another man, a hefty fellow, lifting him off his feet and mashing him against a sharp corner of rock. A third man thrust at Snorri, but somehow the twisting giant conspired not to be in the way, the mercenary sword-tip lancing between the Norseman's elbow and chest. Snorri's continuing turn trapped the blade and wrenched the weapon free from his attacker's grasp. The last of the four had Snorri cold. Axe bedded in one foe, tangled with another, he stood open to the man's spear thrust. Snorri! Why I shouted a useless warning, I don't know. Snorri could see the problem well enough. The spearman hesitated for a split second. I don't think my cry distracted him. Most likely he was intimidated by the blood-soaked giant before him, his scarlet battle-max divided by a fierce and broad grin. A split second should not have been enough. But with a roar, Snorri impossibly powered his axe through his victim's chest, splattering the varied insides of the man in the process, and cut away the spear's head just before it reached his neck. The backswing broke open the spearman's face with the blunt reverse of the blade. And I swear to you, the iron trailed darkness as it cut the air. Swirls of night left in its wake, fading like smoke. The last man, now swordless, spun away and ran for it. Snorri turned to me, eyes wholly black, panting, snarling, unseeing. I rolled to my feet, well, foot, sword hanging from my hand, and for a moment we faced each other. Over Snorri's left shoulder, the last burning scrap of the sun fell behind the mountains. You've... Got a bit of... I mimed with my hand, scraping at my chin. Um, something in your beard. Lung, I think. He reached up, a slow movement, eyes clearing as he did so. Could be. He flicked the gobbet of flesh away. A grin. Snorri again. There are more coming, I asked. There are more, he said. Whether they're coming or not is yet to be decided. I think there are eight remaining. He wiped his face, smearing the crimson, where clean skin showed he looked far too pale, even for a Norseman. 
The dark and flowing nature of the gore beneath his ribs on the left suggested that not all the blood belonged to our enemy. Edris, I asked. Snorri shook his head. Him I would remember putting down. He'll be bringing up the rear, making sure none of his stragglers decide the mountains too steep. He leaned back against the rock, axe dangling from his hand, flesh white beneath the scarlet now, veins curiously dark. We should give them something to think about, I said. I knew the power of fear better than most men, and Snorri had left a frightful mess. I took hold of the man Snorri had ripped his axe out of to save himself from the spear thrust. His left boot proved the least slippery part of him, and I tugged him towards the drop where our ledge fell away to the next. I'd moved him about six inches before discovering that while blind terror is a great anaesthetic in the moment, once the immediate danger is past, the effect wears off rapidly. I fell back, clutching my ankle, and inventing new swear words that might more effectively convey my distress. Bollockeration! Toss the corpses over? Snorri asked. It might make them think twice. It would make me think just the once, and the thought would be, I'll come back later. Snorri nodded and, taking two men by the ankle, threw them over the edge. They landed with a sound that was wet and crunchy at the same time, and my stomach lurched. It would be the path the mercenary's rear guard would likely take, the route we had taken. Megan and his companions had only been inspired to the alternative and more difficult ascent by the sounds of battle. The sensible desire to flank Snorri, rather than face him one by one in the narrow defence point he'd chosen, had driven them up a more dangerous path. Still sat on my backside, I grabbed another man by the wrist, braced my good leg against a ridge of rock, and started to tug him by inches towards the drop. I moved him about a yard in the time it took Snorri to toss all but one of the rest in the area. This one's still alive. Snorri leaned over Megan and kicked him in the ribs. Out cold, though. He looked over at me with an appreciative grin. You saved a small one for questioning like you promised. All part of the plan, I grunted, shifting my corpse another three inches. He was the spearman. Thankfully, he lay face down. His passage across the rocks had left a red smear where I'd dragged him. I clutched him below the hand, not wanting to touch his warm, dead fingers. I'll sort out the others. And Snorri headed off to deal with any of the fallen from his initial attack who hadn't yet fallen far enough. No, I'm fine. Don't trouble yourself. I got no reply. With Snorri already out of earshot and the rest of my audience dead or unconscious, my sarcasm was wasted. Heave! And I heaved again. The corpse slid forwards another three inches. Dead fingers moved against my skin. A convulsion of them, like spider legs flexing, stroking down the veins and tendons in my wrist. I nearly let go fast enough, but the hand clasped me as I unclasped it. 
The dead man lifted his head, and the ruin of his face gaped a crimson grin at me. White skull, visible beneath flapping flesh. Fear lends a man strength, but so too does being dead, apparently. I wrenched hard enough to drag the spearman a whole extra yard, but it didn't win me free. Just brought him close enough to reach for my throat. I managed half a scream before dead fingers, still warm, cut it off with an iron grip. It's not until you've actually been throttled that you realise how terrible it is. It doesn't take enormous strength to seal your air off completely, and the dead man's strength was enormous. When you're denied a breath, then all of a sudden breathing is the only thing you're interested in. I crawled at the wrist beneath my chin, dug at the fingers. But if a face can kiss Snorri's axe and still find a smile, then fingernails aren't going to mean much. I planted a foot on the dead thing's shoulder and pushed for all I was worth. It felt as though my throat would be ripped from my neck, but the grip wasn't released. Black spots began to grow in my vision, joining at the edges to make a wall of darkness. Blinding cracks ran through the black. My heart hammered behind its cage of ribs, and the stink of burning flesh filled my nostrils, even though I could draw no air into them. And then, as suddenly as the hand had seized me, it was gone. Snorri loomed over me, gripped under my armpits, and hauled me clear. If my throat hadn't been so well lubricated with terror sweat, I suspect I would have seen it still clutched in the dead man's fingers, red and dripping. Snorri snatched up his axe while I sucked air through the straw that being choked had left me with. The dead man stood, still grinning amidst the butchered remains of his face, and raised his hands towards us, the wrists and forearms curiously burned wisps of smoke still lifting from them. Snorri made to advance, but two figures tackled him from the rear. He staggered, desperate to keep his footing. Two of his victims clung to him, blood still oozing from the fatal wounds his axe had given them. Gasping and weak, I backed away from the spearman, still on my arse, shuffling amongst the rocks, retreating before his unhurried advance. Snorri looked in trouble, too, with one of the things clinging to his back, the other encircling his waist with both arms and trying to eat its way into his stomach. Help! I only managed to squeak it out as a whisper. I don't think Snorri noticed. He'd just thrown himself back against the rock wall to the next ledge, sandwiching the corpse on his back between the broadness of his shoulders and the stone. He might not have heard my cry for aid, but I heard the resulting cracking of ribs and vertebrae loud and clear. Mifgul. The dead spearman tried to speak just before he fell upon me. Torn flesh and a broken jaw rendered him incomprehensible. Help! I managed a touch more volume, and this time, expecting to be throttled again, I caught both the creature's wrists. The thing's strength was shocking, and the burned flesh slid and tore beneath my grip. Across the way, just behind my attacker's head, I saw Snorri butcher the corpse man he'd crushed, not severing its head, but pulverizing its neck with two quick axe blows. With the second blow, 
a horrifying change came over my opponent. Its strength multiplied, and where it had been inexorably pressing my arms back, it now brushed aside any attempt at defence and sealed both hands around my bruised neck once more. The ruined face came close to mine, dripping, tongue writhing over shattered teeth, and a hideous intelligence in its eyes. Yards behind, Snorri caught the head of his last opponent in both hands, and with an oath, pushed it away from his side. It took all his strength, as if his enemy had also grown in power, and the scarlet mouth he tore from his hip trailed skin and strands of flesh from its jaws. Snorri drove his knee right into the thing's face, booted it away, then pursued, raising a big rock on high to pulp its head. Again, as if some necromantic vitality had been shared amongst the corpses and now flowed from the destroyed corpse into the last available vessel, my enemy's strength redoubled. It stood, lifting me as if I were nothing. By rights it should have snapped my neck, but although the strength of its arms had grown, the creature's grip actually weakened. I looked down, and where my hands fastened upon the dead skin, a blinding light burned. The white heat of a desert sun bled between my fingers, my bones just shadows in a rosy haze of pumping blood and living flesh. The dead thing crisped where I touched it, Fats bubbled, flesh burned back, exposing sinews that smouldered, then shriveled. I nearly let go in shock. Snorri came running, axe recovered and ready. He whirled it in a blow towards the monstrosity's head, but somehow it took one hand from my throat and caught the weapon beneath its blade. The haft thunked against its palm with a dull and wooden sound. Snorri struggled to pull his axe free. But though he dragged the dead man several yards, and me too, still held in its choking fingers, he couldn't defeat the thing's strength. The Norseman paused, slipped his grip to the end of the axe haft and to the head, and used the weapon as a lever to twist the spearman's wrist. Bones snapped with loud retorts, tendons gave, flesh tore. Leaving his axe in the broken hand, Snorri bore his foe to the ground and proceeded to pulp the grinning face with a large chunk of rock. Released, I rolled clear, struggling for air. The hand that had held me now rested on two blackened arm bones jutting from the dead man's forearm. Even now my breath wouldn't draw. I fell into unconsciousness, reflecting, rather abstractly, that I'd never even known that there were two bones in a man's forearm. Chapter 14 Wake up! I don't want to... Wake up! A slap this time. Perhaps there had been one the first time, too. Not if I'm still on that sodding mountain... Someone had packed my throat with brambles and my chest hurt. No! I opened one eye. The sky still kept an echo of the day, though the sun had set. Already the cold had rolled down from the peaks. Damn. Still on the mountain. Bugger! The word came out in thin slivers. 
Snorri let my head slide back into my pack and moved away. What are you doing? Not enough of the question emerged for him to respond. I gave up and let the air wheeze back into my lungs. A charred hand rose before my face, and I yelped, flinching from it before realizing it was my own. The strange, disconnected feeling persisted as I edged into an upright position and started to pick pieces of blackened skin from my palm. Not my skin, but fragments from the dead thing that had tried to kill me. The pieces of skin, part crispy, part wet, fell amongst the rocks, too heavy for the wind to take. Memories of the attack were just as broken and unwelcome. Trying not to think about it didn't help. I kept seeing the light bleeding out from beneath my hand, blinding and without heat. How did it burn without heat? What are you doing? Perhaps Snorri would distract me. My voice came louder this time, and he looked up. Cleaning the wound. Dumb thing bit me. I could see teeth marks in the flesh above his hip. The sword cut looks worse. A red furrow sliced through the ridged topography of his abdomen. Bites are dirty wounds. Better to be skewered through the arm by a sword than bitten on the hand by a hound. Snorri squeezed the damaged flesh again, producing a rush of blood that ran down over his belt. He grimaced and reached for his water flask, tipping some of our last reserves over the injury site. What the hell happened? Most of me didn't want to know, but apparently my mouth did. Necromancy. Snorri took a needle and thread from his pack, something he must have acquired at the circus. Both were covered in an orange paste. Some heathen conceit to keep ill humours out of the wound, no doubt. No one born here, he said, but a powerful necromancy to return the dead so soon after death. Another stitch placed. My stomach lurched. And for the necromancer to not even be present? He shook his head, then nodded to a spot behind me. I expect our friend knows more. Buggeration! Twisting my neck to look reminded me that someone had filled it with broken glass. I edged my whole body around by degrees, keeping my head facing front and centre. Finally, Megan came into view, pale eyes goggling at me over a gag of knotted cloth. Snorri had bound him, hand and foot, and sat him with his back to a boulder. Saliva clung to the stubble on his chin, and his arms trembled from fear, or the cold, or both. So how are you going to make him talk? I asked. Beat him about, I expect. Snorri glanced up from his stitching. The needle looked ridiculously small in the great paws of his hands, and, at the same time, far larger and more pointy than anything I'd want to have to push through my own flesh. I sniffed. The place stank of death, and the wind couldn't scour it clean. Edris. The memory hit me like cold water. I reached for my sword and couldn't find it. Gone. Snorri sounded a touch disappointed. 
The bodies we threw down got up again and scared his lot off. I watched them go. Hell, more of those things. I'd rather face Edris than another of those grinning corpses with their refusal to play dead and their penchant for throttling me. Snorri nodded, dipped to bite through the thread, then spat it out. Can't climb, though. They weren't great at it when they were alive. Now? He shook his head. I had no desire to look over the edge and see their faces staring up at me, raw fingers clutching at the rocks, climbing, sliding back, climbing again. I remembered the look in those eyes as the thing choked me. Bile rose at the back of my throat. Something different had watched me from those eyes, something far worse than whatever had looked out through them for all the years prior to those last minutes. Megan might have scared me back in the tavern, studying me as if I were an insect he would enjoy pulling legs off, but on the mountain he proved one of the least worrying things to look at. Beating him's apt to knock him senseless again, and your idea of a beating would probably kill an ox. We can't kill him, Snorri said. Who knows what we'd get? I know that. I set my forehead in my hand, reminding myself just how much bigger Snorri was than me. And now he does too, which isn't helping our cause. Oh. Snorri placed another stitch, drawing two ragged edges of his belly together. Sorry. I say we take his boots off and light a small fire under his feet. He'll know his only chance of getting off this mountain is to be able to walk, and it won't take long to loosen his tongue. Look around. Snorri gestured with the knife he was using to trim a bandage. No wood, no fire. He frowned. That last corpse I threw over, though. The arms were burned. How did you do that? Narrowed eyes focused in on my hands, still blackened. It wasn't me. It almost sounded true. It couldn't have been me. I don't know. Snorri shrugged. Calm down. I'm not one of your Roma inquisitors. I just thought it might be useful with Goggle there. He pointed his knife at Megan. I looked at my hands and wondered. It's often said that cowards make the best torturous. Cowards have good imaginations, imaginations that torment them with all the worst stuff of nightmare all the horrors that could befall them. This provides an excellent arsenal when it comes to inflicting misery on others. And their final qualification is that they understand the fears of their victim better than the victim does himself. All this might be true, but I've always found myself too scared that somehow, some way, any victim of mine might escape, turn the tables, and work the same horrors on me. Basically, the cowards who make good torturers are less cowardly than me. Even so, Megan did need some encouragement, and I needed to understand what had happened with the corpse man. Snorri had mentioned the Roma Inquisitors, without doubt the most accomplished torturers in the Broken Empire. If I wanted to avoid discussing my witchcraft with those monsters, then I would be best advised to understand it myself 
so as to be rid of it as quickly as feasible and to be able to hide it as effectively as possible. Megan had an ugly-looking cut on his arm, just below the shoulder. Some edge of the rock had ripped through his padded jerkin and chewed onto his flesh. I reached out towards it. Always start with a weak point. Maltork! Maltork, Damu! He chewed at the gag, trying to get the words out. I have to admit a small thrill at having the upper hand after what seemed like weeks of nothing but running, sleeping in ditches, and being terrified. Here, at last, was a foe I could handle. Oh, you'll talk all right. I used the menacing voice I used to scare my younger cousins with when they were small enough to push around. You'll talk. And I slapped my palm to his wound, willing him to burn. The results were... underwhelming. At first, I felt nothing but the decidedly unpleasant squishiness of his injury as he writhed and jerked beneath my touch. I had to press hard to keep him from twisting away. At least it seemed to be hurting him. But that turned out to be more by way of anticipation than anything else, and he quieted down soon enough. I tried harder. Who knows what working magic is supposed to feel like? In the games we used to play in the palace, the sorcerer, always martyrs by dint of being the eldest brother, cast his spells with a strained face, as if constipated, squeezing his reluctant magic into the world through a small... Well, you get the picture. Lacking any better instruction, I put into practice what I'd learned as a child. I crouched there on the mountain, one hand on my hopefully terrified victim, my face constipated with the awesome power I was straining to release. When it actually happened, nobody there was more surprised than me. My hand tingled. I'm sure all magic tingles, though it may have been pins and needles. Then a peculiar, brittle feeling stole from each fingertip, joining and spreading to the wrist. What I first took to be a paling of the flesh became a faint but unmistakable glow. Light started to leak around my fingers, as if I were concealing something brighter than the sun within my grip and a faint warmth rolled beneath my palm. Megan stopped struggling and stared at me in horror, straining at his bonds. I pushed harder, willing hurt into the little bastard. Bright fracture lines started to spread across the back of my hand. The light and the warmth seemed to draw on me, flow from my core to the single extremity where they burned. The day grew colder, the rocks harder, the pain in my ankle and throat sharp and insistent. The spreading cracks frightened me, too strong a reminder of the fissure that had chased me when I broke the silent sister's spell. No! I jerked my hand back, and the weight of exhaustion that settled on me nearly pressed me to the rocks. A shadow loomed across us. Have you broken him yet? Snorri squatted beside me, wincing. I lifted my head. It weighed several times more than it should. The rip in Megan's jerkin showed pale and unbroken skin beneath the blackening smears of blood. A faint scar recording where his wound had been. Shit. Snorri tugged at the man's gag. 
Ready to talk? I've been ready since I came round, Megan said, trying to roll back into a sitting position. I was trying to tell that one. No need for any rough stuff. I'll tell you everything I know. Oh, I said, vaguely disappointed, though it was exactly what I would have done in his position. And we're supposed to let you go after that, are we? Megan swallowed. It'll be right fair of you. He had a nervous, sweaty way about him. Fair as twenty against two, Snorri rumbled. He'd brought his axe with him and ran his thumb along its edge as he spoke. Ah, oh, well, Megan swallowed again. Well, anything personal. That's just how many she paid for. Was just business for Edris. He spread her coin around and got together a bunch of us local men. Fellows who'd seen some trouble. Fellows who'd fought a battle or hired themselves out for sharp work before. That kind of thing. She? I knew plenty of women who'd like to see me take a beating, and not a few who might pay to have it done. But twenty men was excessive, and most of them would probably not want the castigation to be fatal. Megan nodded, eager to please, spittle drying on his chin, snot on his upper lip. Edris said she were a fine-looking woman. Didn't say it all polite like that, though. No, sir. You didn't see her. Snorri leaned in. Megan shook his head. Edris made the deal. He ain't local. Knows a lot of bad folk. Passes through once, twice a year. She'll be the necromancer. Did she have a name? Snorri asked. Chella. Megan lipped his lips. Had Edris scared, she did. Never seen him scared afore. I didn't want to meet her, not after that. Don't care how tasty she were built. And would you know where to find this Chella now? Snorri's great hands closed around the haft of his axe, as if imagining it the necromancer's throat. Megan shook his head, a quick shake like a dog flinching off water. Ain't from around here. A northerner, Edris said. Had a bottle of liquor off her, he did, for us all to toast the mission with. Some Gelleth brew, I think Darab said it was. Strange burn to it. He smacked his lips. Passing strange. Made you want more of it, though. Most like she's from Gelleth. Perhaps she went back. Perhaps she's watching us right now. Something stood the boys back up after you'd knocked them down. What shall we do? I didn't like the idea of some necromancer witch watching from the ridges, ready to send her dead men after us. The whole idea had sounded faintly ridiculous back in Grandmother's court. I'd been sure most of it was lies, and whatever parts of it might have held truth didn't seem so scary. Mouldy old corpses jerking witlessly after frightened peasants seemed no threat to proper soldiery. But miles from civilization, and Ronish civilization at that, outnumbered by the dead on treacherous ground, my view of things had suffered an about turn. I mean, we should do something. With him? Snorri kicked Megan's bound feet. About her, I said. My goal is in the north. If anything gets in my way, I'll put a hole through it. If not, I'll leave it behind. We pick up the pace, 
Keep heading north. I like it. When a plan involves running away, I'm in. And him? None of the solutions for Megan looked good. I didn't want to let him go. I didn't want to keep him. But whilst I'll do my fellow man down at every turn, I've no murder in me. Let him join his friends. Snorri knotted a hand in the ropes around Megan's wrists and hoisted him to his feet. Hey now, that hardly seems fair. He was going to kill... Snorri took three strides, dragging Megan to the edge where the rock fell away in a single steep step, and pushed him over. Those friends. Megan's wail of despair ended with a wet thunk and the sound of something, or things, running towards the place he hit. Snorri met my shocked gaze. I try to be a fair man, to live with honour, but come against me armed and looking to take my life, and you will not walk away again. Chapter 15 Nights spent on mountains are not to be recommended. Nights where the dark is full of the sounds of dead men trying to climb up to where you're shivering underneath thin blankets, even less so. In the end, the morning came. That's what matters. So, you healed that man. Snorri led the way across the mountain face, looking for a way down that would not be accessible to the corpses in our wake. No, I didn't. Deny everything was a policy I'd adopted at an early age. Shit! I missed my footing and set my foot down harder than intended. The quite hot needles of pain lancing up from my ankle let me know that getting down off the mountain was going to hurt. He had a rip in his arm deeper than the cut I've got in my belly. No, just his jerkin. Big hole in his jerkin. Little scrape on his arm. He bled a lot. That's probably what fooled you. I just wiped the blood away some. I could see where this was going. Snorri wanted the same treatment. Well, no. The cut on Megan's arm had sucked out too much of my energy as it was. A whole night with the Devere sisters might have left me more go in my legs. Snorri's injuries would leave me crawling. Sorry, but I... Ouch! Christ, bleeding that hurt. A light knock of ankle against Boulder. Of course, Snorri said. A man who could erase a gash like that would have mended his own ankle by now. I must have been mistaken. I took three more painful steps whilst that one sank in, then sat on the nearest suitable boulder. You know, it does hurt quite a lot. I'll just try to rub some life pack into it. I tried to be surreptitious about it but he just stood there watching with his arms folded like some big suspicious Norseman. The thought of walking down on a sound ankle proved too much temptation. With teeth gritted and jaw set, I bound both hands around the joint and strained. Snorri raised a brow. I reached for whatever magic had burned in me and pushed harder. I... erm... Um, 
can leave you to it if you need a quiet moment. The tight line of his lips in that black beard gave no indication that he was mocking me. You're mocking me, aren't you? Yes. I let go and gave my ankle an experimental wiggle. Motherfu- Words came to an inarticulate howl. Not fixed, then? Nori asked. I stood up slowly. It seemed that whatever I'd done to Megan was, like tickling, something you can't do to yourself. And all in all, healing Megan had been a complete waste of effort, given that Snorri had pushed him over the ledge a minute or two later. Perhaps it had been a one-off thing. I hoped so. You want some? I held out a hand towards Snorri's waist. He took a sharp step back. Best not. Bad stuff happens if we touch, and I've got a feeling it would be worse than last time. I remembered reaching for his hand as I slipped down the mountain. In retrospect, the damage done to my ankle might have been the lesser of two evils. If I had managed to grab hold, we might just have been burned up like the dead man. What's going on? I held my hands up, palms towards me. That dead man fried where I touched him. And you? I looked back up at Snorri, angry now, scared and angry, and in that moment not caring if he took offence. You? There's something wrong with you, Norseman. I've seen those black eyes. I saw... smoke. Hell, I'll call it what it is. I saw darkness swirl around you when you killed those men like your axe was cutting the stuff out of the air. I made the connection then. I should have seen it before. And that's what's in you, isn't it? Dark eyes, dark dreams, darkness. Snorri hefted his axe, running a speculative eye along its length. For a moment I thought he might strike me down, but he shook his head and offered a grim smile. It took you until now to understand. It's the curse you brought on me. On us. Your witch, the silent sister. Her curse. That broken spell, that twin crack running after you, dark and light. I got darkness. You got light. Both whispering to us, and both of them wanting to get out. In the north, the wise women say the world is a cloth woven from many strands and stretched across what is real. The world we see is thin. He held up a thumb and finger, almost touching. Where it tears, deeper truths escape. And we are torn, Jal. We are carrying wounds we can't see. We are carrying it north, and the dead want to stop us. Look! We'll go back. My grandmother is the Red Queen, damn it. She can have this made right. We'll go back and... No. Snorri cut me off. I took the prince out of the palace, but the palace is still crammed firmly up the prince's arse. You need to stop moaning about every hardship, stop chasing every woman you lay eyes on, and concentrate on surviving. Out here... He waved the axe at the bleakness of the mountains... Out here, you need to live in the moments. 
Watch the world. You're a young man, Jal. A child who refused to grow up. Do it now, or you'll die a young man. Whatever is behind this pursuit, it all started in Vermilion. Whatever war is being fought there is being lost. The dead king is trying to kill us because we're taking the sister strength north. I got to my feet. So we stop going north. Go back. Make this right. It's nonsense, anyhow. It was all an accident. Just ill fortune. Nobody could have planned it. It's all a mistake. I saw her too, Jal. This silent sister of yours. Snorri set the tip of his index finger just above his cheekbone. She had one white eye. Half blind. Yes. One pearly eye. I'd called her the blind eye woman for years before I knew any other name. Snorri nodded. She sees the future. She looked too far, and it blinded her. But she still has a second eye to look with. She looked through the might-have-beens and saw far enough to know you would escape, meet me, and take her power north. Hell. There didn't seem much else to say. We found a route down from the mountains that did not allow the dead men to follow us, though it could be argued that it came closer to killing us both than they might have. I say we, but Snorri led the way. My navigational skills are more suited to the city, where I can find a low dive with unerring skill. On mountains I'm more like water. I head down, tumbling over rocks where necessary. In their haste, the retreating mercenaries hadn't collected all of their fallen comrades' mounts, and better still, we found Ron and Sleipnir browsing on the lower slopes. Neither horse was anything to boast about, but they were used to us, and we loaded them with the most useful items we'd managed to steal off the strays before driving them off. Sleipnir continued her placid munching at the sawgrass, while Snorri heaped his loot upon her, flinching only when he climbed aboard. To be fair, it looked as if they should take turns. I thought the Norseman fully capable of carrying his mare up the valley. We should look out for Edris and his friends, I said. Not that I'd stopped doing exactly that at any point. Oh, and that necromancer bitch. The idea of some death-sworn beauty lurking out amongst the rocks was unsettling. That she could frighten Edris with just a look, return the dead, and might well slip into our camp in the middle of the night was the stuff of nightmare. Not that I plan to sleep again. Ever. And Mary's might have an agent on our tail, and if those corpses know where to... How about we just look out for trouble? And Snorri led the way north. We spent another night on high ground, our beds as cold and stony as the one before, the shadows just as threatening. Worse, if it could get worse. As the sun set, Snorri grew distant and strange, his eyes drinking in the gloom 
and growing even blacker than they had been when slaughtering his foe and painting the slopes red. The way he looked at me just before the last burning piece of the sun fell behind the mountain's shoulder made me consider hobbling away as soon as he slept. Though, minutes later, he seemed to return to his old self and reminded me to aim downslope if nature called in the night. With the mountains demoted to scenery, we followed the borderlands, first along the border with Scorin, which would soon be the border with Geleth. Snorri kept his eyes always fixed on the horizon, hunting the north. Mine always turned south, towards home, and to look for what dangers might be on our heels. Borderlands offer swift travel to those not seeking to cross over, as the folks there are often occupied with their neighbours and not so keen to question travellers, to detain them, or to seek taxes from them. Such lands are, however, unhealthy places to linger. Many of my own worst experiences occurred on Red March's border with Scorin. All of them, in fact, until I met Snorri. In the province of Aperlion, the Kingdom of Rhone meets the Duchy of Geloth and the Principality of Scorin. Monuments to the dead of a hundred battles crowd the elevations, most in ruin, but the land is lush and people return to resettle it time and again, as people are wont to. Snorri led the way along the approach to the town of Compère, famed for its cider and for the quality of tapestries woven there. Where he learned this stuff I couldn't say, but the Norsemen would always win some new fact or other from even the shortest of exchanges with passers-by. The summer found us at last, and we rode in bright sunshine, sweating beneath our travel-stained rags, throwing dark shadows and swatting at flies. We saw few people, then fewer still, all steering away upon their own paths, drawing back as if we might carry contagion. Further on, the land took on a neglected air. Ron and Sleipnir plodding placidly between high hedgerows, Snorri's white skin turned red in the sun, and for a moment I started to feel at ease, lulled by the heat and the arable peace. It didn't last. We soon found fields untended and overgrown, farmhouses empty, their animals gone. In one place, churned earth, an abandoned helm... A crow-pecked hand. A chill returned to me, despite the warmth of the day. The castle of Ruward's Curse, the ancestral seat of the house Wainton, stands on a high bluff of pale rock some miles from Compere Town. It watched us with empty eyes, the walls black with smoke, the cliffs beneath it still stained a rusty colour, as if the blood of the last defenders had poured from the gates and overflowed the plateau. The sun had started to sink behind the fortification, making serrated silhouettes of the battlements and sending its shadow questing towards us, an accusing finger, long and dark. This is fresh. Snorri drew a long breath through his nose, you can smell the char. And the rot. I regretted sniffing so deeply. Let's find another path. Snorri shook his head. You think any path is safe? Whatever happened here has passed. 
he pointed to a faint haze ahead, indistinct trails of smoke rising to join it. The fires have all but burned out. You'll find more peace in ruins than in any other place. The rest is all waiting to be ruins. Here, it's already happened. And so we rode on, and came by evening to the desolation of Compère. This was vengeance. The walls had been toppled, standing nowhere higher than three stones atop each other. Punishment! I stepped over the rubble. Heat still rose from the ground. Beyond a forest of blackened spars, a carpet of cinders marched into the distance until the drifting smoke overwrote it. Murder. Snorri towered at my shoulder, a stillness in him. They never meant to hold this place, I said. Whoever they were. It could have been Geleth troopers, arrayed out of Scorin, or even a Ronish army reclaiming what had been taken. I've never seen the like. I knew the hundreds squabbles left such damage in their wake, but I'd not seen it. Not like this. I have. Snorri passed me by, striding on into the remnants of what had once been Compare. We made camp in the ruins. Swirls of ash and cinder stung our eyes and made the horses cough, but night was upon us and Snorri proved unwilling to press on. At least we didn't have to choose between the risk of a fire and a cold camp. Compare came with its own fires, dying beds of embers in the main, but giving off a great heat. I've seen worse, Snorri repeated himself, pushing aside the stew he'd prepared. At eight keys, the islanders made swift work and moved on. At Orlsheim, farther up the Ulisk, they took their time. And in the ruins, Snorri once more stole me away to the north, winding his tail around the night. Snorri followed the raiders' tracks through the thaw. Their ships had gone, perhaps to some secluded cove to shelter from both storm and hostile eyes. He knew they would be planning a return to collect the drowned Isle's necromancers, their troops, and their captives. Even in the spring, the interior was an inhospitable place this far north. The Brokaw would have told them that. How many of the captives might be on the ships and how many with the raiders... Snorri couldn't tell. The raiders, though, he could follow, and eventually they would lead him to their ships. Alsheim lay three miles farther inland, on the edge of the Ulisk, where the fjord started to taper and pine forests reached almost to the water on gentler slopes than those at Eight Keys. The Bretons had left a broad trail, burdened as they were by many captives. Apart from Emmy, there had been only a handful of dead, three babes in arms, chewed and discarded, and Alfred Ganson, missing a leg and left to bleed out. Snorri guessed any others killed in the fighting would just have been added to the ranks of the necromancer's servants and set stumbling ahead to Alzheim. How Alfred came to lose a leg, Snorri couldn't guess, 
but it had at least saved him the horror of a living death. Where the settlement at Eight Keys had been stone-built, the houses of Orsheim were timber, some rude constructions of logs and wattle, others clinker-built of planks, uh, other clinker-built of planks, like the longboats themselves, defying the weather with the same obstinacy that the Vikings' ships offered the sea. Smoke had signalled Orsheim's destruction, even from the doorstep of Snorri's home, but not until the last few hundred yards had he imagined the fire to be so all-consuming. Even the great mead hall of Braga Salt had left no more than a heap of embers, every roof beam consumed, its eighteen pillars each thicker than a mast and deep carven with saga tails, all devoured by the flames. Snorri pressed on, leaving the Ulisk shores when the raiders' tracks turned to skirt Wodenswood, a dense and unwelcoming forest that reached for fifty miles and more until the foothills of the Jarlsberg defeated it. Men called Wodenswood the last forest. Turn your face north, and you would find no more trees. The ice would not admit them. And on the margins of that forest, where he had so often come in search of the reindeer who browsed the tree moss, Snorri found his eldest son. I knew him the moment I saw him, Snorri said. What? I shook my head, ridding myself of the dream the Norseman had woven. He addressed me directly now, demanding a response, demanding something perhaps just my company in this moment of rediscovery. I knew him, my son, Carl, though he lay far ahead. There's a deer trail up alongside the Woden's wood from the Ulisk, broadened into mud by the raiders, and he lay sprawled beside it. I knew him from his hair, white blonde, like his mother. Not Freya, she bore me Egil and Emmy. Carl's mother was a girl I knew when I wasn't much more than a boy myself. Myri, Olaf's daughter. We weren't but children, but we made a child. How old? I asked, not really knowing if I meant him or the boy. We must have been fourteen summers. She died bringing him into the world. He died just stepping into his fifteenth year. The wind changed and shrouded us in thicker smoke. Snorri sat without motion, head bowed over his knees. When the air cleared, he spoke again. I rushed to him. I should have been cautious. A necromancer could have left his corpse to waylay anyone trailing them. But no father has that caution in him. And as I came closer, I saw the arrow between his shoulders. He escaped then, I asked, to let him take his pride in that at least. Broke free. Snorri nodded. A big lad, like me in that, but more of a thinker. People always said he thought too much, said I'd always be the better Viking, however strong he grew. 
I said he'd always be the better man, and that mattered more. Though I never said it to him, and I wish now that I had. They'd had him in iron shackles, but he broke free. He was alive. He told you? I asked. He had a breath left in him. He didn't use it to tell me how he escaped, but I could see the iron marks on him, and his hands were broken. You can't escape slave shackles without breaking bones. He only had four words for me. Four words and a smile. The smile first, though I saw it through tears, biting down on my cursor so I could hear him. I could have been there quicker. I could have run, found him hours earlier. Instead, I'd gathered my belongings, my weapons, as if I were going on a hunt. I should have run them down the moment the snowbank gave up its hold. I... Snorri's voice had grown thick with emotion and now broke. He bit the word off and ground his jaw, face twitching. He lowered his head, defeated. What did Carl say? I couldn't tell you where along the way I'd started to care about the Norseman's story. Caring was never my strong suit. Perhaps it was the weeks together on the road that had done it, or more likely some side effect of the curse that chained us together. But I found myself hurting with him, and I didn't like it one bit. They want the key. Spoken to the ground. What? That's what he said. He used his last breath to tell me that. I sat with him, but he hadn't any more words. He lasted another hour. Less than that, maybe. He waited for me, and then he died. A key? What key? That's madness. Who would do all that for a key? Snorri shook his head and held up a hand as if begging quarter. Not tonight, Jal. I pursed my lips, looking at him hunched before me, and swallowed all the questions bubbling on my tongue. Snorri would tell me, or he wouldn't. Perhaps he didn't even know. Either way, it was of no great consequence for me. The North sounded more terrible by the minute, and whilst I was sorry for Snorri's losses... I had no intention of chasing dead men across the snow. Sven Brokor had taken Freya and Egil to the bitter ice, and Snorri seemed to think his wife and son were still alive there now. And perhaps they were. Either way, that was a matter between Snorri and the Brokor. Somewhere between us and the northern ice would be a means to unlock the two of us, at which point... I'd be off before the G of goodbye had cleared the Norseman's beard. We sat in silence. Or almost silence. For it seemed as if Barakel's voice spoke just beyond the edge of hearing, gentle and full of music. After a time, I lay down and set my head on my pack. Sleep took me quick enough.
and as it caught hold, the voice came more clearly, so that in the moments before dreaming washed over both me and the voice, I could almost make out the words. Something about honour, about being brave, about helping Snorri find his peace. Bugger that, I replied. Words muttered half asleep over slack lips, but heartfelt nonetheless. Chapter 16 We came to Ancrath along the border roads between Rhone and Geloth. Snorri travelled with a native caution that kept us safe on several occasions, holding us back amidst a wood as battle-ragged troops marched south, taking us into the corn when brigands rode by in search of wickedness. I was keener to avoid such encounters than Snorri, but my senses were better honed to detecting the approach of trouble across a crowded feast hall or through the smokes of an opium parlour than on horseback across open country. In the town of Oppen, just a few miles into Ancrath, I bought more serviceable travelling clothes. I made sure to buy sufficient quality to mark me out as a man of distinction, though of course normally I'd not be seen dead in sturdy boots and tough-wearing garments made to withstand rough treatment. I'd rejected the idea of letting a Ronish man fit me for a cloak and hat, but decided I could suffer the attentions of an Ancrath tailor. Snorri snorted and stamped so much during the fitting that I had to send him out to find an axe more suited to his tastes. The moment he'd gone, I started to feel an unease, nothing to do with the slight stretching of the magics that bound us, and everything to do with the certainty that the necromancer who had sought our deaths in Chamonix would still be hard upon our trail. Her, or that creature that had watched me from behind its mask at the opera. The silent sister's trap had been set for that one. I was certain of it now. She'd been prepared to sacrifice the lives of two hundred, including some of Vermilion's finest, including me, damn it, to burn that one monster. I could only pray the crack I'd put in her spell whilst escaping hadn't let it free, and of course other servants of the dead king might lurk around any given corner, even in a tailor's shop. In the end, I left Oppen with a sense of relief. Being on the move had become a habit, and I wasn't sure I would ever feel entirely comfortable settled in one place again. We skirted the Matarak Mountains, a dour range with none of the Ope's grandeur, and found our way in time to the Roma Road, which I'd long argued we should have followed the whole way. It's better paved, safer, equipped with inns and whorehouses at regular intervals, passes through two dozen towns of note, and is easily watched. Snorri guided Sleipnir out onto the ancient flagstones. She immediately started to clatter. I think of that noise, horseshoe on stone, as the sound of civilization. In the countryside, everything's mud. Give me a clatter over a clump any day. So why are we risking it now? Speed. Will it make... I bit off the words. Would it make a difference? To Snorri it would. 
His wife and younger son would have been captive for months now, even before he'd been dragged in chains to Vermilion. And if they had endured all this time, labouring at some task the drowned isle's necromancer set them to, the chances were that a few days either way wouldn't make much difference to their situation. I couldn't say that to him, though, mostly because I'm fond of my teeth, but also the angel that kept whispering to me wouldn't approve, and you don't want to piss off an angel that lives under your skin. They're the worst sort. We've been making good time, pacing ourselves for the journey. Why do we need to travel faster now, all of a sudden? I settled on letting him say it himself. It's harder to lie to yourself out loud with an audience. Let him tell me he still truly believed his wife and child lived. You know... He gave me a dark look. Tell me anyway, I said. The voices. We need to get this over and done, get that bitch's curse off us, before the voice I'm hearing stops suggesting and starts telling. That left me with my mouth open and nothing to say. Ron clip-clopped his way up another twenty yards of the Roma Road before I found the presence of mind to press my lips together. You're trying to tell me you're not hearing a voice. Snorri leaned around the saddle to scowl at me. He could manage the sort of scowl that reminded you he named his axes. I could hardly deny it. The voice that had whispered beyond the edge of hearing in Compere had grown more distinct day by day, and its directives more frequent. It grew loudest each dawn. At first I had imagined that this was what people like Cousin Sarah meant when urging me to listen to my conscience. I thought perhaps that too much fresh air and a lack of alcohol had opened me up to the nagging monologue of conscience for once in my life. Morning after morning of pious lecturing had me doubting my theory, though, Surely everyone couldn't go around with some sickeningly moral voyeur, hectoring them each moment of their life. How would they stay even vaguely sane? Or have fun? And what does this voice say to you? I asked, still not admitting to anything. Snorri returned his gaze to the road ahead, showing me broad shoulders. I'm dark sworn, Jal. Cracked through with it. What kind of secrets do you think the night whispers? Hmm. That didn't sound good. Though, frankly, I wouldn't have minded swapping. Unsavory suggestions bubbled out of the darkness at the back of my mind all the time. Most I ignored easily enough. Being upbraided on my own moral shortcomings at every turn, on the other hand, was proving most annoying. Does your voice have a name? She's called Oslaug. She? You got a woman? I couldn't keep the complaint from my voice, nor did I try. Loki lay with Jutnar, a beauty with the spider's shadow. Snorri sounded self-conscious, no hint of the storyteller now, hesitating as he repeated unfamiliar details. She birthed a hundred daughters in the dark places of the world, and none of them ever stepped out into the light. Old Alida used to tell us that tale. Now one of those daughters walks in my shadow, 
So, you got a beauty with a dirty mind, and I got a pious killjoy. Where's the justice in that? Called? Snorri glanced back at me. Barakel. I expect my father used to drone on about him from the pulpit. Damned if I know the name, though. I was sure Barakel would be eager to burden me with his lineage if I gave him the chance. He seemed to be a disembodied voice who liked the sound of his own pronouncements. Fortunately, his visitations were limited to the few minutes between the sun cresting the horizon and clearing it. The rest of the time I could pretty much ignore him. And what with me being almost entirely made of sins that needed to be vilified, it didn't leave much time for other matters. Well said Snorri. It's pretty clear we need to make haste, before Barakel makes a decent man of you, and before Aslaug makes a bad one of me. She's not fond of you, Jal. You should know that. You should hear what Barakel has to say about my choice of heathen travelling companion. Not a bad return shot, but annoyingly my angel held Snorri up as something of a paragon during our morning chats, so it was better that the Norseman didn't hear, after all. We rode all day, and for once the sun blazed. It appeared that Ancrath was enjoying the summer so long denied to us on our trail. Perhaps the weather skewed my judgment, but I have to say that Ancrath struck me as a fine corner of the empire, free of the Rhonish taint, fertile lands, well-farmed, pleasingly humble peasants, and the merchant classes as servile as you like in the hunt for coin." I kept close watch on Snorri all that day for any signs of evil, though what I'd do about it if I spotted any I hadn't a clue. Being shackled to a battle-hungry Viking en route for a suicidal rescue mission had become harrowing enough. Now I was shackled to one who might become a creature of the night at the drop of anyone's hat. The day passed peacefully enough, and Snorri showed no inclination towards the traditional demonic pursuits, though I did convince myself that his shadow was rather darker than everyone else's, and found myself peering into it every now and again, searching for any hint of his new mistress. My own little blessing from the silent sister woke me at the instant of sunrise, just as the cocks were throat-clearing for the first crow of the day. The heathen has become a servant of darkness. You should denounce him to some suitable member of the church inquisition. Barakel spoke quiet enough, but there's something about a voice behind your eardrum that's hard to ignore, so he had a very irritating tone about him. Wh what? Have him arrested. I yawned and stretched, pleased to find myself in a bed for once albeit unaccompanied. I thought Snorri was your golden boy, everything I should strive to be. Even a heathen can embody character traits that may be admired, and good role models are hard to come by in the wilds, Prince Jalan. However, his lack of true faith left him open to possession, and he has been tainted beyond salvation. The rack and fire are his last best chance to lessen his sentence in hell now. Hmm. I scratched my balls. Unfamiliar fleas were a small price to pay for the comfort of a bed. I doubt he'd thank me for the favour. Snorri's wants are not of importance, Prince Jalan. The evil that has possessed him must be burned out. She must be cast into the fire and... She? 
So you know Snorri's passenger, do you? Old friend of yours? You endanger your soul each time you mock me, Jalan Kendeth. I am God's servant on earth, descended from heaven. Why would why would God create fleas? Did he ever tell you? Ah, got one, you little bastard. I cracked it between two fingernails. So, what's coming up today, Berakel? Anything useful I should know? Let's hear some of that divine wisdom. It wasn't so much that I didn't believe he was an angel, and I certainly wasn't about to dispute the existence of such. My neck still bore the trace of bruises where a dead man tried to throttle me. It was just that I felt Berakel must be a rather poor example. After all, angels should tower above you in gold and feathers, carrying flaming swords and speaking wisdom in tongues. I didn't expect them to hide away and nag me and get up each morning in a voice suspiciously like my father's. Berakel remained silent for several moments. Then a cockerel let out a raucous hallelujah to the morning close by, and I decided my angel had taken his leave. Dark travellers on the road, born of flame, a prince has sent them, a prince of evil, of darkness and revenge, a prince of lightning, a thorn prince. They are his work, messengers of the doom to come. The pronouncement startled me awake again. That's the sort of nonsense I could have off Dr. Taproot's old fortune teller for half a copper. More yawning, more scratching. What prince? What doom? The thorn prince. He whose line will spill heaven into hell and rip the world asunder. His gift is the death of angels, the death of... And blessedly he trailed off, the sun having cleared the horizon somewhere out beyond the musty confines of my room. I stretched, yawned, scratched, contemplated the end of all things, and went back to sleep. We left the inn after a breakfast of liver and fried potatoes, washed down with small beer. So far the famed cuisine of Ancrath had proved the least appealing aspect of the country, but riding a horse day in, day out for weeks on end gives a man an appetite for the kind that's ready to try anything. Even horse. Joining the Roma road once more from the dirt track to the inn, I fell into my customary daydreaming, the sort that's apt to get you killed in the wilds, but is the kind of luxury civilization affords us. I realized simultaneously that I had no idea what a liver was for, and that I also didn't ever want to eat one again, especially not for breakfast, with garlic. Snorri stopped me pursuing that line of thought any further by drawing up in the road directly ahead of me. A ragged group of travellers were heading north towards Krath City, blocking the road, some pulling handcarts, other labouring under their possessions, others still flapping along in just the tatters they wore. And amongst them not a clean limb showed. All were black with filth of some kind. Refugees, Snorri said. Dark travellers. An echo of Berakel's prophecy ran through my mind. As we caught them up, I saw many bore wounds, still raw and open, and each of them, man, woman, child, was black with soot, or with dried mud, or black with both. 
Snorri nudged Sleipnir in amongst them, offering apologies. I followed, trying not to let any of them touch me. What happened here, friend? Snorri leaned from his saddle towards a tall fellow, peasant thin, an ugly rip along the top of his scalp. The man offered a blank-eyed stare. Raiders. Little more than a mutter. Where away? Snorri asked, but the man had turned from him. Norwood, a woman on the other side, grey-haired and hobbling. They burned it down. There's nothing for us now. Baron Ken's troops? Is Uncroth at war? Snorri frowned. The woman shook her head and spat. Raiders, Renar men, everywhere's burning. Sometimes it's knights and soldiers, sometimes just rabble, road scum. She turned away, head down, lost in her misery. I'm sorry. Snorri didn't try to cheer her or claim her lot would soon improve, but he said something, more than I would know to do. A shake of reins, and he moved on. We made our passage through the refugees, thirty of them maybe, and picked up speed. It was a relief to be clear of the stink. I'd been poor for a day or three, and hadn't liked it one bit. The survivors of Norwood had been poor enough to start with, and now they had nothing but need. They're hoping to throw themselves on the mercy of King Oladon, Snorri said. That's the measure of their desperation. It still irked me just how much the Norsemen knew about lands that lay across the sea from his. I'd heard of Oladon, of course. His reputation had reached even into my cosy world. Grandmother complained of his manoeuvring more than enough for that. But who ruled in Kennick, and how relations stood between Ancrath and its muddy neighbour, I had no idea. Snorri had upbraided me about my tenuous grasp of empire history, but I told him history is just old news, prophecy that's well past its sell-by date. Current affairs were more my thing, especially my current affairs, and Croth City could improve those no end. There would be wine, women, and song, all much missed on our long and miserable trek so far. Women in particular. In addition, where better to find some wise men to strike off the shackles the silent sister had bound me to Snorri with? The Roma road bore us swifter than a river, and we came in sight of Crath City as the sun plunged behind its towers, making a black architecture of spires and spans. I'd heard Oladon's capital rivaled Vermilion for the grandness of its buildings and the wealth spent there in bricks and mortar. Martus visited on an embassy two years previously and described the Uncrath Palace as a stump of some builder tower, but my brother was ever full of lies, and I'd be able to make my own judgment on that soon enough. We should skirt around. Snorri had fallen behind, and when I turned, all his face lay in shadow, only the ridges of his brow and cheekbones catching the redness of the sunset. Nonsense! I'm a prince of the March. We have agreements with the Uncrafts, and it's my duty to call in on the king. Duty had nothing to do with it. Croth City was my last best chance to break the silent sister's curse. 
With luck, King Oladon could be persuaded to help. He would have magicians in his service. And even without his help, there were always spellsmiths of one kind or another tucked away in such an ancient city. I'd never set much store by such things before. Smoke, mirrors, and old bones, I'd called it. But even a prince of Redmarch may have to revise his opinion on occasion. No, Snorri said. I couldn't see his eyes in the half-light, and as the shadow stretched out across the road, I remembered that this would be the time she spoke to him. Oslaug, his dark spirit, would be whispering her poison while the sun fell from the world. Rushing in unprepared didn't work so well for you the first time, did it? You want to save Freya, little Egil, cut Sven broke or into several pieces? It's time to use your head, to understand what we're up against and formulate a plan. I had to move him somehow, even if it risked provoking the Viking in him and daring the consequences. This is Kroth City. How much of the world's lore came from this very spot? Dig down far enough into anything the wise say, and there's a document from the vaults of the Louvre at the bottom of it. I paused for breath, having exhausted everything I could remember my tutor saying about Krath City. Wouldn't time here be well spent? Advice on the nature of your foe? Maybe an antidote to ghoul poison, or even a cure for the curseness? You're risking the Roma Road, rushing north at full tilt, hoping to make it before the dark seduces you— and the solution might be just behind those walls. The silent sister's not the only witch in the broken empire, not by a long shot. Let's find one who can help us. We faced each other now, horses nose to nose, me waiting for some reply. The silence stretched. You're right, Snorri said at last, and nudged Sleipnir into motion towards the city. The sense of relief that washed over me as he passed by proved short-lived. It occurred to me that I didn't know for sure who he was talking to. Me or his demon? I waited a minute, then shrugged and rode on after. Who really cared? I got what I wanted. A chance. After all, that's all a man really needs. A big city full of sin and sleaze. And a chance. Oslaug speaks of you, Snorri said as I drew level on the road. Says the light will turn you, set you in my path. He sounded weary. I doubt Loki's daughter can utter anything that's not half a lie, but she has a silver tongue, and even a half lie is half true. So listen when I say it would be poor advice that led you to try to stop me. Ha! I slapped him on the shoulder and wished I hadn't, my hand crackling with painful magics. Can you think of anyone less likely than me to listen to an angel, Snorri? Krath City opened her arms and invited us in. We drifted along the riverbank, enjoying the warmth of the night Everywhere along the dusty path, inns lit the way from the right, barges from the left, moored and decked with lanterns. The city folk drank at tables, at barrel tops, standing in groups, lying on the sod, or on the decks of the barges. 
They drank from clay cups, pewter mugs, wooden trenchers, from jugs, bottles, kegs, and ewers. The method of delivery as varied as the brews poured down so many throats. A jolly lot, these Crathians. Already the place had started to feel like home. Any wanderlust had wandered off the moment I smelled cheap wine and cheaper perfume. A ruddy-cheeked peasant reeled backwards across our path, somehow maintaining his pint mug at an angle that spilled no ale, though he stumbled as if at sea on a stormy night. Snorri shot me a grin. The black mood Aslaug had left him with now lifting. A crowd of men on the nearest beer barge broke out into the chorus of The Farmer's Lament, a bawdy ballad detailing in seventeen verses what amusement one can and can't get up to with livestock. I knew it well, though in Red March it's a Ronish man who'll have no peace till he grabs a fleece, not a Highlander. Must be a festival day. Snorri breathed in deeply. The air came laden with the smell of meat a-roasting. That's a scent that will set your belly growling after a long day's travel. Snorri's stomach practically roared. It can't be like this every night. The lost prince is back, didn't you know? A woman in her cups, passing by and reaching up to paw at Snorri's thigh. Everyone knows that. She reversed direction and walked alongside Sleipnir, hands still exploring Snorri's leg. Oh, my! There's a lot of meat down here. A husband, or suitor, managed to snag the woman's hand and pull her away, frowning all the while, but hardly in a position to blame Snorri, which was probably for the best, all things considered. I watched her go, tempting as the roast in her own way, well-fed, fat, some might say, but jolly with it, a twinkle in her eye. She even had most of her teeth. I sighed. I had been entirely too long on the road. Lost prince? Hadn't Barakel said something about a prince? Snorri shrugged. You're a lost prince. They always seem to turn up again. Some prodigal son has returned. If it puts the locals in a good mood, then that makes life easier. We get in, take what we need, leave. Sounds good. Of course, we weren't talking about entirely the same things, but it did sound good. We crossed the Seine by the Royal Bridge, a fine, broad construction sitting on great piles that must have survived the Thousand Suns. Crath City rose from the docks on the opposite bank, sprawling over gentle hills and reaching up to the walls of the old city, where the money lived, looking out over what it owned. The tall castle waited in the middle of it all, high above us. I let the gradient guide the way. It took us into an ill-lit quarter where the sewers ran rank and drunks staggered narrow paths along the middle of the alleyways, not trusting the shadows. We'll find a place down here tonight, I said, somewhere unsavoury. Tomorrow I'd be a prince again, knocking on Oladon's doors. Tonight I wanted to take full advantage of my anonymity and enjoy the benefits of civilization to the full, the benefits of a decadent civilization. 
If Barakel was going to wake me up at Cockcrow for a lecture on morality, I might as well make it worth his while. Besides, if I found a low enough dive and woke amidst as much sinning as I hoped to, he might just decide not to show. There, Snorri pointed down a thoroughfare broad enough to host taverns. The houses stacked three stories high, each stage heavy-beamed and overstepping the one below, so they crowded out into the street as they rose. Snorri's thick finger directed me towards one of several hanging signs. The Falling Angel. Sounds about right. I wondered what Berakel would make of that. With the horses given over to an ostler and stabled, I followed Snorri into the bar. We had to duck low to avoid the lanterns over the street door, and when he stepped aside, the place lay revealed to me. A dive indeed, and populated by a collection of the most dangerous-looking men I'd laid eyes on outside a fighting pit, and quite possibly inside one too. My instinct was to execute a rapid reversal of direction on one heel and find a less intimidating venue, but Snorri had already secured a table, and having seen him demolish Edris's crew in the mountains, I felt it might be safer to stick close to him than try my luck alone outside. The angel had that reek to it, sweat, horses, stale beer, and fresh sex. The serving girls looked harried, the three barkeeps nervous. Even the whores were keeping to the stairs, peering down between the railings as if no longer sure of their chosen profession. It seemed as though the bulk of the customers crowding the place from front wall to back weren't regulars. In fact, as I slid along the bench to sit beside my Viking, I noticed that the knight's clientele looked every bit as far-flung as a Norseman and a native of Redmarch. The Nuban close by the hearth had perhaps travelled farthest, a powerfully built man with tribal scars and a watchful gravitas about him. He caught me staring and flashed a grin. Mercenaries, Snorri said. I noticed, as he said it, that almost every man in the place carried a weapon, most of them several weapons, and not the civilised man's poniard or rapier, but bloody great swords, axes, cleavers, knives for gutting bears, and the biggest crossbow I've ever seen occupied most of the table before the Nuban. Several of the men wore breastplates, grimy and battered as if from hard service, Others old chainmail shirts or quilted armour stitched with the occasional bronze plate. We could try that place down the street, the Red Dragon, I suggested, as Snorri raised his arm for ale. Somewhere a bit less crowded and... I raised my voice to compete with a cheer from the next table. Noisy! I like this place. Snorri raised his arm higher. Beer, woman, beer, for the love of Odin. Hmm. I saw cards and dice aplenty. But something told me that winning money off any of these men might be a short-lived pleasure. Besides Snorri, an old and toothless man supped his ale from a saucer, still managing to spill most of it over the grey stubble of his chin. A young fellow sat next to the elder, this one not quite old enough to shave. Slim, slight, unremarkable save for a fine quality to his features that might make him handsome in the right light. He shot me a shy smile, 
but the truth of it was I didn't trust either of them to be what they seemed. Keep the company of brigands, such as filled the angel, and you had to have some iron in you. Probably a whole parcel of wickedness, too. Our ale arrived, smacked down in earthenware cups and frothing over the sides. They were poorly fashioned, made in a hurry for the lowest cost, the sort of cups that expected to get broken. I sipped from mine, bitter stuff, and wiped away the white moustache. Across the room, through smoke and past the to-and-thro of bodies, a huge man was giving me the evil eye. He had the kind of blunt weapon of a face you could imagine breaking through a door, and he sat head and shoulders above the men beside him. To the giant's left, a man who seemed too fat to be dangerous, but somehow managed to look scary anyway, with a patchy beard straggling down over multiple chins, piggy eyes assessing the crowd whilst he chomped the meat off a bone. To the right was the only normal-sized man of the trio, looking somehow ridiculous in their shadow, and yet I'd be giving him the widest of berths. Everything about him said, Warrior. He ate and drank with an intensity that unnerved me, and if a man can unnerve you across a crowded room just by cutting his beef, then you probably don't want to see him draw steel. You know, I really think we'd be better off at the Red Dragon down the street, I said, putting down my cup half empty. This is obviously a private party. I don't think it's safe here. Of course it isn't. Snorri gave me that same worrying grin he had offered on the mountain. That's why I like it. He raised his cup, coming dangerously near to splattering another of the band with foam. This one, a mustachioed fellow, with an unlikely number of knives bound about his person. Meat, bread, and more ale. I could imagine him now in the mead hall of his jarl at a gathering of the clans, grasping a drinking horn. He looked more relaxed than I'd seen him since the blood pits in Vermilion. I caught sight of the ugly giant throwing me another dirty look. I'll be back. I struggled up between bench and table and went out the front to relieve myself. If my admirer across the tavern had stood and come over to make trouble, I probably would have wet myself, so getting out of his eyeline to answer nature's call seemed a good move. The falling angel turned out not to be entirely without class. They had a decent purpose-built wall to piss against, and a little gutter running down into the street gutter to carry away the used beer. Although the fact that someone was lying face down in the street gutter and leaking blood into it did detract somewhat from the otherwise pleasant scene of life flowing through the less salubrious archeries of Krath City. Beyond him, bravos and labourers, Good wives with their good husbands, vendors of food on sticks, all came and went, glimpsed in the light of one lantern, lost, then seen again in the light of another, passing by the purveyors of affection on the street corner, and lost again, never to return. I finished up and went back in. Think that, but you'd be wrong. I'd been outside for two minutes, three at the most, and returned to find Snorri flanked by mercenaries and swapping stories like old friends. No, Snorri continued, back half turned to me. I'm telling you he's not. 
I mean, you might think it to look at him, granted, but I hauled him out of this place. They had him tied to a table, wanted for some information, and the knives were out. And we're not talking a gentle jabbing here. They were about to cut off the kind of bits you'd miss. Snorri drained off the last of his ale. Know what he said to them? Roared at them, he did. I heard it out in the corridor. I won't ever tell, shouted in their faces. Get the pincers out if you like. Heat them with the coals. I ain't talking. Now that's the kind of man who's got fire in his belly. Might look like there's nothing behind the bluster, but you can't trust your gut with this one. Brave man, charged and unborn all by himself. Thing must have been twelve foot of grave horror. Had me disarmed. And in came Jarl swinging a sword. Snorri glanced my way. Jarl, I was just talking about you. He gestured across the table. Make a hole. And they did. Two mean-eyed thugs sliding apart so I could wedge in. These fine fellows are Brother Sim, he pointed out the slight lad, Brother Elben, Brother Gaines. He indicated the old man and a tow-haired bully. Well, they're all brothers. It's like a holy order of the road, only without any holy. He waved his half-gnawed bone down the line. Brothers Grumlow, Emmer, Rodat, Job. The knife-man, a stern, close-shaved fellow, and two younger men, both sallow, one scar-cheeked, the other pock-marked. More beer! And he thumped the table hard enough to make everything on it jump. Somehow Snorri's loudness had broken the tension, and the angel came alive. The staff relaxed, the girls came down off the stairs to ply their trade, and laughter ran more freely. I may have been the only man there still miserable. It's in my nature to absent myself from danger whenever possible, and, relaxed or not, this brotherhood we'd fallen in with sweated danger from every pore. Besides, Snorri's magic hadn't reached all corners of the room. I could still feel the giant's hostile gaze searing across the back of my neck. I snatched up the ale set before me and knocked it back, hoping to deaden the sensation. Relief came in the instant. An inviting softness squeezed against my neck to replace the feeling of being stared at. Hennaid curls flowed over my shoulder, narrow hands massaged my upper arms, and the ridges of a whale-boned corset pressed the length of my back. "'Where's your smile, my handsome?' She leaned around me, bodice offering her goods for display. Pale hands ran down across my chest, over the flatness of my stomach. I'll admit that weeks of unwanted exercise and privation had stripped me of any padding. I'm sure I could find it.' Her finger slid lower. Years of experience in such situations kept my attention divided between the twin distractions of breasts served up on the bodice and the location of my own valuables. She leaned in and husked into my ear. Sally will make it all good. My thanks, but no. I surprised myself. She still had her youth and the good looks she'd been born with. 
Those had yet to be stripped by the bitter wind of experience that blows through the back streets of such places. But I'm not at my best in a cold sweat, and every coward's instinct I had told me I should be running. Under such circumstances, my ardour grows softer. Truly? She leaned in, breast swaying, breathing the word into my ear. I've no money, I said and in an instant the warmth fell from her expression, her eyes dismissing me to seek out other opportunities. Snorri caught her attention, of course, but he was well wedged into his corner and attacking a slab of beef on the bone with such ferocity that Sally perhaps doubted she would be able to compete. In a swirl of skirts she was gone. Nervous or not, I still turned to watch her retreat and found myself the study of two veterans, greyheads, but lean and tough like old leather, the same dispassionate speculation in their eyes that I'd seen when Cutter John took my measure. I turned back to my plate, lacking appetite. Someone had called these two brothers Liar and Rao. I had no desire to find out how they came by their names. A roar of laughter from Snorri overwrote my fears, though I did flinch when he slammed his axe down on the table. No, that's an axe. What you've got is more by the way of a hatchet. As Snorri held forth about longboats, axe design, and the price of saltfish, I glanced around with as much surreptitiousness as can be achieved over the rim of a beer mug. Aside from the trio of huge, fat, and deadly behind me, one other table seemed set on matters more serious than the emptying of barrels. In an alcove, across the room, two men debated over a table. The few pieces of armour they still wore were far better quality than anything the brothers had. Both were tall, both with long, dark hair, one straight, one curled, the elder maybe thirty, a generous face, perhaps not given to its current sombre look. The other young, very young, maybe not yet eighteen, but dangerous. If the rest of the brothers set off my warning bells, this sharp-featured boy rang them off their mountings. He cast me a look the moment I found focus on him, a thousand-yard stare that told me to turn away. Ale continued to flow, and gradually my appetite returned, followed by my good humour. Ale has a way of washing away a man's fears. Sure enough, he'll find them the next day, sodden and wrapped around his ankles, with a couple of new ones thrown into the mix and a headache's fit for splitting rocks, but in the moment ale is a fine substitute for bravery, wit, and contentment. Before very long, I was exchanging tales of wenching with the taciturn brother Emma, wedged beside me. A fairly one-way exchange, truth be told, but I do warm to the subject once my tongue's been loosened, as do most young men in good health. By the time the next whore approached, I was ready with a quite different answer to the one I'd given Sally. Mary had paired the corset and gown ensemble down to just corset and the combination of her long dark hair, mischievous eyes, and the ample portion of recklessness the ale had lent me, had me getting to my feet. At which point I noticed that the giant, the brothers called him Reich, was inbound, his face heaped up over raw bones into a fearsome scowl.
I sat immediately, and suddenly found the bottom of my cup to be fascinating. Relief sighed out of me as the giant's shadow passed over us and moved on. The man was taller than Snorri by at least a hand's width, his arms lacking the Norseman's well-defined muscle but thicker than my thighs. Brothers scattered out of his way as he closed on Snorri. Young Sim literally slid under the table to avoid being caught between them. Slippery, that one, as I suspected. Mary also vanished with commendable speed. Snorri himself seemed unconcerned, placing his ale mug on the table, along with wiping the beard at the corner of his mouth to clean away any of the larger detritus from his meal. Generally, even when a fight is inevitable, both parties take a short while to warm to the idea. A disparaging remark is aimed, the reply ups the stakes, someone's mother is a whore, and an instant later, whether the mother was in fact a whore or not, there's blood on the ground. Brother Reich favoured a shorter path to violence. He simply let out an animal roar and closed the final three paces at speed. At the last moment, Snorri shifted his considerable weight, and the end of the hastily cleared bench shot up to smack Reich under the chin, then jam against his throat. Even with Snorri sitting on it, the bench scraped several inches along the floor before arresting Reich's advance. Snorri stood, letting the bench fall as Reich reeled back, then in one quick stride seized the man behind his head with both hands and rammed him face first into the table. The impact sent my ale vaulting out of its cup and into my lap. Reich himself slid to the floor, trailing a long red stain across the beer-soaked boards. The killer stood behind his fallen companion. Red Kent, they called this one his hand on the hatchet at his side, a question on his brow. "'Ah, let him sleep it off,' Snorri grinned at Kent, and sat down. Brother Kent returned the smile, and went back to sit with his fat companion. Snorri returned to his place, and reached across to retrieve his drink from the other table. "'I felt much better after that,' Reich's sudden downfall filled me with no end of good humour. I snatched another ale from a passing servant girl, tossing a copper onto a tray. Well, Brother Emma! I paused to quaff, a style of drinking not dissimilar from swigging, but which involves spilling rather more of the brew down your chest. I don't know about you, but I'm in the mood for some more horizontal entertainment and as if on cue, sweet Mary stood at my side, smile in place. "'Hail Mary, full of grace,' I said, alcohol substituting for wit. "'My father's a cardinal. Did you know that? Let's go upstairs and discuss ecumenical matters.' Mary giggled dutifully, and with a hand on Brother Emma's shoulder, I found my feet. "'Lead on, dear lady!' I started a bow, but thought better of it, most traces of balance having deserted me. I followed Mary to the stairs, veering from one side to the other, but thankfully not managing to spill a brother's pint or otherwise causing offence, and always drawn back on course by her tempting wiggle. At the bottom of the stairs, Mary took a candle from the wall box, lit it, and led on up. 
It seemed I'd started a trend as someone else followed us up the steps, boots thudding. A long passageway divided the second floor, doors to either side. Mary led the way to one of the doors, standing ajar. She set the candle in a holder on the wall and turned. Her smile slipped away, eyes widening. Get lost! For a moment I wondered why I'd said that, then realized that the voice had come from behind me. Mary dodged aside and pattered back down the corridor whilst I wrestled with the business of turning around without falling over. Before I could manage it, fingers knotted in the hair at the back of my head and steered me into the darkened room. Story! What had been meant as a manly cry for assistance came out more as a squeak. We don't need him. The hand steered me further in. Shadows swung as the candle moved behind me. I... A pause to deepen my voice. I don't have any money. Just a copper or two. The Viking carries for me. I don't want your money, boy. Even a skinful of ale only allows so much room for optimism. The edge of a bed frame pressed sharp against my shins. Fuck that! I swung round, fist flailing. The flickering light allowed me a glimpse of Brother Emma before a two-handed shove sent me tumbling backwards. My fist found only air, and the candle went out. No! It became a wail. The bedclothes engulfed me, lavender scented to obscure the stink of old sweat. I lashed out again, but the blanket tangled my arm. I heard the door kicked shut. The weight of a body covered me. Emma, I'm not like that. A shout now. I am... I remembered my knife and started to hunt it. Oh, shush. Much softer tones, close to my face. Just behave. But it's Emma. What? Emma, not Emma. An iron grip encircled my fist as my fingertips found the hilt of my dagger. The body pinning me now stretched out on mine, hard with muscle but shorter than me, and at such close quarters, quite possibly female. Emma, she said again, but let that slip outside this room, pretty boy, and I'll cut your tongue out and eat it. But just relax. I've saved you half a silver ducat. So I did.